Hey everyone, it's Tom here, back with a quick intro for another compilation retrospective episode. If you're not familiar with how this works, we've now finished the original run of Our Patalica, reviewed all 160 odd songs or so. So what I've been doing, this is one of the final ones, is going back through, recreating the album as it were, getting all the episodes of all the songs from the uh, you know from the collection, putting them in order putting a clip in between, cutting out the intro and the outro, so it's just me and the guest talking about the song. Uh, two episodes are a bit longer on this run, and I'll explain to them as I get to them. So, uh, yeah, as always, follow us at MetallicaPod, MetallicaPod.gmail.com, all that good stuff. Just before we get to the clips, let me just thank all the guests. So we're doing Garage Inc. Disc 2 today, and what opens that is Helpless, and that was episode 65 with uh, the Pearl Jam podcaster himself, Mr. Brad Blazik from Single Podcast Theory. Definitely check out that show. Small Hours Follows, that was episode 128 with Michael Hampton. Ralph M. Savetto was on for the following episode, The Wait, which is episode 154. Uh, Shouts to Ralph, patron, always comes on the show. Shout out to Michael as well, real rock star in uh, Black Sabbath Tribute, great speaking to him. Uh, Garrett came on for Crash Course in Brain Surgery, episode 26 who's in Squeeze, I, what are they called, Squash, sorry, there is obviously a famous band called Squeeze, he's not in Squeeze, uh, word to Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook, uh, Green Hell Last Caress follows with Ryan Mann, episode 59, uh, just a word in this episode as well, listening back, um, I think he was on some sort of trucker CB radio or something, uh, the conversation's great, uh, I really enjoyed the dialogue, but, uh, the audio quality on that one's a little bit lacking on Greenhouse Last Caress, uh, next up is episode 5 of Alf Metallica with Martin Popoff, the Canadian heavy metal journalist, this is Am I Evil, I've kept the whole episode in here, uh, we didn't, you know, we sort of spoke about the song and stuff like that, but anyone's familiar, uh, with Martin, you know, he is one of these kind of giants of music criticism, especially in this round thrash and that area, so, it was just a you know a really interesting altogether conversation about Metallica. Blitzkrieg follows. That was episode seventeen with Brian Ross from Blitzkrieg. He's the actual lead singer of Blitzkrieg who wrote the song Blitzkrieg from the band Blitzkrieg. And this again was a wonderful chat. You know, as I said at the start of the thing, I was wanted to really do Garage Inc. songs with Garage Inc., you know, the band members that have been covered and stuff like that. That didn't really come to fruition, unfortunately, but it did once with Brian, and again, this is an episode where I've just included the whole thing, because we speak about the song, uh, we speak about the legacy, we speak about Brian's friendship with Lars, and him hearing St. Anger, and then Lars originally calling him, you know, way back when to get permission to use the song. Bread Fan follows. Bread Fan was episode 19 with Josie Joker, a very good friend of mine, Always good to speak to him. Always good to get him on the show. Prince after this. The Prince, episode 113 with Rick Nashtag. Another great discussion. I believe me and Rick also did Tuesday's Gone, if I remember correctly. So uh, check that one out as well. A lot of uh, parallels. Stone Cold Crazy with Borge follows, episode 134. Uh, Russell came on for 129. In fact, was it Russell who does squash or was it uh maybe he's in squeeze as well so that was episode so what episode 129 episode 79 after that killing time thanks to james clark then we get to the motorhead quartet overkill i did solo episode 110 logan novak early supporter of the show came on for episode 31 doing damage case then stone dead forever with phil scott episode 134 spoke to phil a few times uh we did our through the never episode amongst others great guy and finally again too late too late is just me on my own some 
so well, we've got lots of cool stuff coming up on the channel as well uh, I've got my history and Metallica books uh, that's recorded that's on the Patreon if you want to support us over there on Patreon listen to that straight away get it downloaded to your phone uh, another thing that's on Patreon something I did with my man Rob Z where we went through the 30th anniversary shows went through all four of those days in December 2011 all of the performances all of the guest stars all of the uh, mustainness it was uh, a brilliant discussion and uh, currently, at the moment, as I record this, I'm gearing up the guest for Mega Histories, the second part. Check out the first part on Jason Newstead, which is kind of like our huge kind of, you know, deep dive, things you might not know. Um, did that with Jack, and it's like three hours or so. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to do one on Cliff. And uh, this one's going to be really in-depth as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah, very excited. Probably have to do one Rob last as the trilogy, I suppose. Uh, I'll definitely like to uh, go into those suicidal furrows. So, um, yeah, as always, thanks to all the guests. Thanks to you guys for listening. Stay safe out there and uh, enjoy. Let's talk about uh, Helpless, which is from the 598, the Garage Days, re-revisited EP. And it's the first song we hear. And, of course, this is a track. These are all uh, covers. Uh, this is a cover by Diamond Head that we've covered on the show before, Am I Evil? I had uh, the music journalist Martin Popoff on to do that. It was like the fourth or fifth episode. That was a long time ago. I mean, Diamond Head for you, um, Brad, are you familiar at all? Or? Only because Metallica and <laughs> yeah. their covers, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that dude's voice, I tried to, to listen to them. His voice is very, like, operatic, I guess, or kind of kind of high-pitched, and I, I could never get into that. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I always try and listen to the original before we do, before I make my notes on the cover. And, yeah, his vocals, way more vampy, kind of Andy Wood-esque to a certain extent. Yeah, He's kind of yeah, more yeah. of a lead singer-y, warbly, and, and the bass is, is heavier in the original. I always say as well, Diamond Head, this won't really mean anything to you, but Diamond Head are from Stourbridge, which is kind of near where I grew up. I used to go for swimming lessons in Stourbridge. So it's just odd to think that Diamond Head came from Stourbridge. But, you know, they were a hugely influential band. And one of those bands that... Whilst you couldn't necessarily cl- class them as thrash metal, you can definitely see the influence on Metallica. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this this version, Metallica's version, is is very faithful to the Diamond Head version. Yeah. Um, especially compared to the other four or five songs, however you want to count it, on Garage Days. Um, if if you, I don't know if you've listened to the originals of the other songs mm. but they sound a lot different to me they sound a lot yeah, different yeah crash course we've already covered on the show and i do remember that being mm-hmm. a slightly slightly lighter slightly funkier i think they they, they, they yeah. just sort of heavier up everything don't they they sort of oh, yeah. metallic yeah. metallicize it and um helpless starts with a bit of a whimper i don't know if you hear but if you turn the volume up they're sort of talking and lars counting into the riff mm-hmm. sort of absent yeah, humming it's weird i think it's james is yeah. humming yeah 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 it's, uh, yeah, and, and Lars is like ready. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then we start with one of the freshiest fresh riffs I've ever heard. So simple, so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Just nothing to it. It's a da 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 da. Like it's just dunderhead, but it's satisfying. 
Yeah, and it's I just like that. Uh, again, I'm pro- I'm probably going to be comparing the two versions to each other a lot during this, but the Diamond Head version starts off with this kind of like jazzy ride symbol, yeah, you know, and Lars just plays it on the hi hats, which he's kind of famous for not playing a ride symbol, but I love the sound of his hi hats on the in the intro to this. The song, for those that haven't heard it, is pretty typical of this era, charging through. Clearly a big influence on the boys, and I like the way James sounds as well. He sounds very, very young here. And when they sing, when he yelps, helpless, I really like the guitar underneath. You know, it's very quick and, you know, very reminiscent uh, to me a little bit of Disposable Heroes. And the, the song altogether, it doesn't necessarily reinvent the wheel at any points, but there's a reason why they continue to play it in their live set. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I like that, um, it's kind of it's, it's kind of extended like the the song kind of should end around 4 minutes yeah and then they that Lars does this little dent 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 and then they go into like a crazy like extra two minutes of the song yeah they add a guitar solo pretty much right that, that yeah, and it's just... yeah the locomotion of the song as well um it has that that sort of that odd riff that they pull back to that keeps going up and up and up and up and building and building and the song does have some real momentum to it that i really enjoy and yet it's just kind of a it's it's just classic isn't it it just doesn't really do anything unexpected but it's what you want to hear it's metallica just covering a band they love and enjoying it yeah oh definitely and i think you're talking about momentum i Mm. think um a lot of that has to do with lars goes into like a, a double bass kick mm. about I don't know uh, I want to say right before that in in that that second solo and he just rides those double bass drums all the way to the end of the song and it really gives it that you know like you said that charging galloping sound and, and for, you, the, for you, the second half of the song. And you're a drummer, Brad, or at least your, yeah, your, kinda. your, your Skype your Skype profile pic <laughs> yeah. as, uh, as a youthful you on drums. And I've heard yeah. you I've heard you speak about drums uh, a lot on the show. So what are your opinions in general of Lars? Oh, I love him. Mm. I love him. Um he gets a lot of shit for his live his live playing. But I think um I just think he's one of the best drummers ever. Yeah. You know. Um Again, you go back to Justice. I mean, they're so that stuff is so like prog rock, you know, prog metal. I don't know how you say it, it's, but it's, it's the the it's hard to play that stuff when you're first learning how to play drums because he's changing what he's playing so often, and he's not just playing like bass snare, bass snare. I mean, he goes back and forth and. He just plays the drums. The The timing is so different to me. And he's still doing it. They're still slaying yeah. stadiums. You know, he's 54 mm-hmm. years old. This is hard music to play. I saw them uh, in, in Birmingham, and I know that you saw them with Clint as well. And I, I was really impressed with him live. I thought he put on a good show. I was too because, uh, you know, I that was my first time seeing them last year. Um and again, for for ten or fifteen years, you know, all I've heard is about how terrible he is live. And I, I don't think he's he's I don't think he's a bad drummer live. I think what it is is, I, the one thing I would say negatively about Lars is he doesn't play the the same way he plays on a record, so it sounds different. Mm. But it's not like he's you know he's off or anything. He's just not playing exactly like he played on a record. 
And I think people take that as, oh, he sucks. They do, and it's the most generic thing to say about a drummer. And I, I've I've never really drummed like I play guitar, but I've never really got behind it. But he does have feel, right? Oh yeah, you know he's got soul. Yeah. I think. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's one thing I like about him is he is um, he plays. I th- I think I don't know, but it seems like he plays more to you know what he's feeling, or he's he's not just like coming up with. Um, you know, like, uh, what do you call it? Sheet, sheet music. Mm. You know, it's like he's just playing what he feels to to these songs. Sometimes that comes off as kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> it does, but it's unique. I think exactly. Lars def- definitely has his own style. And it's kind of like, almost drumming is the least important thing Lars does in Metallica. Like, yeah. you know, he, he, he's, mm-hmm. their, he's their promo agent, he's their personality, he's the driving engine, he arranges all the songs. You know, the, the influence this guy's had on the music is, you know, insurmountable. And I should say, as well, talking of influence, uh, Diamond Head, you know, this is just a little thing from Wikipedia here, very interesting. So, early on, you know, at their first gigs, Metallica would play Am I Evil, The Prince, of course, and another Diamond Head song that I haven't heard called Sucking My Love. I'll definitely have to uh, <laughs> seek that one out. And apparently the earliest known recordings of this song are a rehearsal demo recorded at Ron McGovney's house in March 1982. And the, the Metal Up Your Ass live demo recorded in November that year features a live rendition of Am I Evil. The Prince was also played, but the tape ran out too soon to catch it. Sucking My Love, apparent, sucking my love apparently exists on various bootlegs. Um, and interestingly, in my hometown of Birmingham on the 5th of November 1992 during the Wherever We May Roam tour Metallica played Am I Evil and Helpless with the original band members yeah that's cool that's pretty cool yeah 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 because I mean any of the bands Metallica have covered on Gary Jink they've paid for their children's college fees right right yeah exactly (laughs) it's such a great gesture some of the bands like Budgie for example like like they're a great band but they're an obscure Welsh band you know, no mm-hmm. one remembers Budgie. And uh, famously, they played Am I Evil at the Big Four show, where I'm pretty sure, I pretty sure remember reading this, that Tom Araya of Slayer uh, didn't come out because he, d- he didn't think it was a very good song. Yeah. And I'm yeah, like, I dude, think... that's not the point. Like, Right. Yeah, the whole point is, like, we're getting everybody together yeah. to be out here for history, yeah. and he doesn't like the song. Come on, man. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, and then on December 5th, 2011, Brian Tatler, the lead singer, and Sean Harris, the guitar player, uh, joined the band on stage at the Fillmore to celebrate the 30th anniversary shows. They played The Prince, It's Electric, Helpless, and Am I Evil. Uh, Metal Your Podcast early on did a fantastic episode on the 30th anniversary shows. Definitely seek that. I'm sure they mentioned it there. But um, any, any, any closing thoughts on Helpless? spread um i just i i love this song um i don't know it's mm. just i i love like i've said garage days the the original five five track ep was was very um you know part of my life at that time you know i'm like 14 or 15 and I just I love it so much. <laughs> I love I love the melody as well. The I can see the scars, I can see what's going on. Like it's just so eighties in a, in yeah, a, in a know, beautiful the, sense. The lyrics, like I, I for a long time I wasn't positive what he was, what the, the lyrics <laughs> right. were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I hear them now, because you know you can look them up online, I'm like, this song is pretty cool. He's the 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 uh, narrator or however you want to say it is talking about wanting to be you know like making his dreams come true of playing music in front of people Mm -hmm. 
and mm-hmm. and I'm like that's pretty cool. Yeah, like that's got to, got to fill this hall tonight. You say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you wouldn't, you know. There's not a lot of like um, uplifting, like self help type lyrics coming out of Metallica, you know. So that's that's pretty cool that that's what they're singing about in the song, and it's you know Metallica is singing those lyrics at a time in their career where they were kind of on that threshold. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and this song has been performed 64 times. Uh, the first time was March 14th, 1982, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, the last time was April 7th, 2018, in Stuttgart, Germany. So they played it about two or three months ago. I'm sure they're going to play it to the end of their career. It's just yeah. sort of a, you know, a jabbing in the arm, a really, a really fun song to put together. And yeah, Diamond Head, yeah, another one of those bands. I just, I, I always say this, but I love the fact that Metallica just have such respect for their ancestors, you know, and, and really, really put them on the map. And I still need to do, I know a few people have emailed in. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, Brad, but in the early 90s, Lars did like a sort of new wave of British heavy metal compilation. Mm. It was no, like, I don't think I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, it was like a two-disc thing. Uh, I'll see if I can find it on here. Um, but yeah, it was a two-disc kind of just him looking back, really, and celebrating. Yeah, here it is. It's called New Wave of British Heavy Metal, 1979 Revisited. It's him and uh, Kerrang! journalist Jeff Barton, and it's two discs. And yeah, Diamond Head are on there, of course, and loads of other obscure bands like Black Axe <laughs> and Praying Mantis. Yeah. They sound they sound awesome. It, like if you, Black Axe are so obscure, they haven't even got a Wikipedia page. God damn, I need to listen to this song, Red Lights. But... Um, <laughs> So the song we're tackling today, The Small Hours, is on the originally mm-hmm. on the 598 EP. Did you have that around this time? Do you remember listening to that EP you know, when you were younger? I did. Um, yeah, I did. I uh, Again, I got a, a cassette tape and copied it, and I actually have still have the copy right in front of me just for uh, old time's sake. Nice. I have my Maxwell crappy little 90-minute tape where half of it is Metallica Garage Days Revisited, and the other half uh, is Guns N' Roses, actually. Oh. Um, so yeah, I uh, I had that. I got that taped, and my mind's a little foggy. I can't remember exactly what order I got the first like four albums and and where this fit. But it was definitely before the Black Album. Like I said, I I became an instant collector. So it was it was in there where I where I got the CP. So yeah, for people not aware, this was on the 598 to begin with. This is the second track. This is I mean you know Metallica always cover these gloriously obscure bands that no one's ever heard of holocaust right uh, you familiar yeah. at all with this scott i didn't even know they were scottish until this morning yeah yeah i did i did not know anything about them really until right. i started researching this for this uh for this podcast yeah so um yeah they uh they're they're very obscure i i listened really to obscure. one of their albums actually and it's it's pretty good it's kind of a stoner sludgy vibe the yes. guy to me the vocalist to me sounds like Gene Simmons. Uh, it's interesting stuff. I, I yeah, I can hear that, and I mean we'll get into mm-hmm. the track itself as a whole. But have you listened to the original? Sure. Have you listened to the original Holocaust Small Hours? Their version. 
you know, I, I've looked for it, yeah. and I can't seem to find it. I found a revision or a re-recording in the 90s, which is the one that I'm listening to. And I did see live recordings of, the, of Holocaust early on. So that's my best gauge of what it kind of sounded like. Yeah, it's interesting there's a re-recording there because the original that I listened to, the guitar sounds ginormous. It sounds like it's just been recorded incorrectly, but in a good way. It's not mic'd up very well, and it just swamps over all of the other instruments. And, you know, yeah. I mean, let's get into this song then. So this is on Garaging, sure. you know, and we open with... You know, what sounds a bit like a sort of, I don't know, an electric meter, a TV running. Uh, there's some low form ambient <laughs> static and kind of discordant yeah. noise. And then that real, new, 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 that two note figure. Like, it's, yeah. quite, it's quite an uneasy listen. It's very atmospheric, that intro. Yeah, it's very, it's very simple. Um, it, it's stripped back. You, if you never heard it before, you don't know what you're going to get, especially with Metallica, because it's not really like anything they had put out at the time so far granted it was um, a cover yeah. but yeah it just kind of takes sucks you in and you know where are you gonna go Wh what's happening where are we going with this yeah yeah and it, it takes its time i mean this is a, a long song this is like you know six minutes or so and it feels like the song's going to begin the guitar's coming in and then it pulls back and then it becomes, yeah. you know, quite authoritative, quite doomy, as you say. There's a, there's a plodding nature to the song as a whole, but I don't really mean that in a negative way, you know. There's a, there's a marching pace. Right. It's definitely thumping. It's definitely mm -hmm. one of those songs that you could hear live and you just sort of stand still, but your head is nodding. Everyone's nodding in time. It's got that real, like you said, thumping and plodding to it, and it just kind of mm -hmm. sucks you in and... And in, in its simplicity, it draws you in as opposed yeah. to a, a technical masterpiece, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like an incantation. It's quite hypnotic as you listen to it. And it does, right. it, you know, it's kind of built around two real riffs. And the main riff that pushes the verse forward is huge. Like, what, mm -hmm. do, you, what do you make of that piece of music? Of the main verse? Yeah, the, the, uh, main, the main along? sort of riff, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, hearing Hetfield sing that is uh it's it's gorgeous i mean the guy roars the guy never holds anything back so just he he really drives it again it's a simple and once we get into the song it's him and lars's beat really that drives it i mean lars sounds fantastic on this recording and um it's different than what i had heard before and uh, but i love it it sounds great James's vocals really drive it. Again, it's simple. It's not too. It's not terribly exciting, um, no. but it goes on a little journey. And you're like, okay, all right, take me there, guys. Where we? What? What's going on next? Yeah, yeah, you're right, and it, it is full of surprises. It's a sort of dark gothic adventure that begins yes. almost <laughs> post-punky. You know, with with that new, new. You don't quite know what's going on. Then it gets into that main riff. And the kind of chorus is really funky because James is essentially singing boom, and you mentioned like sort of stoner kind of that idea, yeah. almost Sabbathy Aussie kind of era. You know, I can hear a bit of that there. Oh, very, very much so. And this is uh, kind of a stoner vibe. Again, I don't know much about Holocaust, or I, I really don't know how Holocaust tied in with Metallica no. at the time, as far as you know, was Lars 
how much was he listening to at the time? I'll, I'll assume it was Lars that brought the it mu- Lars must uh, have got the cassette from someone. And I mean, they're, they're in it, that new wave of British hev- heavy metal thing. But like Holocaust are really like, you know, barely known, even amongst Tigers of Pang Tang or Tank or those sort of bands, you know? Yeah, yeah, no idea. I, I feel in retrospect they're one of those bands because they only have like the original member and like a laundry list of past yeah. members. Maybe they just couldn't get their act together enough to like build a real following. I don't know. So, you can only speculate. Yeah, yeah. Um, the main guy, John Mortimer, who wrote the song, who sings, who plays yeah. guitar. It, it's, it's it's kind of all, all around that. And, the, you know, the song is, for the most part, quite trudging, you know, slow heavy that sort of idea yeah and then two thirds yeah there the... really is no yeah i'm sorry go ahead no no i just oh, say... I was gonna say there really yeah. it there really is no verse to it in a sense like the verse is almost the pre-core i mean sorry there's no yeah, chorus to saying. it like the the chorus is a pre-chorus like when and i try to get through like mm-hmm. there's no real that's i mean that's the chorus and then you just go back into the dun 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 yeah. you know not a not a structurally well no thought no, no. Out song sounds like <laughs> 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 and I mean, yeah, it's it kind of jammy to a certain extent. I mean, the, the, it's funny you mentioned there's no chorus because yeah, the term "the small hours" is never said, and you figured that would kind of be enshrined in some sort of chorus there. But the band have a lot of fun on it, and it's very different to a lot of the music. I guess if I was to compare it to any Metallica song before, maybe the thing that should not be just in that kind of For sure. you know lumbering slouching to bethlehem kind of idea but it's not all slow about two thirds in it really kicks up quite a few gears and we get a lot oh, more yeah. chugging we get the kind of classic riff breaking out we get the solo and then it, and then it reverts back again. right like what, what do you make of this section that eruption kind of four minutes in well, I love the thundering uh, drums that Lars is doing before he starts hitting the cymbals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's either double bass or he's just hitting that rapid low tom, you know, dun, 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 like something's coming. Like this song is definitely changing, um, you know, and somebody in the recording and I, I can't figure out who it is. Maybe it's maybe it's Jason at that time. Someone shouts like almost a count in, but he sounds like he's saying, hey, mother. Yes. But I listen to it so many times. I am not sure what that person is saying. Mm-hmm. Um but it's you know it's fun. It's a it's a live atmosphere. And again, I had never heard uh, Metallica do this at this time. There was nothing live. It was all studio. But this sounds like four guys all playing together and just having a good time. So yeah. when this song kicks in, I, I'm all aboard. Like let's go with this this part. Um, the solos. The uh, Kirk's solo is, I, you know, comparing it to the original, I, I, it's not the same solo. He just kind of goes off and does something. Off key sounds like and mm-hmm. uses a warm to build us in. And yep, yep, yep. I dig it. I dig. I yeah. dig, it and it really fits the song. It really fits the song. It does. It does. It works for the song, which is what Kurt mm-hmm. doesn't really do a lot, especially in the later era of Metallica. <laughs> he just sort of wanks around and does whatever he wants in his little blues box. But but yeah, I think it, it plays yeah. into that energy. And, you know, a lot of the images and just the sense of the song. I really like lyrically dark rivers are flowing back into the past and that sort of idea. Yes. What what, what do you read the song as meaning altogether? Um, I I thought, well, first of all, just taking the song in, to me, it just sounds like an evil, um, uh, a warning, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like impending doom is right. You are right on the cusp of going into somewhere evil. So you better watch out. Yeah. That kind of feeling, and it's it's simple lyrics, 
but I love it. And the, the simplicity of the lyrics fits the simplicity of the groove in the song. So I think those really um, work well together. When I say simplicity of the lyrics, I mean um, monosyllabic words, nothing too heavy. Yeah. They didn't look these words up in a dictionary. You know, that, um, but I like it. And upon further, uh, further review, um, somebody said online that the uh, vocalist, again, he wrote the song to be about an incantation and a, a seance, right. if you will. Yeah. So everything kind of has uh, revolves around different things as ghosts are around the corner. Um, you know, I'm trying to get through to you. I'm about to break through the barrier. You know, watch out for the powers. Um, dark rivers. I'm the chill in the air. They said that ghosts would um, make the room cold yes, right when yeah. they're about to show themselves to people. So, um, I, and that, I mean, I, you know, I can't argue that. It all makes sense to me if that's what the song's about. Um, it's it, it's wonderful. And again, that makes – it fits in again with the opening of the song, the eeriness of it, just the part with the drums without the cymbals. It's kind of a low end with the high notes. It all really works well together for me as a song. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, the title as well, The Small Hours, which I guess, you know, means kind of the darkest before dawn sort of thing. So that, that plays into it. And, you know, funnily enough, when you search Small Hours on Spotify, obviously Metallica come up, but uh, Frank Sinatra, The Wee Small Hours came up as well, which um, a lot of, a lot is of it, people... Is it, is it this? No, it's not. Actually, I, I, can imagine him, I can imagine him crooning on this and I'll try to get through like and not try to get through to <laughs> yeah. you hey i think old blue eyes really <laughs> yeah could definitely do it but um but yeah. yeah it is um it's a cool tune actually and it's kind of you know so many of these flashy metallica new wave covers are just kind of breakneck you know just a bit thoughtless mm -hmm. but this one's got a bit more of a pacing about it a bit more of a, a bit more of a vibe a bit more of a reek to it and, and yeah. i do i do really dig that and as we always yeah. do as we always do guys we reach out to you and see what you thought of this metallic song not too many responses this time because i appreciate most people probably aren't too au fait with it uh ralph saying at metallica pod of the small hours i've got to say i love this cover of a holocaust tune i dig the slow dirge like build up to the middle the galloping section replete of an excellent kirk solo back into a sludgy ending the lyrics are cool a bit vague though it seems to be a longing to gain someone's attention satan he asks in brackets and mm -hmm. I, I'd, I'd say ralph's on the money there uh, yeah, yeah, the Seon Satan, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we two more uh Metallicast, which is another great Metallica podcast, go check those guys out. Go go check those guys out. Saying one of their most underrated covers and Sabbath bloody podcast. Rye as always saying, always love this one. My favourite from the underrated disc two of Garage Inc. Absolutely sinister guitar swells and scrapes in the intro make for a lovely evil atmosphere and an epic build to a crushing main riff. Now, um, they've played this song, Michael, a few times, which surprised me, to be honest with you. I thought this was one of the ones they never dusted out. But it's seven times. It was debuted August mm -hmm. 20th, 1987, London, England, which I think was a pre-Monsters uh, of Rock show at the 100 Club. And they last played it in Leipzig, Germany, 2009, May 7th. So it's quite cool that they've, you know, brought it out into the open. Yeah, occasionally. Yes, yeah. hardly. Very at all. occasionally. But yeah, yeah, it's nice. Like once every five years or something, and I don't think they'll ever do it again. And to be honest with you, I haven't no, watched no. any videos of them doing it live. But you know, I can imagine Petfield really inhabiting that character. You know, as he sings it. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. I was watching. Uh, I've seen, as far as I know, I saw all the videos uh, that Metallica have performed this live. Okay. I watched them, and they did a like a five mini tour, garage ink tour. Yeah, garage yeah, means yeah. the same. Where they did they did this performance in '98. Um, I think that what it was, and then once once in uh, the World Magnetic Tour, and um, yeah. The, oh, the first one was in '87, like you said. And uh, it seems to me, I was doing the math here because I'm kind of a nerd. It was like 87 and then 98 and then 09. So it seems like every 11 years, yeah. they bring out the small hours. So <laughs> in 2020, I think we're due for another small I, hours I think you're right. performance. I think you're right. What do you think? Did I yeah. crack the code? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there. It's there. And um, It's I mean, there. Yeah, guys, Holocaust. Let, let me know, MetallicaProductGmail.com. Is there anything I need to listen to by this band? You know, I know there we are eventually going to do our episode on Lars's big new wave of British heavy metal compilation. I don't know if Holocaust actually figure on that, but I am always interested in these bands that Lars and James and, and Cliff and Kirk so idolise and you know immortalised on this disc. Any um any closing thoughts on Small Hours, Michael? Um yeah, you know one thing I want to say is that after watching the live videos, I think if people are not terribly familiar with this, or maybe if they listen to it um, on the album, it doesn't really grab them or whatnot i would say go uh to find their performance in uh, 87 in london it's uh right when jason is is joined the band and i think that in 87 is the is the penultimate performance of this song uh from them i think it sounds better than the album they sound just like these hungry angry guys james's voice has uh matured He's just roaring. Lars's beat is his backbeat is sick. I don't remember him. I mean, I've always been a fan of Lars, but he it, it's just it's a crazy environment. If you really want to get into this song, check out that 87 uh, performance in London. It's the it's the best. I think it really I can't say it's aged well for the band. Sure. I don't think I don't think them as 50 year olds. I don't think it plays well as it does for them being mid 20s. It's a heavy groove. And I think they've used this template of the song to kind of throw into their own things that they've written and i don't think the song the small hours really honestly holds up today for the band and Mm -hmm. so i would say go back in time and you'll hear the best of this performance yeah there's um there's a live version of it as well recorded in 98 that was in new york that was the b-side to the whiskey in the jar single so they have Mm -hmm. kind of used it in releases going forward and yeah you know i can understand this song might not be to everyone's taste it can perhaps get a little bit monotonous um in terms of repetition it does have that real you know fire starter moment towards the latter minutes but um but yeah i've enjoyed listening to this over the past week or so and i do think this is a pretty decent tune and it's just kind of a different phase element face of metal that metallica are dipping their toe into this track then uh i love the way it opens with that fog of dissonant feedback that kind of on off switch which is just the hammering on the e and then the thundering riff clattering in like what what do you make of this intro um well at first i couldn't figure out what that droning was Mm. i wasn't sure if it was bass or guitar uh on the original version anyway yeah now on on metallica's version it's obviously kirk playing it but um it's it's a cool sound. <laughs> yeah. But they were doing a lot of stuff. It seems like 
Killing Joke was ahead of their time anyway, because they were doing stuff that sounded like ministry before ministry was doing that sort of Absolutely. thing. Yeah, and the, the, you know this beginning really does work because that riff comes in, dum bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba 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 ba, and in many ways, you know, I'm not saying that they invented this type of riff, but the fact that this comes out in 1980 before all the fresh stuff, it's a real proto fresh riff, isn't it? The open chugging resolved into that little gnarled melody, that splattering of notes, going back into the chug again and again and again, really effective and heavy. Well, for sure it is. It plays through the whole song, you know. It, it, it's there and there again, and like so many Metallica riffs, so many Hetfield riffs, you you can just listen to it over and over. It doesn't really get boring. It almost gets more powerful as it goes on. Yeah, I agree with you there, hundred percent. It's a great riff. And you know, throughout the track, the mix is interesting. So, you know, most people will remember on the credits of Five Night Eight EP, it's not very produced by Metallica, and it totally does have this, you know cost under six dollars to record kind of idea in a garage and part of that comes from the burbling of jason's bass which is very noticeable amongst the murk of the song there's always notes sticking out isn't there oh yeah his bass uh on this song and all the, the rest of the album is just it really stands out it's uh i guess they gave him a brief moment to shine before uh they kind of turn him down on the next album <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's the th that's always the fly in the ointment for me about the whole jason you know was turned down on just and you know that this has been spoken to death and kind of mourned through cliff whatever but they did you know give him a real big showing here and he does sort oh, of, yeah. you know he just sort of clunk around and some of it's almost clumsy to me not not in a kind of dissonant way but just you know it serves the song but it's still kind of burbling and bumbling and you know for me it's all about the main riff the the, the riff is irresistible the riff is you know funky and groovy yet at the same time a real real sledgehammer that reasserts itself and then we go into the verses um james's vocals i just talk about the sound of his voice first of all it's through like a you know a vocoder of sorts it's quite hard to decipher yeah they, they use some sort of effect on the vocals it almost gives it like a a kind of an industrial feel mm. which isn't uh, a usual thing you hear in metallica songs no, certainly not yet. It does it does stand out. They were doing a lot of um, experimentation throughout this EP and as they were progressing. And, you know, it should be saying in terms of the lyrics. So the song is about Earth's destruction um, due to pol pollution and neglect. And there was an interview with the lead singer mentioned before, Jazz Coleman, who said, quote, The song was written after we played up in the north of England and we saw this river that was so polluted. It had detergent floating down it and there was dead fish everywhere. I'll never forget it. It was just heartbreaking. And obviously later in the song, there is the, the lyric, I look at the river, white foam floats down. Uh, apparently the band are really into fishing as well. And that's part of the reason it uh, affected them so much. But um, just in terms of the imagery, you know, it's kind of kind of blackened-esque, isn't it? Where it's uh, apocalyptic, es eschatological kind of ideas. Yeah, it does have that, like, uh, post-nuclear war kind of feel to yeah. it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, which just compounds the kind of industrial feel of the track and it's you know it, it's kind of it's kind of snatches of lyrics it's um you know masks decay the body's poisoned then more instructional stuff like gotta sit tight and uh, mutant thoughts are conjured as well like you know i really like the lyrics i really like the whole song to be honest with you the chorus you know very simple very anthemic the way that's, that's all you're really getting it's the name of the song said four times yep that's it w w does it work for you the chorus do you like it yeah yeah, it works for me. Fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't mind it at all. It's a big sing along. 
you know, um, and yeah, it should be makes it a big one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I watched quite a few of the live performances of this song. The song's been played uh, 25 times. So, you know, a fair few times for something that's, again, one of the more neglected uh, of their covers. And, and, you know, really, really uh, intense cover. But, yeah, when they played it at Mexico City on the DVD release... I don't know if you've seen that, but the crowd are what I mean, the crowd are wild for every song over there, but they, they seem to really dig this Killing Joe song. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, I've seen that too. I actually have that sitting up on a shelf uh, in my living room. Uh, the, that is a fantastic show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And we're definitely going to cover that um, soon on the show because I, whenever I've gone back to that concert, I absolutely adore it. I've never really sat down and watched the whole thing. And yeah, 25 times. So, um, you know, it was debuted back in around the time um people will be um, familiar with that uh 8700 club show in london england uh, then played it uh, a year uh, 10 years later including london um they played it in sheffield i was trying to see if they played it in the actual north of england sheffield is is the north so that does count but not the distinct north or i imagine they saw the foaming rivers but um yeah i mean that's mostly what the song is obviously we do get quite a long Kirk section. So after the two choruses, we pull back down into that essential riff. We've got the war drums, the song's given space to breathe. You know, Kirk at first is quite menacing, uh, carving out shapes, that octave idea. Things get chuggier, and then he kind of drops in with a more comfortable war piece. Um, wh- what do you make of his solo section overall? Uh, I really do like the solo he does on the song. Uh, it To me, it adds a lot because on the original, there's um, there are there are no solos at all. Yeah. They're just kind of some keyboard noises and stuff in that section. And to me, Kirk uh, adds a lot with his solo in that part of the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the guitar tone on the original is awesome. It's, it's insane almost. It's really caustic and dry and intimidating. And the song's almost quicker and it's less groove driven. Um, how would right. you, how would you compare the two? Um, I well the first the original version I would say um is kind of an industrial type of song mm. uh before there was really industrial actually uh, cuz they like I said they seem to be doing stuff that ministry did 7 years later or 6 years later about um so they're really ahead of their time and Metallica kind of makes it a little bit more metal even though they add that kind of a little bit of the industrial vocal with the effects that they have on james's voice mm-hmm. yeah i mean sometimes with some of them like you know it's like when i've gone back to the misfit stuff it's like holy shit this sounds really different and then sometimes you know it's quite faithful this is somewhat in between and again i love that they recorded this song there's no way that i would have ever heard this song or i'm sure millions of other people have now been turned on to killing joke and killing joke is still out there you know touring i watched them play this song live on youtube i think it was like 2005 or 6 and they like pause halfway through the song and the lead singer turns to the crowd and he's like who killed diana who killed david kelly and david kelly was kind of this famous guy over here that was investigating the wmd and then was mysteriously suicided and you know he pauses and points to the crowd and then dips back into the weight and it's a pretty cool clip actually so it's um you know again it's not something that metallica play all the time <laughs> we're probably right. i mean to be fair it was last played just over a year ago in germany so it's it's likely that we might see this uh you know at the time of us recording this the australia tour has been postponed but they are doing those festival shows i'm not gonna say it's likely we'd see it there but it's not an impossibility i i wouldn't mind them busting that out Anytime I saw him either. <laughs> yeah. Have you uh, have you seen it live at all? I have not, unfortunately. 
Mm. I would definitely like to, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I say, twenty-five times it's been performed. Uh, you know, over about as many years. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's unlikely that it will be. As we always do, guys, we reach out to you at Metallica Pod. Uh, Abel Sanchez says the first time I heard this song was in the Richard Linklater film School of Rock. Such a heavy main riff. Now, Ralph, um, I'm a big fan of School of Rock. I haven't watched it for a few years. I don't remember this being in it. I must have just missed that, not being aware of it. I don't recall that either, but. It's possible I I missed it too. I mean, there's lots. Of, might there's lots back, of rock in that. Might, back, might yeah. have to go back and watch the movie now. <laughs> yeah, it's a good excuse to. It's a good excuse. To, and, I'll, and I'll and I'll still say that scene in the classroom where he actually starts setting up the band and gets them playing "Smoke on the Water." That that's just legendary to me. Like I think that's such yeah, a fun thing to watch, and it's so infectious and natural. It's like quite an iconic scene now. Like, obviously, when I was younger, whatever School of Rock was a big film, but um, yeah, everyone loves School of Rock, and apparently. Uh, Apparently the weight is in School of Rock, so yeah, go check that out. John says, uh, love the 598 EP. This is what good, bad production sounds like, not say anger. Phil says, I'm not sure if a five-song EP can have a hidden gem, but with all the attention that Helpless and Last Caress get, the weight feels a little overlooked by most people, which is their loss, because it's an awesome cover. I love that crunchy opening riff. Gary says, heavy as hell. Dave says, original is a favourite of mine and the cover is no worse. Both are amazing. The bass line in particular is right up my street. Ken says, I love this tune. I saw them, I saw them play it in Union Day on New York uh, and love the crunch on the Garage Days. That was in 2004. And finally, Breadfan says, my favourite cover, all one of, great song. I mean, an outpouring of adoration there, Ralph, which isn't surprising for the weight. No, not at all. I think it, it deserves all of that. I really do. And, uh, you know, again, guys... Get in touch with us, MetallicaPod at gmail.com. What do you think of The Way? What do you think of any of the songs we've covered? At MetallicaPod on Twitter as well. Uh, we'll be back next week to cover Volturus, which is this kind of Metallica's new song that never got into any records. I'll be doing that with uh, Stephen. Uh, and then we've got Wasting My Hate coming up with Hands We've Already Recorded. And then we did it again. I got Metallicast on for that one. And that is the uh, Metallica Swizz Beats collaboration on the 2002 album Biker Boys, if you're not aware of that. This is obviously a cover, as we say, um, a budgie cover who we've already encountered in our show. Um, I did the Bread Fan episode uh, a few months ago with um, with Joker, and uh, it got me investigating budgie. You know, a lot of the bands on this compilation are kind of contemporaries of the band from the earlier '80s, you know, metal period. Budgie and and this song, Crash Course, is from 1973, so you know it's a lot older than them. I mean, had you listened to much budgie beforehand, Garrett? <laughs> not a huge budget no. guy. <laughs> they're pretty they're pretty obscure but like i want to urge people to check them out like a sort of welsh i mean they're good enough for metallica they're, they're very riffy obviously metallica really like these guys so they did a couple covers mm. uh you know this and bread fan and uh you know pretty innovative stuff uh i got uh their 71 album in 74 it looks like this song was on both of those yeah. kind of did like a reissue mm-hmm. uh but the guitars are tuned down a half step which is pretty unusual for the time uh on the budgie version on the mm-hmm. metallica version they're obviously tuned down a whole step but uh you know and this is 
this is pretty uh, innovative music for 1971. Uh, just the style of it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And it's there. Are, there are sort of there are some differences between the two. The Metallica version is longer than the budgie version and there's just little inversions that i do that i think are quite nice where on the budgie version the guitar riff starts it and then the bass backs it up whereas in the metallica version it's the okay, bass sure, so you know and the guitar is almost an accompaniment in the beginning and it works really well right yeah i think the uh bass line in the beginning of the song and also in the middle very cool uh, a lot of kind of almost like punk influence yeah. Uh, yeah not the rest of the song but you know the bass line yeah i know what you're saying and I mean, the, the budgie version just begins, uh, whereas the Metallica version has like a false intro. You sort of you can hear like you know high up the fretboard a note or two escape, and then and then that riff comes in uh, with with the bass, and it is very classic. It's very punky. It's almost very sort of classic rock esque, just to kind of kick kick the song into gear. But they Metallicaify it, don't they? It has a much more of a chug. The drums are a lot louder in their version. I mean, they're uh, you know one of the best cover bands as far as taking a song and making it their own, you know. Uh, there's songs that, like Astronomy is also on Garage Inc., you know, that you listen to the original version compared to the Metallica version, you're just like, wow, they, you know, completely put their own stamp on it. Uh, this is not really any different. You know, they turned kind of what is like a uh, grooving classic rock style yeah. song into like a, you know, pretty thrashy, pretty thrashy punk rock tune. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely have their own take on it as well. And, um, again, with 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 the lead. So in the Budgie version, which I kind of just wanted to listen to, just got like Budgie now. I've sort of got into them slowly, but they have <laughs> like the guitar and the bass like harmonize with each other and kind of like in sort of. And it's hard to sort of explain to sing it, but it's sort of pentatonic trade off that's very common of this sort of music. Whereas here, the kind of you sort of hear a crowd, don't you, before Kirk's solo? They have all the like the the noise. Oh yeah, there's. Uh, I'm pretty sure in the liner notes for Garage Inc. They talk about how. You know, in the budgie version, they kind of do like a "Oh baby, oh baby" yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. thing. And uh, you know, in, in the liner notes, they say, you know, we obviously weren't going to have any of that, so you know, we just put a bunch of like drunken yelling in yeah. the uh, interlude there. <laughs> but the uh, solo is pretty, uh, pretty stock mm. stuff. You know, like uh, it sounds cool, but you know, it's pretty much as usual. It, usual yeah. tricks there. Yeah, you. I mean. A lot of sort of harmonics and pinches towards the end, and a, a, you know a bit more frantic from him. But but yeah, I mean, what what is your thoughts then, like regardless of Metallica as Kirk as a soloist? Are you, are you a fan or? Oh man, I mean, you know, it's kind of like what he did on the first five yeah. five records. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to uh, dispute as far as you know how many people he influenced, how great the solos sound. You know, he kind of tails off, of course, yeah. towards their. You know, I like the stuff on the new records, uh, Death Magnetic, Hardwired, you know, but it's it's not quite as good. He used to write, you know, a lot more creatively, a lot more harmonically, uh, whereas now I think he kind of just uses the, uh, you know, I've heard you talk about it on the show before, he uses yeah. the uh, pentatonic scale, just tons and tons and yeah. tons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just we just covered Confusion, I think it was the last episode, and this, obviously it's quite a new song that I wasn't too familiar with, but the solo on that is just like... It, you know, again, like like you, I'm a giant fan of this guy's early work. I don't mean it disrespectfully, but it's just if if you know this podcast is about critically thinking about these songs and appreciate them. And I just yeah, I think the stuff here I like. I think it's just Kirk just having fun in that ripping. Nothing's expected too much of him, and you know he just he he does well. And James as well, like his voice is a lot more kind of kind of higher, isn't it, than normally? I think he sounds great on this mm. record, and I love it. It's like. 
he has like a uh, I don't know, it's kind of a little bit scratchier. Mm. You know, there's this, there's Last Caress, Green Hill, all those songs that are all on the same EP. And man, I actually put that in my notes. I was listening to it, you know, earlier today, and I was like, man, he is just killing it, man, on these on these yeah. songs here. And uh, yeah, it's you know, it's not quite his. Uh, you know, it's not obviously as good as vocally performing as on you know the Black album or something like that. But you know, just as far as like aggressive sounding metal vocals that still hit a note that aren't you know screams this is uh this is pretty hard to beat mm, mm. and i, I kind of like the conflicting emotion it's like you what you say is right it does have that punk element but it almost has that sort of rocky blues i with the riffs was like you know it's just very like, stock in the best possible way like something you can imagine almost like the Olman brothers band sort of putting one of those moves <laughs> yeah, into yeah their sort of music. That same kind of scale yeah uh, you know, it's funny is when I was first getting into the band, uh, like I said, it was probably like late 90s, uh, you know, what was huge was like, you know, a lot of punk music. There's Blink-182, oh, yeah. uh, Simple Plan, Sum 41, all these types of bands are coming out. And that stuff was like so popular. And I was like on the opposite side of the spectrum, you know, I was listening to, uh, you know, all the early records, Kill Em All, Ride the Lightning. Uh, not a lot of chicks clamoring to listen to, you know, the thing that should not be no. with me. And, uh, you know, consequently, uh, kind of the same thing here in 2017 as well, now that I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so this kind of had, like, punk songs on uh, on Last Caress was obviously a punk song. This is kind of punky. So, you know, I kind of started to appreciate a little bit more styles of music. Not everything had to be, you know, thrash or super heavy. Uh, you know, and now I love punk music. So, mm. you know. It's kind of cool how they, you know, took influences uh, and got people into bands that they dug, like the Misfits and uh, Danzig and all those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. And it's like great that, especially Budgie, they're like that. You know, Metallica made them in terms of reputation. Like, obviously, they were a great band before them, but it's so great that you know J- James and Lars adore this band and put them front and center. Like, I remember. I think Lars on like Chris Jericho's podcast or something, and they were just geeking out. And Lars mentioned <laughs> yeah. some song from the early '80s by some new wave of heavy. Like I don't, I don't, I can't remember their name. You know, like Satan Corpse or something. And like they found it on YouTube, and it had like 50 views, and it was like 30 years old, and they were playing it. And it's like you know, their, their fandom I think is really infectious. I can't really think of any other band. I'm sure people can comment below that. You know, I've done an album of covers and really sort of brought a whole generation into their music just because of who they were. Like, I remember Rush did a, a cover album recently that was quite good, but it wasn't, you know, it's not the same sort of level that you get that they worship these guys. And there is that huge range, isn't it? There? There's everything going from all the Motorhead covers to Budgie, you know, to just a whole, whole you know, wide range of stuff that they're playing with, you know, Danzig, etc., Diamond Head. Like, I, I, I love what they pull from. Are you aware of... um? Because Lars did like a compilation CD of Thrash in like the early nineties. I don't know if you saw that. I don't know if I've seen this, man. That's uh, kind of news to me, which is surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll try and um, I'll try and find some some things on it now because I'm basically want to do an episode on it. I was reading about I did, it. Uh, I did hear the uh, the Chris Jericho podcast where Lars was on there, and I yeah, I can't remember. It was like Sweet Savage or something. I, <laughs> something. I think you're right. Like, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the, so, the, so the record is, it's called New Wave of British Heavy Metal 79 Revisited, it's a compilation album uh, by Lars and music journalist Jeff Barton, released in 1990, it's two right. discs, and it's just got loads of bands I've never heard of, Weapon, Girl School, Vardis, you know, <laughs> you know all, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's great, and yeah. obviously Iron Maiden and Tigers of Pantang and 
you know other other more interesting bands there raven as well who obviously they toured with so but yeah i mean it's good to see them them dipping back and unfortunately this isn't a song that they've well they've played live once they played yeah, it, yeah. Um, so, uh, in london video. <laughs> yeah. uh, in 1987 so i guess just after this came out or around about that era yeah it's uh, kind of surprising you know because they normally play all of their catalog or most of it you know they have a few that they haven't played live obviously but this is like a song that i would you know they played these covers on for encores like tons of times mm-hmm. and i was surprised that this hasn't snuck in there more often you know they've done uh last caress they did as a uh, you know an encore song many times am i evil they did tons you know, all of these covers they've played a lot, except for this one they only played once, which is uh, very surprising. Yeah, so yeah. I guess maybe, you know, Lars was the only person that liked the song or something, and he, like, forced everyone else to record it. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe because they do Bread Fan. It's like, look, we do one budgie song. Oh, yeah, you of know, course. Bread Fan, they do so much. It's yeah. like a huge live song for them. Yeah, yeah, that's one of their big ones, yeah. So what as well, but yeah. They're, they're, but it's just, it's just nice to kind of look back and see kind of, you know, who they picked and stuff like that. And the lyrics... I mean, Budgie from listen to them a fair bit after our um, Bread Fan episode. They're they're on the proggier side of things musically, lyrically as well. So you just have quite evocative moments. Uh, look inside and you will see the words are cutting deep inside my brain. Um, Raven Black is on my track. He shows me how to neutralize the knife. It's just it's not kind of slightly... make a stunner. no. <laughs> Not really, um, but he doesn't really actually, need to. I actually was talking about that in my uh, in my notes, that the, the Raven Black is on my track. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but, you know, it sounds cool rhythmically, mm. so maybe that's what they were going for. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah, and just thinking of the melody that James goes, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't kind of, you're not sort of pondering, he talks of the wicked lance of fear, and, you know... The crash course embrace it. So I imagine I'm not really pondered too much of the meaning of the song, but it seems to be a guy sort of you know attacking his own brain, trying to change his kind of thoughts, which is quite a metal sort of uh, setup. Right, right. This is a uh, I don't know. I think it might actually kind of almost be like uh, social anxiety sort of thing. You know, so it says lack of words. You know, yeah. A lot of times, it seems like a song maybe about not knowing what to say. Uh, I don't know. That's really the only thing I could garner from it, other than you know all the lyrics sound bitching the way yeah. that they sing them you know yeah yeah james he just always he's one of those singers he just always seems to sound good on a track like he always just gives it everything he has you know yeah. and it, kind of you know the guy loves music so much like you know for them to sort of go through and, and go for these tracks but i mean um any any closing thoughts on this track man uh well you know i think the most surprising thing i thought was uh uh you know that it only been performed once was uh mm. pretty surprising to me uh, you know, I love the bass line. I think Jason sounds great. I'm a huge yeah. Jason Newstead fan. Oh yeah. I know I know Cliff is like the more innovative, the more revered bass player, but you know, Jason was, you know, standout singer, had great stage presence, mm. could sing harmonies, you know, he really made them a lot better band. I got something to say. I killed your baby today. got to say i not really listened to them too much but whenever i have delved in as is die die my darling as is 
for this episode, making my notes, listening to the back catalogue on Spotify. Um, I, I really like the band, man. I think they're excellent songwriters. Yeah, and you know, Misfits kind of fell into this, I think Earth AD was their last album. Mm. Um, and it's characteristically, to me, it's very characteristically different than the earlier stuff. The earlier stuff is fast, a lot of it, uh, but it's, the lyrics aren't, the lyrics are semi-intelligible. And the earlier stuff evokes, to me, a sort of seamy underbelly of, of 1950s L.A. You know, not the 40s L.A. of Raymond Chandler, but the 50s post-war kind of greasiness of it. Um, you know, Hollywood Babylon's a, a great song based on an old Kenneth Anger book about the early days of Hollywood and, and the gossip. And I always felt that Glenn Danzig was sort of, a, he, he was the an Elvis you know, with a with a meat cleaver. I mean, you know, just he had that sort of weird suaveness, yeah. but he was also very pretty pretty dangerous in his own way. You know, um, and especially when you get into some of their songs, do echo some of the 1950s stuff. Last Caress specifically uh, is kind of a, I, you know, and I've never talked to Glenn. It's not like I talked to him on the phone or anything mm. like that. But uh, that one, to me, is sort of a, an, a, a has a nod to the great. Uh, teenage death cult songs from the 60s and i don't know if you're familiar with any of that but no right i i know the death cults i didn't know there was like a music scene for it yeah well this uh, it's it's different than that it's different than death cult but there was a a whole lot of singles that came out in the 1960s right that pretty much involved teenagers uh cars and some kind of tragic death and i mean it was not just one or two it was like a dozen or so and right. uh, if you ever heard, uh, Pearl Jam did a, a cover of one, the classic Last Caress. Oh, cool. And and I don't know if, uh, you know, Danzig had that in mind, but when I hear Last Caress, I mean, not Last Caress, sorry, Last Kiss, I think. Mm. It yeah, Leah, um, yeah. Yeah, Last Kiss. They did a, good, they did a decent cover. Yeah, nice so song. I think it was a massive hit for them, ironically. Yeah, I mean, and so I don't know if Glenn had that in mind when he came up, when those guys came up with, the, uh, you know, Last Caress, because it does echo that 50s teenage tragedy type mm. genre um it's interesting to contrast that with the metallica version if you want to talk about that i don't know if you want to talk about that. yeah yeah i mean the metallica version certainly for me is expectedly it's quite slick isn't it in comparison yeah. it definitely Very lacks slick. the for, for me the sound of the misfits records are fantastic they just feel so guttural and you know deconstructive yeah I liken it to, uh, I'm probably stretching here, but I, I kind of liken the Misfits version to something that, to the Sonics type sound, very stripped down, like you say. Um, whereas the the, uh, the Metallica version is almost like a Phil Spector wall of sound, you know? Mm. Deep, you know, and don't kick my ass, Lars, or anything like that, you know, because I say this, but especially on the uh, live version, it's just this tremendous just a huge sound wide deep everything's going the yeah. double bass you know and it's it loses a little bit of its almost campy cheesiness of it you know mm. it's not loose enough it's still a good song don't get me wrong yeah yeah giant spaces in the chords that are played at the start like an old elvis song or something you know yeah. huge pauses in between uh like a jailhouse rock sort of thing and yeah the, the band revel in this and what why why do you think they just combined two songs and did it as a release why did they do that i you know I, i've been thinking about this 
and I thought, okay, Last Caress kind of comes from an earlier earlier album. You know, Earth AD was kind of like on its, it kind of stands on its own. It's just kind of an odd album in a way. And I thought, you know, did somebody say to them, you know, did the band get together and say, okay, they fought, two guys voted for, for Last Caress and two guys voted for Green Hell, <laughs> you know? But I think if you listen to Earth AD, the, the, the Misfits album, the best song on there is Death Come Ripping. And that would have been perfect for Lars. He has that kind of guttural voice. Even the drumming tracks, all of that would have fit really well with the guys in Metallica's town, you know, and the way they play, double basses. And I, I often wonder why they picked Green Hell. It's just a, I hate to say it, it's a throwaway song in its own way. Mm. You know, that, and, and then here's where Danzig's probably going to look me up and try to kick my ass. Is, uh, and feel free, Glenn, if you're out there, just send me an Evite. But uh, I've always felt, you know, Green Hell and Earth AD was kind of this album that they put out maybe to try to be relevant in the changing sounds of punk. Mm. Uh, punk was getting faster. It was was getting even more unintelligible with lyrics. Uh, thrash was where at that at that time, and I kind of wondered if that they did that to sort of stay relevant in a way maybe that Metallica did, you know, the cover of the, the covers and the green hell cover just to kind of stay you know relevant and show their street cred i don't i don't know yeah i, I don't mind green hell actually it's definitely grown on me I, I i agree that the um, his singing in the original misfit song is unintelligible i have no idea what he's saying and this I, one and the vocal rhythms the delivery i think of green hell in the chorus is pretty cool and I've not really heard Metallica inhabit that too much. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Highway Star in the sort of trundle of the, the root note going forward. But yeah. as, as for why the songs are together, I, I, don't, I don't really know either. I mean, it, you know, it's fine. It's kind of a nice sort of platter of more misfits. They're just a big fan of this band, like Mohead, like, you know, they're, they're happy, like Budgie. They're one of those bands for Metallica. Yeah, it, you know, it could have been something as simple as two songs that had the same chord structure, and it was easy to segue from one into the other. You know, like, uh, you know, like Louie Louie and Wild Thing or something like that, you know. Yeah. Logically, they make no sense, but they're easy to to string together without a whole lot of, you know, it's, you could just keep the same chord structure going and just change the syncopation in the words. Yeah, yeah. You know? Talking about uh, accurately uh, comping someone, we have Run to the Hills at the end, the sort of band playing yeah. that garbled, discordant, out-of-key outro. Yeah, I haven't figured that out. No. <laughs> But, <laughs> Why is that there? I mean, it's fine, but... I don't know. Because yeah. you think the song's done. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the chorus coming in, you're going, well, that's really... Okay. <laughs> you, know, you have to expect... The, you, know, you expect their own version of Eddie to pop out. You know? Sure. Walk down the stage. Are you, are you, a, big are you a big Are you a big Maiden fan? Uh, I like him. Mm. Uh, you know, it was... Yeah, I like him. I'm not a huge fan, but they're, they're okay. I was more of a Judas Priest kind of guy. Mm. Uh, yeah, I I, I kind of dug their sound a little more. I, yeah. I, then I ended up getting into like King Diamond, okay. uh, who who oddly enough lives like a mile away from me. Right, uh, and he doesn't live in a castle. That's what's weird. I always thought he would live in like this big castle. It, it was a little house. Uh, I have to expect him to see him mowing the lawn in Bermuda shorts. Uh, got into King Diamond. Some of the black, not the early metal. Not so much the true black metal, like mm. uh, Baphomet and that. I, yeah, that was a little too much. 
King Diamond was fun, super campy. And I guess he should be remembered as well in terms of maybe why did they pick this music, pick this band. It was Cliff himself who originally got Metallica into the Misfits. Oh, really? Yeah. While uh, while driving around, apparently Burton would commandeer the tape player and play the Misfits non-stop. Eventually, the rest of Metallica <laughs> got into the band. <laughs> they gave in. <laughs> Cliff, man, yeah. he was just putting on Leonard Skinner. You know, he was just putting on some uh, some complex shit. Like playlist. That's funny. Maybe in a, in a sense, it's a sort of you know a tribute, a uh, continuation of uh, Cliff Burton's taste. And uh, yeah, all all in all, I definitely enjoy this pairing. And the more I've listened to this song, the more it's grown on me. And I enjoy what Metallica do with the material. Yeah, I mean they do. That's the thing about Metallica is they are they are so tight, and not just tight, but the syncopation's always right. The synchronization's always right. You know, it's kind of like the old James Brown thing where, man, if you missed a note, you got docked your pay, you know. Hmm. And I feel like maybe that's what those guys do is they tell each other, you know, you miss a, you miss a beat tonight, you know, you don't get paid. That's how they play. Like, they're not going to get paid if they mess it up. Right. And I, I enjoy that about it. Yeah, yeah. And listening back to the original as well of Last Caress, uh, the vocals are far more warbly, far more echoey, far more haunting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the most part, James here is a bit more resolute melodically. And the whole thing, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a weird reference, but to me, it has a sort of, uh, there was a certain type of punk music that would be on the Tony Hawk skateboard video games. And it kind of has that anthemic quality to it that I really like. And it just sort of speeds up at will. And, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people have heard this track on, on Gary Jink and Beyond. And they played it a hell of a lot. But they haven't played it sort of together a lot. It's quite weird. There's quite a dissonance between. So um, Green Hell's actually been played 11 times. Uh, July 21st, 1989 was the first one in East Rutherford, New Jersey. It was last performed December 9th, 2011 in San Francisco. And then Last Caress was performed 803 times. Yeah, that's what's interesting. Because that song lives on. I think that song lives on for both bands. But... You know, here again, Green Hell doesn't. Yeah. You know, that that's what, you know, even if you look at, like, iTunes, that's, Last Caress is the most popular Misfit song. Right. You know, it, it, it's not Hollywood Babylon or She or, uh, you know, any of the Don't Die My Darling, yep. yeah. Yeah. And I think I've actually been saying the wrong name for a long time here. I, I think I kept saying Lars when I met James. <laughs> but you can edit that out. Just It's all good. It's all good, yeah. yeah. We, can do, we can do that in post. Uh, yeah. They 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 first played Last Caress uh, February thirteenth, nineteen eighty seven, in Gothenburg, Sweden. They last played it uh, this year, just about a month ago at the time of us recording this, May eleventh, twenty eleven, in Helsinki, Finland. And I guess Last Caress, it has a great function in the set, doesn't it? A slow, upbeat song, an injection of energy, maybe later in the set. Yeah, I think I think it's got it's it's got the upward energy, you know, versus. It's still a na- it's still a nasty song, no mm. doubt about it. Mm. But it's got, like you say, it's got more of a positive chord structure. It's more of a positive sound. It's just a fun song, you know. It's a fun song to play. Probably, it's a fun song to just jump around and thrash. And you know, I don't do that anymore because I probably die of a heart attack. But sure. yeah, I mean that's it's just a fun song. And uh, you know, lyrically, 
it might become even more fun for, for a certain predilection because if you listen to what's being said, especially in Last Caress, I've got something to say, something to say, I killed your baby today, uh, I yep. raped your mother today is also invoked, yep. sweet lovely death, I killed your baby today. Uh, it's quite a, a, a dance macabre that James paints. And it's, and it's funny, those songs, you know, the, the earlier songs I was talking about, the, the, the tragedy songs from the 60s, it's kind mm. of interesting because those, in those, the, the, the baby, if you will, you, the, you know, that could have been their, it was usually their girlfriend. It's always the girlfriend, you know, they could never get her out of the car in time, and she gets hit by the train. Uh, there, you've got this sort of deus ex machina where the gods come in and it's strictly just fate that kills them. Whereas... You know, Danzig and, and when he writes this song, if those guys write it, it, it becomes more of a, I'm going to do it. You know, it's not Satan doing this, it's me. And that's why I kind of always thought he was kind of Elvis with meat cleaver. Was he sort of had that, you know, he took what was in essence a 60s, almost like a 60s feel pop song, but darkened it just through the lyrics. But sang it in the same way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's exuberant when he's delivering some of this stuff. Um, you know, come sweet death, one last caress. And green hell is slightly more oblique. Um, but again, we're all going to burn in hell, green hell, like every hell but kind of green. And just yeah. a lot of sort of barked instruction uh, that adheres to close inspection. You know, the, the, I've, I've looked at the lyrics and... I'm, I try to make sense of them, and that's my problem. I shouldn't make sense of them. I mean, you know, uh, you know, it, it's one of those songs where I, actually we didn't even care about the lyrics when it came out. Uh, mm. We just basically skated to it. We knew it was fast yeah. and angry and unintelligible, and it was really good to skate to. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what, what I started with. And then, you know, I actually started with that album and then went backwards, more or less, and, and started listening to what was what has sort of endured as a misfit sound that that uh, that Hollywood 50s Hollywood vampire type sound and I mean what would you recommend then as a misfits fan as a good album as a starting point um, I tell you you know I am a big fan of the collections okay. you know rather than you know rather than piece part it here and there just start with the collection album and uh, I think there's a second one too. And I would, you know, you're going to find one you like, find one you don't like. Then sketch out, you know, go to the, uh, put a sort of the second level of albums from there. I would actually also go to Danzig's first couple of albums, uh, solo. Well, actually, before that, he had Sam Hayden. I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but that's how he pronounced it. Uh, those albums had sort of a misfits carryover from the earlier part. Uh, some of those songs actually were on one or two albums run one or two songs were on earlier albums but he formed Sam Hain after uh, leaving Original Misfits and then his first uh, album under Danzig which we all know from the Cow Skull the Ram Skull that's a really good album too that has that he, there he takes it in a really dark blues uh, dark blues style and it's great. He's got a very creepy Southern Gothic. Uh, you know, he really uses his voice more. It's not fast. Uh, the, the the backing band is really heavy and really good, but it's not it's not punk anymore. It's really he's taking blues and 
I want to say electrified it, but he's uh, he's certainly made it darker and heavier. And the best blues is always dark, like Mambo. You know, all in all, any closing thoughts on the Greenhound Last Caress? No, I think I think it was really great of them to do that. Whether mm. it was a cynical ploy by their record company, uh, or them just really wanting to do it, uh, I like the fact that they did it. They they really did kind of go out on a limb, moving that way, and they did make it their own. Uh, especially the live version, I think of Last Caress. They made it their own. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge, a huge sound coming out of that. So, I mean, I I definitely applaud them for doing that. Um, I'd like to actually see them do maybe a couple of more. I mean, they could probably put out their own Misfits album. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be cool uh, if they did that, yeah. Yeah, you know, maybe strip down their own sound, which might be harder for them. Uh, you know, or they get together with the Misfits, have a battle with the bands, and then, mm. you know, I don't know, a wrestling match afterwards. Fire, uh, yeah, good idea. That'd be awesome. A Ryan Festival 2019 co-headline. That, that, could, that could be good, that could be good. I've been using the complete illustrated history to Metallica as kind of my Bible as I've been doing the contextual research. It's a, a fantastic book full of awesome um, photos and biographical information there. But um, it's not, you know, it's one of many books that you've written, isn't it? Going onto your website, you've, you've written, you know, countless editions on, on so many classic bands. Yeah, I think I'm up to 69 at this point. Wow. I, I've actually had three or four out in the last month, more or less. Uh, Hit the Lights, which is our early history of thrash, which we'll enter into what we're talking about, I suppose. Um, um, a Motorhead book, uh, a Rush book called Album by Album, wow. where I, I got a bunch of people together and we uh, I, I commandeer sort of a discussion between two people per studio album. That was kind of cool. Mm. And I'm working on the second uh, edition of this uh, trilogy on thrash, Timeline and Quotes, uh, format uh, that'll cover off 83 to uh 86 but uh in terms of metallica there was there was the one illustrated history and then that thing just got uh updated as a soft cover with a few extra pages um just uh, a few months ago as well yeah it's it's a fantastic edition i want to reiterate that i urge people to check it out like one of the beauty uh, of metallica there's such a giant band there are so many kind of illustrated editions out there but this is definitely the the best one i found and i'm going to ask all the guests this in general terms martin i mean metallica as a band for you before you were writing about them how did what were your first memories of discovering them Boy, first memories was getting um, Kill 'Em All home, and uh, me and my partner in crime, uh, a buddy named Forrest Hoop, you know, we were the two, you know, super knowledgeable metalheads in our small town in BC. Um, you know, we put it on and loved it, but we're sort of confused about it. it I, I remember it came out a nine out of ten. It was not a ten out of ten. There were right. still ten or so records we liked better because. It was it was very interesting. We could tell it was a new kind of music. Um, it, you know, this this sort of sped up hyper new wave of British heavy metal, but not really. A little more steely, a little more shouty and angry. 
and uh, and that we didn't quite like that about it but uh, but I also remember that it just like was riff after riff after riff the production was amazing the playing was super tight so it was uh, it was a band that definitely threw us for a loop um, you know as I say we were 20 uh, and I just remember um, it just being uh, you know we were sure that this was a slightly different new kind of heavy metal at the time Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm quite jealous, actually, Martin, because you got to experience Metallica essentially in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I myself, I, I was 13, 14 in 2005 when I discovered them. Right. So, so many, yeah. so, much, so much of the history, you know, the, the ultimate history had been written to a certain extent. And I was kind of following it like as, as a fan of Metallica. I mean, they've had such a varied and wild career. It must have been quite crazy to really trace their history as it went on. Yeah, I mean, I do remember um, almost, you know, uh, Ride the Lightning almost being one of the greatest, our favorite albums of all time on that, because it was such an improvement over Kill 'Em All. And then Master was sort of Ride Part 2, and that was amazing. So they they were one of our favorite bands uh, in the late 80s, although granted, you know, tastes were uh, expanding beyond uh, just being young, angry metalheads. Um, But yeah, then they changed a lot. You know, I I liked the next one. I was not so thrilled with uh, Black album i kind of figured it was their uh judas priest british steel where they dumbed it down and slowed it down (laughs) i kind of wanted them to slow it down and 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 even to an extent dumb it down a little because some of my favorite songs were those uh fairly commercial songs off the earlier albums but i found it too slow Mm. uh slow and sluggish and then load and reload i wasn't quite on board for those and then St. Anger was a little odd, but now I think they're totally back. I, I, I totally love the last two albums. Yeah, I agree, actually. Yeah, I was listening to Death Magnetic quite a bit today, actually. It's a fantastic release, uh, as, as is Hardwired. But we're, um, you know, this is Alpha Metallica. We're going, we're going song by song here. You know, we're on, we're on track five now, so we're very early into our, into our mix. And you, hey. were, you were talking earlier about sort of, you know, how you thought it was quite, quite different, quite, quite a new idea for metal. And we get to the first cover. Uh, Metallica have done tons and tons of covers over their career. They kind of collected into Garage Inc but this was actually a b-side originally for creeping death this being am i evil like i mean i'm not too familiar martin i know you're, you're quite an authority on on this sort of music um with diamond head like i mean they're, they're a huge influence on metallica and bands of this ilk weren't they yes i mean metallica were just voracious music fans but they uh you know completely latched on to the new wave of british heavy metal as as all of us did at that time because this was this was the first metal that was super proud to be metal almost every record turned out metal you weren't you weren't disappointed when you came back from the record store with a record with you know five long-haired guys on it and it turned out to be ario speedwagon or something (laughs) like that um you know basically um they were really into this stuff and and it's very interesting that uh, okay so first of all metallica as they as they start playing they they uh they play a lot of covers and they do play basically new wave of british heavy metal covers and and the band most represented is diamond head and they would go on to as you quite correctly uh, stated this is their first you know official uh release of a cover and it's it is a b-side to creeping death but you know then they eventually made the covers ep and that had uh, helpless on it i believe diamond head right yeah and, um, and the prince yeah yeah they covered the prince i don't think they put prince on garage days no 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 i think i don't think not yeah garage inc yeah Mm -hmm. um so so you know they ascend they eventually went on to uh you know record officially a lot of these diamond head songs what i find interesting about them covering diamond head is there's this there's this um sort of uh idea that lars really knew 
the quality new wave of British heavy metal in terms of songwriting when he saw it. Diamond Head was not a showy band. Um, these songs were not particularly well arranged. They were maybe even too long, but he could tell that Diamond Head were diamonds in the rough, more or less, and uh, and realized good songwriting when he saw it. And, you know, over there in the in the UK, I mean, basically, um, Diamond Head were being touted as as the next Led Zeppelin, one of those mm. kinds of bands. They were They were considered to be you know, much better than everybody else, a little exalted, a little superstar. And the second album was even more epic and less metal. And then the next one was even more almost almost like progressive metal. Hmm. Um, so so they had these bigger aspirations, which really made sense with Lars, because, you know, Lars was the type of guy who who would, you know, who obviously just just basically is a super talented guy. So so he knew talent when he saw it. And he actually went over to the UK and and tracked those guys down and bounded in yeah. there as a short 16-year-old and ended up following them around on mm -hmm. tour and sleeping on uh, his, you know, Brian's parents' couch and became yeah. fast friends, um, you know, and, and just basically said, we're going to be the biggest band in the world. We love you guys. We yeah. play your songs and, and all that kind of thing, right? So, um, so basically, he keyed right in on this band, although, you know, he loved, you know, I'm not going to say dozens because there weren't dozens, but he, he he liked a couple of dozen other new wave of British heavy metal album, uh, bands with albums. Maybe there are more than a couple dozen without albums. Of course, there are. Um, but um, no, this was a, this was a really good choice um, for them. And um, and if I may sort of delve into the song a little bit, um, you know, the the interesting thing about this song is, OK, so you know how I, I mentioned earlier that Kill 'Em All is, uh, it, you know, we noticed it was money riffs. Uh, mm. Phil, Phil from Pantera talks about this, how we wanted to create a band where every every riff was a money riff, that, mm. that you just love the riff. And that's kind of what Kill 'Em All was. It was just cool riff after riff after yep. riff stacked up in a row. Um but it wasn't particularly always super fast and thrashy. Um, there were songs that grooved at a pace like Am I Evil? And if you look at Am I Evil, it is almost put together like a song uh, like Metallica would do even then, and they've even returned to even now, meaning that it's a long song. It's got it's got a groovy mid mid paced you know grinding heavy metal groove, but it also even has a fast bit thrown in. Mm. Um, so it it has a thrashy bit, and I put that in quotes because you know nobody really from the new wave of British heavy metal thrashed, especially Diamond Head. They were not thrashy at all. Mm. They didn't even have a thrashy vocal. They had a pretty clean vocal on top. Um, but when you notice Metallica play it um, to to use as this B side, they actually take that fast part and and make it more of a palm muted thrash um so so they're they're even finding within diamond head a place to uh explore thrash um now the other thing about diamond head that's interesting you know i i've often posited that <clears throat> one of the big things about thrash music besides double bass and speed and palm muted and real machine gun riffs and a thrashy vocal and all that is that um you know, uh, melody wise, it's it's essentially doom music sped up. I mean, mm -hmm. we might even say there's certain songs throughout Black Sabbath that you could call the first thrash songs, maybe a symptom of the universe or even paranoid in a very rudimentary way. Right. Um, but uh, Diamond Head were were they're from Birmingham, first of all, and they they have that they have that uh, doomy element. And this song is totally doomy. This is a this is basically a doom song. And Metallica, you know, they had tons and tons of doom riffs uh, throughout throughout their career, except usually they play, played them faster and tighter and less stoner. Um, mm. So Am I Evil has the doom thing. It has the fast bit. It's a long song. 
Um, the lyrics are pretty cool too. The lyrics are sort of about this guy whose mom gets burned yeah. as a, a witch, and he wonders if he's evil himself. Yeah. And then there's these strange mentions of twenty-seven and double dozen. It's right. almost he went out and killed twenty-seven people or something. I don't know. Um, but but they're very kind of oblique and abstract lyrics. But but they are cool lyrics, and they're and they're quite poetic in the way that that Sean. Uh, I, I assume it's Sean who wrote the lyrics. Um, put 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 them together. So um, it's got all these elements that you would you would like in a in a Metallica song and and one one other thing I'd like to just mention um, you know the idea of Metallica covering Diamond Head in 1984 from a from an album from 1980 I believe it is mm-hmm. um, it it's it's something that uh, that really like a band of our tribe would do and a band of our tribe the first one that did that really was iron maiden they were they were in there covering obscure metal that they loved that wasn't even all that particularly old so metallica doing this it's almost like picking up the baton from iron maiden with all their cool awesome covers uh they even heavied up songs that weren't that heavy or they they would take the heaviest song by skyhooks or jethro tull or golden earring or whatever and and make a heavy version of it right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so so that is a really cool thing thing about metallica here they're basically saying you know we're one of you uh we we love our metal so much we're even going to cover an obscure band because we're not doing this to make money we're doing this because we love metal and we want to show people great metal bands so they cover an obscure band from basically three or four years earlier um and they're they're just playing dj they're just saying hey man Check these guys out. We love them. You should love them too. Here's here's our cover of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the intro to this song as well. You effectively have a minute of uh, a slow build, isn't it? It does genuinely feel evil with the note choice and kind of the charging heraldic drums there and kind of the melody line playing against it. And, you know, I've, I've got to say, uh, Martin, I wasn't necessarily... I was aware of this song because obviously I was aware of um, Garage Days and stuff like this, but I wasn't aware necessarily of the original cover of it. I have since watched some fantastic renditions on YouTube of them playing it on the sort of like i mean it's funny actually you mentioned they're from birmingham i'm from birmingham as well myself uh, oh, originally cool. and they're from stourbridge which is um i used to go <laughs> I used to go for swimming lessons in stourbridge when i was a young <laughs> child so it's uh, kind of interesting to see that, that that place cropping up again but yeah and and you mentioned the money riff as well and i do i do sense that like especially in the quicker riff in the middle it has traces of me the quicker riff of seek and destroy kind of when 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 the song kind of kicks up in the tempo and kind of and kind of moves like that and it's that chug isn't it it's that pedal point it's kind of using that open e and moving the power chords on top of it and it's such a satisfying listen am i evil i think yes and just before we you know address that i mean you you bring up the intro which is interesting because that's all that uh, gustav holtz planets uh situation right um, so that's a that's a classical riff. So they're picking Diamond Head is picking a doomy classical riff from however many hundreds of years ago, and that is also a uh, an Iron Maiden thing with the Ides of March. You know these big dramatic intros to songs. Um, so that's a great way to pick up and Metallica again finding something that you know uh, you know obviously it's it's cooked into the Diamond Head song, but but they they love that idea too. It's it's just a great dramatic thing. Thrash is a big dramatic mu- music, and it's just a, a cool way to open up a song. But yeah, um, you're right. It, it is it is very seek and destroy later on. Uh, you know, Metallica. Uh, you know, I, I I would say they aren't a band where you feel lifts uh, being used in the songs from all the bands. They're not a band like that. I mean, everything they wrote was was essentially very very original. There's very very little that you feel. Ah, I kind of notice a part there or whatever. Because their whole their whole premise was to just be faster and heavier than what came before. They just seem to know. 
um, that that they were they were moving on from the new wave of British heavy metal and creating something uh, different. Um, but yeah, they 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 would find these songs that that um, you know don't necessarily have the, the obvious um, the obvious connection to what they're doing. Like they could have played Motorhead or Tank songs, right? Um, and it, and and it would have been a, a closer fit, or or more Maiden songs, or maybe well, not even really Angel Witch. Angel Witch actually sounds quite a bit like Diamond Head, um, but um, but no, this is just this almost this basically feels like a song that they could have written. Um, back then not certainly not now the length is there but right now they would have three times as many riffs into it i think it's a bit of a shortcoming of what they're doing now they're writing them too long and too full of riffs but but you could see them writing a song like this and putting it on one of those first three albums Mm -hmm, certainly and i i love the way that the intro kind of comes apart and you have the kind of guitar reinforcing the drums there and you know kind of the the whole kind of propulsive rhythm and then it comes apart slightly and you get another kind of you mentioned Holtz before that kind of classical inflection there with the legato with the kind of you know that classic kind of pull on pull off kind of thing and giving us a bit of space before we get into the main riff I mean um I wanted to ask you what like this song is famous you know I kind of I I tend to when I'm doing research YouTube's a great resource YouTube comments specifically just what are people saying about this song am I evil and one of the common threads I've seen is is the guitar solo like what what do you make it's a very long guitar solo towards the end Boy, you know, honestly, I, I can't remember uh, the story on the guitar solo. Right. So, so you're talking about Metallica's version of the guitar solo? Yeah, I, su- I suppose. I'm not quite sure if it's a note-by-note note thing. But, I mean, I guess we can talk more broadly about sort of what Kirk was doing in this kind of thrash era where it's not as kind of coherent and, and melodic, perhaps. It just kind of has that attack, doesn't it? No, yeah. I mean, Kirk, because uh, I can't picture this per- it, this exact solo in my right. head, but I know I know Kirk as a soloist, very strange soloist for thrash. I mean, he's mm. basically more from the Tony Iommi school, a lot of wah-wah and a lot of yeah. just, just kind of wandering around. He's got a very airy, abstract quality to him, you know, which is probably just one of the things, more of a subliminal thing that people loved about Metallica. They had so many, you know, strange little... Um, things where they were better than other people or different and and you put it all together um and it and it just made for a great band they they had these four distinct personalities so those were those were built up and and we learned about them through the press they they were clearly the best songwriters i mean when the exodus album finally came out you know people talk about oh what a great thrash classic and all that but it's it's eons behind in terms of songwriting versus uh where metallica were you know it's pretty much on par where metallica were with kill them all but by the time of ride the lightning i mean they were just mm. miles ahead of exodus and and no one was even coming close at that point i mean basically you know ride the lightning and master are well i i had a book out called uh, the top 500 heavy metal albums of all time which was taken from a huge poll and then i wrote about them master of puppets won top album of all time wow top heavy album of all time in that book so you know it's a beloved beloved record um but yeah i mean this this song really does sound like a song that they could have written it's it's got a lot of parts but not too many parts it's just it's just sensible and catchy all the way through Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and um, you mentioned the lyrics prior as well it has a fantastic opening couplet which kind of has a nice kind of sestina a nice twist to it so my mother was a bitch she was burned alive and it's kind of okay we're in sort of common heavy metal territory but i like thankless little bitch for the tears that i cried so this kind of sense of the kind of disenfranchised child with a supernatural mother it's just a very nice opening 
Yeah, the first uh, the first line is witch, not bitch, right? A witch. You said, you said oh, sorry. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Mother was a witch, thankless little bitch. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. My, my say there, but yeah, very, very. Yeah, important. yeah. It's it's odd. I I don't know a lot about what what the lyrics are about, other yeah. than this idea that this guy basically is wondering if he is evil because his mother was a witch. So so and then and then there's these the, there's these sort of vengeful. There's even some things where they're talking about the steel and the sword and stuff, where you yeah. think like it's it's almost like a more a historical like a viking slaughter of some sort uh, or something from back in time so it, it, it makes the song timeless it doesn't talk about my broken down cortina or anything like that in it no. right <laughs> no. so so you know it's uh it's definitely uh it's definitely a cool mystical weird weird thing and um you know and, and it fits with the whole the whole feel of diamond head they, they were kind of this epic band that did have this sort of mystical aura about them things that i wanted to do um going for obviously metallic got a lot of covers for garage inc etc is to try and get you know the bands they cover on as the guests for these particular episodes of course you know in this case we have we have yourself here and um it's great to have you on how, how are you doing today i'm i'm pretty good i'm i'm um i'm kind of busy right now mm. everything's kind of um a bit of a rush really i'm, I'm you know i'm um you may not know, uh, or you may know, I'm actually finally getting married to my lovely lady um, on the 30th of September of this year, and, and we're kind of trying to get everything done, and it's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> but it's a different story. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Congratulations, congratulations, and um, I believe you're you've been rehearsing this week. Are you going on tour soon? We're we're rehearsing for a new album. We're ah. we're, we're we're right in the middle of writing new songs for a new album. Um. And uh, I'm very, very happy. I'm very pleased with the way things are going right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a we've got the, a couple of tracks already um, in the can for uh, for a new single. Uh, quite excited about that because it'll be Blitzkrieg's first single since 1981. Wow! So um, we're look, we're looking forward to that. Okay, okay, excellent. And I mean, just before we get onto um, you know Blitzkrieg uh, as as the band, I just want to speak about um, yourself. I, I was reading a few interviews with you, and one of the things that kept coming up was the Beatles were a massive influence on you early on, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it wasn't for the Beatles, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing mm. because when I first saw the Beatles back in in the '60s, I thought that's what I want to do. Um, and it was really the Beatles that made me decided that, that, that I wanted to be part of a band. Mm. Um, and, you know, after that, um, influences came, you know, in different guises. Uh, Mark Boland of T-Rex. Of course. Um, I was massively influenced by him for the kind of lyrics that I write. Um, you know, telling stories rather than just writing the lyric that works. A, a lot of bands just take a, take a piece of music and write a, a lyric that works. I like to write a story, uh, and that comes from Mark Ball. And Mark always used to write stories in the early days. Yeah, okay, maybe when he got a bit a bit later in the career, stuff like Metal Guru or whatever, 
it's it is a story, but you have to know Mark Boland to understand what the story is about. Because it seems like it's nonsense lyric, but it is actually isn't. Mm-hmm. It does tell us. Mm-hmm. Um, showman side of me comes from Alice Cooper, right. hugely influenced by Alice. Um, and now I'm I'm honoured to be actually playing Alice in a stage show called um, Alice Cooper's Nightmare. Oh, wow. um, that's crazy! <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. It's hard work. Yeah, it's very hard work. But um, you know, I'm really enjoying doing that right now. Um, and of course, the the kind of vocals that I that that I kind of have my trademark uh, area in were were hugely influenced by firstly Ian Gillan and then Rob Halford. Mm. Ian Gillan was unique and mm. still is. Um, although uh, I hope he wouldn't mind me saying this, he's not he, he he's not got the edge that he used to have. Right. Uh, he's obviously a lot older now, so his voice is a, a, has a, li- a little more rough edge on it than it used to have back in the day. But Ian, uh, Ian was always one I would call a pure note vocalist. Um, and uh, uh, as a vocal coach, that's what I would call it. It's pure note because every note he sings is absolutely pure. Mm. Um, Rob Halford is not a pure note singer. Um, he, he has... And a massive amount of range, but sometimes he falls slightly short of the note, but then peaks it in, and that's his style. So he'll sing, he might sing the note deliberately, slightly flat, then peak it into the note, which is a different technique whatsoever. Uh, it is a totally different technique, but it's not pure note singing. Mm-hmm. Um, but massive respect for for Rob Halford. Uh, I, I love the guy's voice. You just when you listen to it, it you, it's just it just takes you to a different dimension of singing, really. And it's it, it's uh, he's got a beautiful voice. I can't say anything else, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's the way it is. And and not to, not to get ahead of ourselves in the chronology, but I mean, just from a technical perspective, uh, quite interesting because obviously yourself's got a, got a great voice and your your analysis. What what do you make of James Hetfield's voice? Well, James is. is He's a, he's a, he's very very capable. Mm. Um, he sings in key, um, which is which is a good thing if you're yeah. a singer. Um, but but he has um, he has a style that has been imitated by many many people. Um, again, it's not pure note singing, but it's very very good. And uh, he's got like a gravel to his voice that really works for uh, for what he does. Metallica. Sounds great with that, um, you know. I mean, if if for some reason, uh, say, I got a telephone call from Metallica tomorrow and said, "Oh, would you come and do um, vocals on the next Metallica album?" Mm. Although I would be honoured and I would love to do it, it wouldn't be the same because I sing pure note, mm-hmm. same at the Ian Gillan, um, and it wouldn't be the same. And I dare say that uh, most Metallica fans would say, "Yeah, that's great, but it's not James Hetfield," and that would be quite right too. Yeah, no, of course. And um, we get we get to the song um, uh, Blitzkrieg. A- am I right in thinking this is the first song on the band's first demo tape? Uh, I believe it is. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. Mm. We did that demo back in 1980, um, mm. and the demo had Blitzkrieg, Inferno, and Armageddon. I cannot remember the order that they were in. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely on there. Um, and... At the time when we did that, um, a lot of people said that I sounded like Ozzy um, right. on on that particular track on that day. 
um, I had a sore throat, <laughs> so that may account for it. But um, I'm, you know, it's nice for people to say that because I've got a lot of respect for Ozzy Osbourne too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it was originally released as a B-side to the Buried Alive single. It was. It was. Yeah. Well, it, uh, B-side and double A-side, sure. if, if you like. Really, it was. It was classed as a double A-side single, um, and. Um, Originally, um, Armageddon was going to be the A side, um, with Blitzkrieg as the as the B side. Uh, Neat Records said it's a bit long. Armageddon's a little long uh, for a single, um, and it isn't commercial enough. Can you write a commercial song? So we did, um, and Buried Alive was it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, I mean that's that's basically what happened with uh, back in the day with that. And did you find, I mean, fan reaction was 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 strong towards because obviously you know it's a bit of a classic song, you know, it's a fantastic track. Was, was the reaction good early on when you were playing it in the early eighties? Yes, it, it was, um, but we weren't aware um, of the popularity that we actually had hmm. um, at the time. And you know, um, we got headhunted um, by Tommy Cannon, who at that time was the managing director of Carrera Records, which was Saxon's label. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got in touch with us. Uh, he bought a copy of the single from the local record store in Leicester, where we were based at the time. Um, he bought a copy of it and then got in touch with us um, and offered us a, an album deal and a, a UK tour with Saxon. Um, and that was basically the beginning of the end. It was kind of like a Beatles moment, if you like, you know. Right. Um, when you when you watch the the film Let It Be, mm-hmm. you can see the breakup of the Beatles happening happening right before your eyes. Yep. Um, and and that's exactly what was happening with Blitzkrieg at that time. We were, we had everybody wanting to sign the contract bar one, um, and we couldn't. We didn't know why, and it, it caused it, it caused stress in the band, and and uh, a few harsh words were said. Um, and and I said it was Jim Serrato, the guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sat down with Jim one night and I said, "Look, Jim, why are you reluctant to sign this contract?" And he said, "Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure that I actually want to do this." Right. So, fair enough. And I, I I said, "Well, that's an honest answer, um, and I appreciate that." And and so um, we decided. That if, if Jim wasn't going to be in the band, I really didn't want to take it any further at that time. So we decided to um, call it a halt. And our manager at the time phoned Carrera and and said, uh, thank you very much, but we've decided to decline your offer of a contract. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history, really. Yeah, yeah. and th- there was quite a break, wasn't there, after 81? You, you joined Satan during that time? Yep, um, uh, 81, I, um, I returned from Leicester back up to my native northeast because um, I'm a Durham lad. I was from Durham City. Right. Um, when, I'm, when we moved back up, um, I couldn't, we, we couldn't find a house in, 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 in Durham um, that was a reasonable price because house prices in Durham are, are just stupid, mm-hmm. you know. So we actually found a house in Washington where I, I still live to this day, not in the same house, but in the same town. Um, and um, we moved up here, and I found um, I found a, a, a couple of people, um, a band that needed a singer. So I got in touch with them and, and um, pilfered their guitar player. Um, I found a drummer, i.e. Gary Young, 
uh, from Avenger. Um, mm-hmm. I the phone to my old colleague from the Blitzkrieg days, Mike, now Mick Moore, um, and got him in. In short, what, we were, what I was doing was putting Avenger together. Um, and um, I even came up with, with the name Avenger uh, because what I wanted it to be was the next step from Blitzkrieg without it being Blitzkrieg. Mm-hmm. So I, I, didn't want, I didn't want the Blitzkrieg bird um, and everything that went with it. Um, this was to be something that was going to avenge the passing of Blitzkrieg. Right. Which was Avenger, and that was the, that was the reason for the name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, we got that together um, when that sort of folded and and went haywire. Um, but there's a story behind that as well. If you really want me to, I'll tell you. But not just at the moment. If you remind me later, I will. Right. After that was Satan, um, and uh, after I was fired from Satan, um, I managed a band called Lone Wolf for a while. Um, and I even sang on their single, and then after that, it was I, it was Blitzkrieg. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the song the song Blitzkrieg, you know, came to yeah. a lot of our listeners' attentions. Um, it was the B side to Creeping Death. It was it was one of the B sides. So, um, is it right that Lars Ulrich just just rang you and you didn't believe it was him when he was asking for permission? Yeah, I, I was out at the time. I, I, I think I was actually either rehearsing or in the recordings. I think it was in this recording studio, right? Um, recording the time of changes, mm-hmm. the album. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I was. I was in the studio, and I came out of the uh, the, the vocal booth, and the engineer said, "Oh, uh, Mandy's been on the telephone. Mandy's Mandy's my uh, well, will be in September. She'll be your wife. Right? Um, she's the mother of my children too. Mm-hmm. Uh, lovely." Anyway, I diversify slightly. I tend to do that, you know. No, uh, no, you'll, please. You'll... <laughs> um, and she, oh, the engineer said, Mandy's been on the telephone. So I said, all right, okay. Um, so I phoned her, and she said, I've had this guy on the telephone, um, uh, and he's basically uh, wanting to know, um, can he have permission to do one of your songs? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, she said, I've told, I've told him to give you a call later when you get back from the studio. So he's going to call back around quarter, the half past 10, quarter to 11. Um, so I said, okay, fair enough. So we finished off in the studio for the day and I got home and I had a cup of coffee um, and quarter to 11 came around and the telephone rang and Mandy answered the phone and now uh, she said, she said, yeah, it, 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 it. she said, he's uh, Lars, Lars Ulrich from Metallica. And I said, really? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh, um, you know, as you do. Um, and she gave me the phone and I, I, I said, hello. Hi, I'm Lars Ulrich from, from Metallica, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, okay. And, um, I, I, don't, I, I still didn't believe in it. Right, that right. Um, but I mean, obviously it was, it was a, an American accent that I was speaking to. Um, and it, 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 what basically reminded me that it actually was, um, was the fact that he said, oh, you may remember I sent you a demo tape a few years ago, um, the No Life Till Leather tape. And I said, yeah, I remember that. Um, and he said, yeah, it was, it was, you know, um, you're trying to get us a deal with, with Neat Records and Neat Records didn't want to know. So you pointed us in the direction of a few other record companies, which we checked out and we got we finished up getting a, a deal with Music for Nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another story. So, um so I knew that then I knew it was him, um, to cut a long, long story yeah. short. And I knew it was Lars. And we chatted for a while. Um, and um, the first of many chats, uh, to be honest. Right. 
and uh, we chatted for a while and we, we you know we talked about this and that and and whatever and um basically he said right well, well the, the the whole point is we we really want to do um an official cover of blitzkrieg I mean, I, I, I already knew that they'd been doing Blitzkrieg and Armageddon for years. Right. Um, so on, on, the, on the said copy um, of, of No Life to Leather that they sent me, if you flip the cassette player, if you flip the, flip the cassette over, on the other side is a live gig. And the live gig, they're playing Armageddon and Blitzkrieg on that. Mm-hmm. I think it was in San Francisco. So I said, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I don't mind at all. In fact, it's quite an honor that you, you, mm. you, you know, you want to do it and, and so on. Um, he said, can you, can you sort of, you know, um, give me a rundown on what the lyrics are? So I said, yeah. And so I dictated the lyrics to him, mm. which they still got wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they still got them wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but they did it. And it, it it's... Um, it was. It, it's nice, you know. When when somebody does a cover of your song, it's 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 nice. Um, it's nothing to do with 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 uh, you know. Oh, I, you know, I, I am so great that Metallica wanted to do a cover of my song. And not. It's nothing at all like that. It's mm-hmm. just. It felt more like a friend saying, "Can I do this?" Yeah, of course you can. Not a problem. You know, that's how it felt, um, and it still feels like that to this day. Um, and you know. That's that's how it came about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've seen I've seen I've read an interview I should say of you, and you say that quote, uh, although it isn't technically right musically or lyrically correct, it's very Metallica, and I think that's great because the way it should have been. I mean, what wh- what do you what do you make ultimately of their version of the song? Well, as I say, musically it's 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 slightly incorrect. Some of it because uh, when Jim used to write um, riffs and things. Um, they were never, they were never straightforward in that they were, you know, you would play a riff and then you would repeat it four times for a verse pattern. Right. It would always change on the third one, um, and it would be slightly different. And then the second, the next time round, it would, it may be different again. Then the then the chorus pattern has two different sections on it, one which goes on like a sword in a, in a forward pattern, and one which comes back on itself. They did, they missed all of that. They mm. just simply played. In the verse pattern, they play the pattern four times, uh, exactly the same, uh, and put the lyric over it. And then the, the chorus pattern, they play that pattern exactly the same for for, for um, the both lines, which is fine. Um, I mean, it's their version of it; They're, they've put their stamp on it, um, and I think that's great. And I I, I I I do like their version of it. It's got it's got uh, something about it that that um, that 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 has a different perspective on it. Again, the lyrics are, you know, can uh, can we escape the cruel night? No, it's not. It's knife. Right. <laughs> but, you know, other than that, uh, it has to be said that I think um, they've, what they've done is they've put, they've stayed as close to the original um, as as they could. They've done um, they've done a, a, a really good version of it, which a lot of people love and appreciate. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And I, I'm, I'm not going to stand stand here or sit here um, and say that it's wrong in any way whatsoever because they've done their version of it, and I think that's great and that's right. And um, it's Metallica; they've, yeah. they've made it. Hit. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. And I mean, did were you sent a copy? Do you remember when you first heard it? Or um, well, they, they sent me a copy of it. Um, 
they'd recorded it um, pretty much straight away. Um, I suspect they probably already had recorded it, to be honest, mm. before they had it. Um, but, you know, uh, to be at the, when you do a cover of someone's song, you don't have to ask permission at all. Right. Um, all you need to do, really, is just send a note to the, to the, um, the actual publishing company and inform them that, they, that you've done it. Um, it was a nice piece of courtesy that, that Lars actually took the time out to phone me to ask me if, if I minded. And I think that was really nice. Um, and that was, that was fine. But I, I do suspect that they probably had already recorded it um, prior to asking permission. Again, that is fine as well. I don't have a problem with that. I, w I fully understand deadlines and everything that goes with it. Um, and they will have had to have the single ready for release. Um, and so they'll have, they'll have done everything that they possibly do to make that happen. Um, and, and, and one of the final pieces of the jigsaw will have been asking permission um, in their permission, you know, in their ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's fine. Um, and uh, so they, they, they sent me a copy of it. Um, I, I must have got it within a week of the telephone call. Right. Um, so, you know, so that I get, it, it had to have been recorded and, and obviously on its way to the pressing plant and whatever. Um, and I was I was blown away with it. I thought this is really good. And even even with the sort of laughing at the end and, yeah. and, and you know and stuff, that's their thing. They've they've done that, and that's that's really cool. And I, I you know, what can I say? It's uh, it's nice. Yeah, yes. Yeah, no, definitely. And, I mean, they do deviate in, in subtler ways that obviously you as the composer would notice, like liking the riff and stuff. But, I mean, uh, majorly different as well is sort of the guitar solo um, and stuff like that, which I've got to say, um, Brian, I kind of prefer the original, you know, your guys' version. There's some great playing in the middle of that. Well, Jim, Jim Serotto was and still is to this day a great player. Mm. You know, and I do see him from time to time and we keep in touch. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, you know, he's a lovely guy and, uh, he, he actually taught, um, some licks and some ideas to my son, Alan, who now plays in, in Blitzkrieg. All right. And, uh, you know, Jim is, a, he's a, he's a great guy, but what a lead player. And, mm. you know, the original lead guitar solo on Blitzkrieg really to this day sends a shiver up my back because it is so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, Kirk did what he does, but yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. And um, you mentioned before, we don't need to get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of it. You mentioned before, it wasn't the first or last time you spoke to Lars. So w would he call you from time to time? He's, he's called me a couple of times. He, um, I, I, whenever Blitzkrieg does an album, we always make sure that he gets a copy of it. And he'll, oh, right. He'll send me a copy of... of you know, this is the, the latest Metallica offering. What do you, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 uh, very early on, we kind of agreed with each other that we would always tell the truth. Because um, mm. when we when we first sent copies to each other of, of different things, um, you know, we said I said, "Well, do you want me to be honest or 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 nice?" You know, right. yeah. he said, "I always want you to be honest." Uh, and I said the same thing to him. Well, you know, when we send you a Blitzkrieg album, be honest about it. Tell us what you really think. And and we have done for years. Um, and we've we've done that. And he was a little upset with my opinion of St. Anger, but right. he took on what I said. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, that if you can't be honest, really, 
then there's no point, mm. you know. And it, it has to be said that honesty is not about being nasty to someone. It's it's giving them an, an honest opinion, in your, in your opinion, um, what it sounds like or how it could have been better, perhaps. Uh, it's not for me to say, uh, oh, the new Metallica album is, it could have been better if they'd done this. I, I would never do that. I, I just simply make an opinion on what they have actually done, what they, not what they could have done, you know, if, mm-hmm. if, you, if, if you follow yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think my main criticism, uh, I'm not going to go through it album by album, sure. but the, my main criticism of St. Anger um, was that it lacked, in my opinion, um, the, the the big drum sound of the Black Album, which mm. I thought was the best thing that I'd ever heard from Metallica. And I told Lars that, and I said, you know, the Black Album was awesome in every detail. The songs were well constructed and written. All of every every instrument was delivered with absolute total panache and um, you know amazing clarity mm-hmm. and everything the mix everything was just superb on that album um then what was he playing on the neck on, on st anger biscuit tins right maybe I, I i but that was my opinion at, at that time and he took it on board and that was fair enough i guess you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's fair, fair enough yeah yeah and it was good to see that um you know you, you return the favor and you covered seek and destroy well, yeah, I mean, I'd wanted to do a Metallica song um, for years it, 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 as a mark of respect and returning the favour. Um, and we just never had the chance to do it. We'd, we'd, we'd never got round to doing it for one reason or another. Um, but then um, on the on the um, Back From Hell album, mm. we a bass player at the time was Bill, um, and he was actually in a Metallica uh, tribute band. Um, so he already knew it and it was a case of saying, shall we do this? Let's do this. I really want to do this. And we, we'd narrowed it down to the four horsemen or seek and destroy. Um, and we'd done versions of both in the studio and then we decided to go with seek and destroy. Right. Um, um, mainly I think because the, everybody in the band sort of thought that was probably the better of the two, um, of, of our versions of mm-hmm. it. To spend a little bit more time on for the four horsemen um, to get it sorted out and get it right because uh, it's a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we did seek and destroy, and we sent it, and Lars loved it. He, he really loved it. He thought we'd we we'd blitzkrieged it right. basically. You know, if, if if that is a phrase or a term that you well, can yeah. use, <laughs> uh, you know, we we uh, Metallica Metallicaed. Blitzkrieg. Yeah, we we we, we blitzkrieg seek and destroy, and and that's that's nice, you know, that is nice. Yeah, 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 no, completely. And I think yeah, the sort of the sense of returning the compliment is 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 excellent from you. And um, I saw as well an interview. I mean, I, I obviously don't want to delve too deep into this, but you, a lot of people are going to be thinking about the idea of the royalties because obviously mm-hmm. Blitzkrieg. It's one of Metallica's most famous covers. It's a song that they you know, continue really to play live. Um, they last played it in Mexico City in 2012. So, you know, it, it's still fair. They played it 80 times live as well. But you were saying that there's something to do, like kind of somewhere down the line, kind of been across wires or something. 
Well, I can't really say too much about sure. it because I've got I've got people working on it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, you know, somewhere down the line, something has happened that shouldn't have happened, perhaps. And I think um, I'm going to say straight off the bat here, it's not Metallica. Yeah. Okay, but I can't say any more than that right now. Right. Right. No, of course. Um, once it's all sorted out, I would be more than happy. Um, to come back and speak to you and give you the full story. But at this moment in time, I can't. Yeah, no, no, of course. And, I mean, in terms of the impact of Metallica covering this song, I mean, obviously, you're here today speaking about it. Is it something that comes up often? Is it something you speak about regularly? Well, yes, it is. I mean, to be honest, it's the, the most frequently asked question in an interview. What do you think of Metallica's cover version of Blitzkrieg? <laughs> yeah. You know, you've heard, you must have heard the phrase, if I had a pound for it. Right, right. It would certainly, in this case, I'd have been a millionaire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> With the amount of times that this question has been asked. But it's obvious that this question is going to be asked. Because, you know, not many people um, have had, not well, not many bands can boast that a band of, of Metallica statue, uh, statue, sort of statue rather, have done a cover of one of their songs. Mm. Um, that in itself is an honour, um, and uh, you know that that is that that's great. So obviously you're going to come across that question um, whenever someone interviews you for the first time. Probably, you know, if you were to in, um, possibly if you were to um, interview me in, in six months' time or a year, you probably wouldn't ask that question because you've already asked it. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's mainly when when you're being interviewed for the very first time by someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I get, you know, obviously the band adore this this genre of music and and, and bands like yourself, and it, and it's great that your song and then Am I Evil by Diamond Head, those are effectively the first two songs they put to wax as kind of you know people that they worshipped, wanted to pay dues to. Well, yeah, and I, you know, it's nice, and it, it it's it's um again as as I say, you know. They've done they've done several covers, but I mean you know ours being ours and Diamond Heads being the first two um, gives us that little edge, I guess, just that little edge um, that makes it probably more uh, that little bit more special. Because mm-hmm. um, you know if if I was going to put together um, you know like Ozzy did when Ozzy uh, a few years back did that uh, cover versions album, yeah, um, and he chose. Um, I can't remember how many songs, but say 12 songs, whatever it was. Um, if I was in that position, I would sort of think, oh, yeah, I'll do this and I'll do that. Uh, uh, the, obviously, the first two songs you think of are going to be probably the most important to you. And I think it's, a, it's an honor that Metallica looked at Diamond Head and Blitzkrieg in that, in that light. And I think that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you mention um, that album, Undercover by Ozzy, and because uh, I've actually listened to that quite a bit, and I know that Ozzy, like yourself, is a giant uh, Beatles fan. His cover of In My Life, I don't know if you've heard it, it's, it's quite a decent cover. Uh, it's a very good cover, but I think it's a little too slow. Sure. I, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, done his own, he's, he's done his own thing on it. Um, he's done his own, uh, I mean, of course, every, every artist doing a cover of, of, of a, um, a song, be it well-known or otherwise, um, reserves the right to sort of put their own stamp on it, um, I guess. When, when we did, um, when we, when we did uh, Seek and Destroy, 
I wanted to keep it as true to the original as possible and keep it at the same speed. Mm -hmm. But then you might do something else. You might do a different song by someone else and do it faster or slower. Um, and, and Ozzy did um, that song slower than the original, although it was a great version. Um, I would have liked it to have been a little bit faster because Ozzy's voice sounded great on it. Um, and I, I just, for me personally, I would have liked to have heard it at the same speed that the Beatles did it at. Mm -hmm. you know? But that's, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 entirely, entirely. Um, well, this has been this has been fantastic, Brian. You know, um, obviously, want to want to thank you again. And um, how how can people um find you know your music, Blitzkrieg or otherwise? Um, well, there's there's quite a few things out there. I mean, um, you know, uh, the 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 original uh, Avenger stuff that I did uh, is available on. Um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the well, they did a compilation album, I think, um, mm -hmm. a few years back. It's on there. The, uh, then there was the there was the neat compilations. There were several volumes of that stuff. Or you know, it's all it's all there. The back catalogue back catalogue of Blitzkrieg material, however, um, sadly, at this moment in time, is impossible to get. Right. Um, and you know. Uh, I did try to get uh, the Time of Changes album reissued since it was the 30th anniversary of, of, of its release. Mm. That proved to be impossible. It was kind of, you know, it was caught up in all sorts of, of, uh, of things. The record company that now owns it didn't want to release it. They didn't want to uh, do it themselves. Um, they wouldn't sell it back to me. They... they, they um, Said that if I wanted to license it, it would cost me something like twenty five thousand pounds to um, to to sort of license it. Then I would have to pay a certain amount of money um, from every sale, and mm -hmm. it just became obvious that it, it, that that really just wasn't going to happen. So what we did was we did the next best thing. Um, the obviously the the actual recording, uh, that particular recording. Is, is copyright and held by the record company that now owns it. But the songs, no. You can still you can still play the songs. So the next best thing was obviously you just go back into the studio and re-record it. Um, and so we did that. It would be a very time-consuming thing to do that with every Blitzkrieg album. And I'm still kind of hoping that at some point I'll be able to get the rest of them um, released in one form or another. Um, and we're still working on that. The irony of it is, though, that after we, we re-recorded and released A Time of Changes, the re-recorded re version, somebody else managed to persuade the record company to license it to them, and they released the original. Right. Bizarre. Yeah. It's like, they wouldn't give me it, but they gave it to someone else. It's like, come on. Oh, well, whatever. It's the music business for you. Yeah. You can't all find sense in it, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> no no of course and um i mean blitzkrieg i i'm just on your uh your facebook page now and i see you're playing nordic noise um in may 2018 so do you have lots of tour dates coming up in the future or well yeah we are i mean at the moment we've got nothing because um you know we we've kind of um separated um from our old record company we've, we've signed a new deal Mm -hmm. um, 
as I say, we've got a single due, that's due out sometime in October or November. Um, and, you know, we're going to be doing a new, a new album early next year. Um, and uh, part of the deal is that we would uh, do this festival, which we're looking forward to. Um, and the record company has got a team of people working on a tour for us. So um, everything's looking great. Uh, we'll, we'll get back into the swing of things next year. Um, I kind of had a year off this year for one thing or another. Um, I've been writing with Blitzkrieg. I've been writing with Satan. I've been working with Alice Cooper's Nightmare and planning a wedding. So I haven't exactly been idle, um, although it would seem that I've done nothing because I've not been in the you know out there playing gigs and things. Yeah. I have been doing other things. So um, you know, next year we're looking forward to get back out there and play, play some gigs as well. It's worth saying in the in in the song itself, like it has quite a lot of important history for Metallica. Um, this is um, what I'm going to read now comes from a book that is you know a bible when I'm doing this podcast. Birth School Metallica Death um, by Paul Brannigan and Ian Winwood, and Budgie were very very important. So Budgie were basically in the advert that got Dave Mustaine in the band. And it was the reason why Dave Mustaine joined. So this is from um, this is from the book quote: "The quest for a guitar player, meanwhile, sent Lars back to the musicians' wanted section of the by now invaluable The Recycler. This time, his advert specified that interested parties should be a fan of Iron Maiden, Motorhead, and Welsh power trio Budgie. It was the mention of the last band which led to a young guitarist from the recently dissolved Orange County group Panic to pick up the phone and introduce himself as the best guitar player you've ever heard. Of course, this is uh, Dave Mustaine." And, like, I love the fact that it was Budgie that got him in the band. <laughs> they, they were the kicker, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> not Maiden, not Motorhead, Budgie. No, no, fuck them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> who? <laughs> I, I think it was, I think that that was in Mick Wall's book as well. Right, or there yeah. was some, because, like, Lars was so obsessed with, like, the new wave of British heavy mm. metal. That I, I think it was that same anecdote. That, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. They, they were the kicker. Which, I mean, and, and they should be, because... Yeah. In, in, in their own right, they're kind of prog, but it's that it's that classic seventies rock element, you know. Yeah, I mean the so- the songs from nineteen seventy three, like the songs old, yeah. the songs like ten years before Metallica form. I, I couldn't believe how old it was. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they're going way back to the days of like Blue Cheer, and just the fact that they're from Wales, yeah. And, that's, and no one knows. Who they are. Yeah. <laughs> Not even Welsh people know, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I, remember, I, I was thinking to my dad actually, who was kind of like, uh, my dad would have been like thirteen at this time. He was born in the sixties, and like he's quite into this sort of music. And I, as I said, like, are you aware of Budgie? And he was like. Budgie, like it was like he'd never heard it for thirty-five years. He was like, he looked off in the distance. He was like, yeah, I think so. Like, you know, and it's it, which is get, you know, as I say, it's the beautiful thing about this band that they, you know, they pay respects. Like, I just had, yeah. um, you know, Eric Ross on from Blitzkrieg, um, to go over the song Blitzkrieg, and again, you know, they they weren't the biggest band, you know, and and it was kind yeah. of it was it was Lars putting it out there, and this song, as you say, most people discovered it Metallica's version through Garage Inc., but it yeah. was. 
uh, a B-side. It was uh, released in September 1988 as the B-side to Eye of the Beholder, which is um, which is great to see. So it, kind of dating it, we get Jason on here. These were kind of like the early recordings they did of him sort of thing. You know, it, it's on live shit, Binge and Purge. Um, you know, they, they, they played it on the say anger tours on the death magnetic tours at the start of the whiskey in the jar music video. You can hear a small clip of it being played. Like it's one of their real cover staples. I feel it's, it's one of the staples of, of the original group. And that's what I always loved about Metallica's covers was that they'd, they'd take something and just get that ratio right of not messing with it too much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they just put their own stamp on it, you know, and this one, I really feel they you know they ramp it up more than others because say you know you take some like tuesday's gone and you say you know the backstory behind it beautiful rendition but it doesn't it doesn't do much more you yeah. know than the original whereas this really you know, this changed you know this changed my perception of what a cover could be in a way while still being straight you mm. know as opposed to like a zapper-esque yeah. You know, or we'll piss about with it like Gongwood or something. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Kind of like breaking it down to its its parts and kind of just yeah, yeah. doing what you will, <laughs> reconstituting it. Yeah, this is very faithful, very exciting. I mean, let's get into the song. And the song, um, you know, it begins with that classic. Like, there's so many riffs that have that hammer on from five to seven, don't they? No, 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 no. Like that kind of almost <laughs> monomaniacal in the best possible way. The riff dominates the song. Uh, you know, and you you see a lot of it in Metallica's music. Like, like, a lot of elements of um, Bread Fan, I think especially you can see in the songs of Kill em All, you know, compositionally. Absolutely. It's such a driving riff. It's like a mm. granny. It, it wouldn't have been that out of place on that record, yeah. to be fair. You know, it wouldn't be, it oh, it's a slower one, but... Yeah, it, it just it carries the song, definitely. Uh, you know, Pole Driver, you know, the Black Sabbath uh, kind of a groove rock domain here. And yeah. w- one of the things that I like is the riff's quite simple in, in, in a good sort of way. I love the verses, though. It's got such an energy to it. Not only the melody, but the guitar underneath it. It's quite breakneck. It's James. James's vocals add such like an urgency mm. to it's more snapping, you know, which really fits with the riff. And Lars's drums are just so pounding, and it's it it really really adds so much to to the original composition, as it mm. were. Mm. You know? And I guess again, you know, uh, we're, you know, we're we're sort of um, we're, we're you you know sort of post Brexiters to a certain extent. So we appreciate that <laughs> that bread means money. Um, you know, a yeah. bread bread fan is you know it's all about um, you know being being. It's kind of ironic that multimillionaires would sing this song. But kind of, you know, yeah, the, the, you can't imagine it on that Rockefeller shit or yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the Rothschild Steege. You can't imagine <laughs> walking out to that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, not being controlled by money, um, yeah. but but also wanting to make money. And you know, James is the bread fan. Open up, you know, he just has such a like. Mm. If you listen to the original, it's it's very delicate in comparison to this one, and it has such a rush to it as well. And the song doesn't really have a chorus does it it's just that consistent kind of bread fan center that is that's my last note is where's the chorus yeah because there, there isn't there's there's verses and there's a beautiful breakdown section but there's there's no chorus and it doesn't need one no. you know what the fuck would the chorus be if yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some song time down the spread but i know i don't want to hear that you know? yeah it, it's kind of almost like you know metal to a certain extent and certainly this era like you don't need a chorus because you have a riff 
yeah, like you, you, you know yeah. you know what i mean like whereas, whereas a pop song wouldn't really have a guitar motif so they need something as a center this doesn't need it and yeah you mentioned the breakdown as well which mm-hmm. i mean it's it, i love how experimental it is like like you know and i love that it's just kind of it, a lot of songs a lot of rock songs can do quite a boring thing where the middle is the riff but it's quiet and the drums are building and it's gonna get that to the crescendo but in this it goes completely left field you kind of have a dissonant riff there but quite a nice quiet mood with some soloing it was the sort of it was about two minutes 45 and there's like a there's the driving riff and solo before that mm. but this breakdown section because in the original it's uh burke shelley singing yeah you know there's lyrics to it but they're just entirely replaced with kirk's solo melodies and the new melodies as well mm-hmm. it's, it's not even true to the original but this for me is the part of the song they just take it away into some other place it's more like a classical arrangement to me that yeah. part of the song and yeah. then just cut straight back into which would be the chorus the driving intro riff which mm. then again is it's just got more haste more more power and Lars's staccato double cymbal hits just to take it straight back into the end, and it's beautiful. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself, really. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 you know, it's it's a longer song. Like you'd be forgiven for hearing that intro riff, to thinking, oh, this is going to be, you know, kind of like a, a two minute kind of crash and grab. But you know, it's five minutes forty. So mm. it does have a bit of extension there. It doesn't outstay its welcome. I agree. You have the first solo you have is just kind of classic Kirk licks with the guitar. Mm-hmm. And, like, duh, duh, and then, you know, in the silence, he occupies it. Kind of a bit similar to, I guess, Shortest Straw, um, which kind of has an intro that has something similar to that. Uh, a solo, sorry. But and then, yeah, and then almost like astronomy, these long lines, these mm-hmm. bends, these. Uh, it has many dimensions for, for, for a power rock song from 1973. It's very multifaceted. Absolutely, I think in in that way it is kind of prog mm. in itself because it does, you know, it doesn't keep that. Just like you say, it could be a two and a half minute, three minute, you know, just straight rock metal song. But they do, and same with Budgie and with Metallica, they do hop between these compositions, you know, throughout songs. Yeah. And well, that's what makes them great. I think you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh god, yeah. And and lyrically as well. I was as we say, it's mostly about the bread fan. Seagull um, is is another sort of start of the verse. I, I, you know, very simple as well. Kind of um, holding to personal sovereignty is what they're going for in a lot of these lyrics. Seagull, yeah. give it all away. Stay a bird. Stay a man. Stay a ghost. Stay what you want to be. Which oh, yeah. is, you know, it's quite profound. Absolutely, you know, stay a ghost. That's it. All seeing, if you want to be, stay a man or mm. stay a ghost. It's yeah. it, it's extremely good. It is, it is, and um, yeah, I, I can't rave about this song more. Really, I, I, I'd always been aware of this track, and um, I remember when we were speaking quite a while ago, and I asked you what you wanted to do, and Bread Fan, that you said that pretty much instantly. I remember. Yeah, that's that certainly out of the out of the covers, and when you said B. You know, I yes. thought, and you'd said "Bleeding Me" was taken. Oh right, that, yes, <laughs> that would have been my choice for B. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I knew "Battery" was gone. So. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it, it's like it's like Christmas Day at an off license. Battery's always going to be gone, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I guess just a bit more about Bread Fan as well. Um, apparently, it's used in the video game Brutal Legend. Um, it's not a game that I've played myself. Um, looking at the cover, it looks a bit like a sort of guitar hero. It's a action adventure real-time strategy game that 
that, you know, has the voices of Lemmy, Rob Halford, Ozzy Osbourne in it as well. Um, so that sounds pretty cool, actually. I'll have to watch a few yeah. uh, Let's Plays. It's also, and I don't, this is one of those things that you read on Wikipedia, and like, someone just put this here. Apparent, but then again, it's like, it's so weird, maybe not. It's the introduction music used on a Brazilian sports TV show um, called Globo Esporte. So I, I, I can't really, maybe that main riff, you can sort of imagine it introducing some like Neymar goal or something. I, I, don't, I don't really know, um, potentially, but. Let's get onto the song, Rick. Like, Diamond Head for you, are they a band at all in your periphery, or is it more just like Metallica cover them? Uh, only through Metallica. I certainly tried at those early years when Metallica was covering out and putting a lot of these songs out to get into them. Obviously, it was more difficult because those albums weren't as easily available as some of the other ones. But, yeah, you know, they, they sound very new wave of, of oh, British yeah. heavy metal early Iron Maiden, the singer even kind of has a little bit of a Paul Diano sound. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but they, 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 they certainly don't age as well as some other songs, I don't think. No, no, that's definitely fair to say. I mean, they're hugely influential band for a band that's not really that well known. And, you know, I always say when we mention, I mentioned this a fourth time, they're from Stourbridge in England, which, you know, most people sort of shrug out where Stourbridge, little market town. I used, to, I used to go swimming with my with my dad and my brother when I was a child in Stourbridge. So it's odd to kind of have these memories and then think of Brian Tatler and co. But, uh, yeah, they're a cool band and they're from, like, the mid-70s. Like, you know, they really were uh, the forefathers in a way. You know, you speak about Metallica and, and covering songs there. It's such a great part of their lineage, isn't it, that they, they pay homage so well you know in such a plentiful supply there's so many bands they've turned people onto oh absolutely and i've bought a ton of albums and cassettes back in the day of bands that i've listened to once simply because metallica basically recommended them or, or put them on to me they they were very important in getting me into the misfits which became a lifelong mm. passion and some of that early punk stuff glenn danzig's from a town about 15 minutes from here so there was a lot of that early uh following music that metallica laid out the, the the path for yeah yeah i mean i myself i've been getting into discharge a hell of a lot recently just from the more i see cover check out the episode with dave that we did as well budgie always enjoying budgie and that was kind of compounded by metallica there um now the prince this is on garage inc as most people have discovered it but um it, it wasn't one of the songs they recorded specifically for the double disc in fact it was the b-side to the one single as well as the uh bonus track on the japanese pressing when justice for all which i wasn't aware of like when did you first hear it was it on garage inc was it prior or oh it was back in the day it was on a ba it was on a b-side of a harvester of sorrow release okay, cool. and i think it had been on some bootleg tapes that i might have had some access to um so it was a, a a song i took to immediately i think it's one of the best of the of their covers and maybe my favorite diamond head cover yeah, I completely agree. Definitely is one of the best of their covers. I mean, let's get into the song. Lars leaning, leaning us in with that hi-hat count. Into that breakneck riff. 
it really feels quite choked, doesn't it? It's full force. It's so affecting and powerful. It's great. It just rocks right off the bat, and it's that 5-7 area they love mm-hmm. to play in. Um, you know, a ton of songs that, that work off that general part of the neck, and it just goes from the beginning and starts right into the uh, solo, yep. which is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a little trivia here for you if you want to play a game. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how many solo? How many songs of original Metallica songs have the solo before the first verse? Wow. I'll give you a hint. It's between five and fifteen. Damn, damn. Oh man, um, that you put me on the spot there to really think of that. I mean, I mean, obviously there's kind of the ballads that that happens quite yep. a lot. And like, would you count them as solos? You sort of fade to black, one, etc. They're kind of extensively yes. pieces. I'm counting those. Yeah. Yep. Um, hmm, let's have a think. What else is between there? five and fifteen? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll go, I'll go around ten. There must be around that that number, right? Twelve. Very 12, good guess. 12. Including those ballads. I'll just throw a couple names yeah. out. Uh, no remorse. Yeah. Uh, I included trapped under ice is in there, which yeah. is a unique one. Um, and actually, most recently, both here comes revenge and am I savage have it. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely am I savage. Yeah. And uh, so, but it's but it's pretty rare. Ultimately. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. And you know, th- I mean, the solo itself, with Kirk playing, he's kind of building up in the edge of the song and then erupting into some real full force fireworks. You know, the whole shebang, tapping, squealing, and it's quite prolonged as well. It definitely goes on. It doesn't feel like a little intro lead break. It's like a proper solo unto itself. Great playing here from him, right? I love it. I love the and he follows the solo of the original pretty closely until the end. Yeah, the end of the original solo gets a little off. It doesn't sound like it follows as closely as Kirk's does, which uh-huh. maybe just because I like Kirk's better. But yeah, yeah. But, but no, you're right. Brian Tatler, that lead player, is an outstanding player in Diamond Head. Like you know, yeah. really ahead of his time in that as well. And then it kicks into another money riff. Down, 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 down. You know, using yep. the pedal point that a lot of metal bands will employ. But again, just mm-hmm. terrific. Yeah, absolutely. It's just one riff after another in this song, and it's again totally new wave of British heavy metal. The different parts and the and the pieces of the song that fit together, just a great riff all the way through. It is, it is, and you know, it just has this barreling momentum. I mean, you know, their version, Metallica's version, is two minutes shorter than Diamond Heads, so they really take off a lot. From what I gather, uh, comparing the pieces, um, they don't employ the harmony lines that we'll get into it again. That repeat in the Diamond Head version is kind of a a slower breakdown at the end as well of the original version um lyric wise what would you make of the prince that's uh, again very new wave of british heavy metal <laughs> yeah, about yeah. A guy selling his soul to the devil uh-huh. how many of every metal band from 75 to 90 probably has a song like yeah, that definitely so it's fun and it has one of my favorite moments first of all it has the the james whoa yeah, which yeah. doesn't do a ton of woes in his songs he really doesn't. no you're right so he follows that pretty closely in the um, chorus. And then, not to jump ahead a little bit, it has one of my favorite moments of any Metallica song. I call it my boner moment. It's after the breakdown, they bring back to the main riff, and he goes into the final verse, and he screams out that, I was born a foal! Mm. And it goes on. Just a great moment. You're in the car, the music's loud, and you just belt that out it's so much fun yeah yeah and narratively the progression of the song yeah it is the prince the prince of darkness as you say so the first verse is sort of the protagonist encountering him you know building him and the second verse is kind of talking about who he is as a person and, and what he wants to do as well the changes he wants to encounter and then the third is the fausty 
impact. You know, I don't care for heaven. Uh, don't you look for me to cry or burn in hell from the day I die. Like... Yeah, very kill them all, isn't it? And it's lyrical matter. Like you can see the influence so much in this song on so much of the band. Yeah, it really fits in well with that time period. The, the, even though it's recorded later, the the song and the and the material, like you said, fits in perfectly for those early kind of copy songs that they would do. Yeah, and and Diamond Head, you know, they straddled that in between water. You know, you would, I guess you would call them heavy metal, or they were kind of the progenitors of heavy metal, but they had these kind of classic rock affectations that the band take on in the cover. Like, I like after the chorus, I agree with you, I love that, oh, like, I love James singing that in the chorus, I think it's great. And um, when it goes back to Newstead, he gets a little moment with the bass playing. Yeah, and it's pretty much the only moment that you hear him. It's got that very, it was recorded during the early and justice for mm-hmm. all sessions with Mike Clink. And it's got that no bass sound except for that little doodle doo 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 loop, which is just a great little riff. That's it. I mean, um, the original, I don't know how much you've listened to it, but the bass is like a proper instrument in the original. It's really doing its own thing with the melodic lines. Absolutely. In the beginning, it actually leads the song a lot yeah. more than the, than the riff does in the beginning of the original. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a shame. I wonder if Jason would sit around saying, I can, I can play that. Yeah. And they just said, no, no, thanks. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, speaking of the original as well. So in the Metallica version, you know, we just, we get the drums, then we kick into this riff and it's really got a stranglehold on you. Whereas in the original, the riff's still there, but it's like an organ in the background. It feels a lot more yeah, spacious. Yeah. Yeah, never, you know, a lot of those early 70s, those 70 bands kind of have those lingering organs. They never really do it for me. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it pops up here and there in the song. And, and I think it's probably a good thing that Metallica didn't decide to add it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of, they are Metallicanize it. I always use that verb. And they're kind yeah. of stripping it down. You know, they are just kind of weaponizing the song a bit. And that wouldn't really make sense. And I can't really think of much organ in Metallica. I don't think it really work in that scheme. But no. um, but yeah, it's all the better for it. And then as the song pushes on, we kind of have another kind of riffy section after the second verse into more progressive territory, more Thin Lizzy Maiden territory. I, lo- I love the kind of harmonizing guitar lines. They really build up well with the drums charging underneath. Yeah, that great, that breakdown section. Mm-hmm. Again, very new wave of British heavy metal. Yeah. Slow it down a little bit. The original's actually got a lot of that keyboards. And if yeah. the original's actually almost a little, I want to say, dancey. Sure. It's, sure. it's got a weird, like, flow to it. Uh, Thankfully, again, Metallica just kind of plows through. Yeah. But then build it back up. New wave of British heavy metals. Uh-huh. Don't go back to that main riff. Go back to the guitar mini. I mean, you can't, you can't get better than that. And it's a great fun guitar mini to play it's just great yeah it is it is and you know metallica love guitar minis like as you say like you know we'll look at anything from you know master of puppets all the way up to the day that never comes and beyond that uh atlas rice has a huge yep. section of harmonizing in it like the, the guys love to play with that and um you know diamond head employed that as well and you, you know it, it's mad isn't it like they cover they cover a lot of bands on garage inc but there's only two bands that get covered four times diamond head and motorhead like you know the they clearly put these guys really as the vanguard of influence. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. I mean, I think they, the the song structure, I think comes more the unique song structure, the multiple parts, the breakdowns, that's more of the diamond heady Mm -hmm. slash maidenly type stuff. And then the more straightforward, almost punk element is, is motorhead. And And that's exactly what Metallica did so well was bring those two things together. And, uh, you know, and then after his section, we kind of get into another chorus here. And the song wraps up, you know, it's four minutes, 25. It's a real punch in, punch out, but it, but it's breathless. I don't think there's a note wasted. 
Absolutely not. I couldn't agree more. I think it's, again, one of the best covers they've done. And they, what they did to the original, they did shorten it. They pulled off out of the, the last part of the original has that main riff again, which is great. I love it. it but I guess it, in some sense, it could be a little overkill. And uh, they just decide, you know what, we're going to go out on that repeating riff that gets unresolved and just end it. And it, it really is kind of a cool, fun way to end it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's definitely one of their best. And just going to the Twitter now, at Metallica Pop, for some of your guys' feedback. Stan Drew says, just a B-side, no better. Doesn't compare well against their great covers, such as Bread Fans, Small Hours, and Turn the Page. I mean, I, I would disagree, personally. I'm sure you feel the same way. Absolutely. I, like I said, I think it's one of their best. Obviously, it's tough to compare with some of those other early songs, the Bread Fans. and yeah. But uh, it's it's absolutely awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's up there. It's definitely up there. I think I, I really like Die Die My Darling as well, if we're talking covers from them. Merciful Fate. It's kind of hard to compare that to The Prince because it's kind of five songs in one. But um, I, I've been really going on a Merciful Fate kick uh, recently as well. John Bradshaw saying, uh, fuck yes. Now that's Metallica. Uh, the demo version is just James on Lars on the Justice box set. Shows why they're so good. Have you heard that? I've not, not actually heard that. Yeah, and there's another one I think on the – I thought it was on the Master of Puppets Yeah, there's one with Cliff, set. isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, there's a Cliff one in there. I think it doesn't have the solo. But, yeah, I've listened to them. I don't. I wouldn't put them in my rotation, but it, they're, they're certainly fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. Michael Hampton saying on the Twitter, uh, fuck yeah, I was just telling some Metallica friends of mine not two days ago that I think this is my favourite Metallica cover, followed closely by Helpless and Breadfan. I may be partial, I have the single on the cassette from back in the day, it was the flip side of Eye of the Beholder, uh, hashtag old, he adds as well. Uh, Sean saying, love that song, wish Metallica would play it more at live gigs. Ralph saying, this is without a doubt my absolute favourite Metallica cover of all time, with Breadfan a close second. I remember the first time I heard this as a 12 year old, sometime in 1989, and just being completely blown away. It just shreds from top to bottom. Number one, uh, it's one of their freshest, fastest songs. Honestly, can you get any more metal than a song about making a deal with the devil? James just absolutely goes for it on vocals. I'm not sure uh, how he was ever able to sing again after recording this one. I love the rawness of the song due to the lack of production on it. Fucking amazing. This is Ralph's third tweet on the song. And I never curse on here for your information, Tom. I think Twitter needs to give more characters to discuss these songs. So, yeah. People are in agreement quite clearly that The Prince is absolutely one of the best. Like, I even remember, like, how this Spotify playlist just all Metallica songs that I'll just, you know, put on shuffle or whatever. And just listen, my girlfriend was sitting next to me and this came up on shuffle. And even her, which she's not into metal, she's kind of headbanging, you know what I mean? It, it's irresistible, isn't it, that intro? It's just so rocking. Yeah, the propulsive riff just keeps you, picks you up from the start, gets you through the entire song. It comes back and it's extremely catchy, that riff. They really, just amazing, amazing riff they wrote. It's been played 33 times. So it was debuted in 1982 in Anaheim, California. It was on March 14th. It was last played, uh, I believe it was the anniversary show, the 30th anniversary show, December 5th, 2011, San Francisco. I mean, it's not unlikely that he would come back on this or future tours, right? I'd love it. I mean, I would love to see it again. Uh, it was a amazing song to hear live. I was at the uh, shows they did in Philadelphia and New, New York where they did the Garage Inc. cover shows. Mm-hmm. Um, that was amazing to see, but yeah, I don't, I don't expect it to make the list at this point. I'd love it, but I'd be surprised. Okay. Um. And any, uh, any final thoughts on this tune? No, I just think it's very interesting that it comes out of those 1988, uh, 87, 80, or 88 sessions with Mike Klink yeah. as the as the quote producer, if you will, um, because it really kind of sounds like an And Justice for All recording. And I just always yeah. wondered if those songs continued would they have sounded any really different than they did at the end even if clink ended up being the producer i think the james and uh lars push to have the production the way it was on and justice for all would have probably overwhelmed anybody so it just fits in with that time from a, a sonics 
uh, stage, but it's just such a great catchy tune. Yeah, and you mentioned Clink there as well. It's it's odd, isn't it? He kind of had an incredible early career, Appetite, and then Justice, and then I think he co-produced Rust in Peace, and then he seems mm-hmm. to have sort of disappeared. You don't really hear about him anymore, do you? On big albums? No, and I don't. Honestly, I haven't followed closely enough to to see where these different producers no. end up. But uh, you know, that was unfortunately some time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he may have moved on to a, an adult life somewhere. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, I'm just on his Wikipedia now. And it doesn't look like he had, he produced the Sea Hags. I've listened a little bit to kind of like Rocky Sleaze Band or whatever. <laughs> Today's song then, obviously it's Boy Queen, a band that Metallica worship and, you know, a band that they showed that worship, showed that adoration by covering. What about yourself and Queen? Are you you a fan of the band? I mean, obviously everyone's a fan of Queen, but, you know, how do you sit with them? Yeah, I I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think everyone's a fan of Queen. I think if you like, if you like music, you're a fan of Queen, to be honest. But I like them, but I'm not the biggest fan. Like I, I, I've got, you know, I think the way you can like discern if you're a fan of something is how many like individual albums or sure. you've got, or how many like songs you know off the top of your head. I'm very much a kind of like you know, you know, the classic ones, the greatest hits stuff. I only ever, I think I've only ever had like one Queen album. I think I was like Night of the Opera was the only one I went out specifically to buy buy alone. Classic. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, which yeah, it's definitely a classic. And I, you know, I kind of like. Some stuff I think is incredible, some stuff not so much, but I, yeah, I, I don't think you can go wrong with them to be fair. No, no, definitely not. And that's why it was so surprising to me that my dad was so into Last Resort, because he's kind of the, you know, he's the archetypal Queen fan, really, that kind of 70s rock basis. So I was raised on a lot of these records and, you know, they went into so many different directions as well. I've been recently listened to an album that a lot of people consider anathema and one of their worst, Hot Space where they went all yeah. 80s and Hall and Oatsy, which I really fucking dig. It's a really good Have record. You seen the, um, there's, um, there's, so there's like a DVD, I think there is, of Milton Keynes show. It was around the time that they released Hot Fuss. Mm-hmm. Hot Fuss. What's it called? Oh, Hot, Hot, Hot Fuss is, is, uh, yeah. is Killers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killers, yeah, there we go. But, um, and, he, you know, Mercury, was, he seemed a little bit, kind of those like, like little extra bits and people going on about how the criticism of the album and saying that they're trying to be too R&B and that kind of thing. Right. I find it really, really interesting. So you just think like, you don't think of a queen as being this kind of like, you know, specifically genre band. It is, they are so diverse. And if they weren't, I don't think they'd be the band that they were really. So no. I just find it surprising that people, there was such a bite back to it at the time. It's it strange really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like all that kind of yacht rock, that kind of middle of the road, kind of California sun dapple kind it's of got idea. Its face. Yeah. I yeah. think, I think that kind of stuff is great. You know, it's, it, especially when it's like weather like this, like sunny in yeah. the middle of the, you know, it's you know perfect yeah yeah hot hot space is a good summer album and you know it has all four of them on the cover and i'm pretty sure queen are the only band in the history of music where all four members have written a number one single as well that might just be in the uk rather than us but they've all written giant songs 
and you know just just to get off hot space there's a song off that it's the penultimate song called cool cat that the bass player john deacon plays all the tracks obviously freddie sings david bowie was supposed to cut backing vocals on it he did under pressure but i think they cut it from this track but it's basically like the long lost great hall and oats song it's an unbelievable track if people have got like three minutes to spare go back and check that out but today's song stone cold crazy this is from 1974 this was by Queen, of course, uh, on Sheer Heart Attack, their third record. Apparently, it was played at pretty... It was never a single, but it was played at pretty much every show between 74 and 78. It actually goes back to Freddie's earlier band. They used to play it in a band called Wreckage in the late 60s. And I don't know about you, Borge, but to me, this feels real proto-thrash. Like, this feels like yeah. new wave of British heavy metal before there was even the crest of a wave. I completely agree, man. Yeah, I was um, I was talking to uh, talking to my fiance about it, uh, you know, going, oh yeah, I'm gonna go on a you know an Alphabetical podcast talk about Stone Cold Crazy. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh great, that's that's nice, uh, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> but uh, you know, but, what is that again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was explaining what you know, like well, the song's really proto metal. It's really I completely agree. I think there's like a lot of the the beat to it, the kind of like the chords, the the progressions it is very much a kind of like throwaway almost thrash song really before uh-huh. thrash was a thing i'd say definitely yeah. and it's i think it's probably more thrashy than anything around the mid 70s i think it's more punky as well when you listen to like something like you know sex sex pistols and this like what is the difference what was the difference between yeah. it really it's just you know and that was always in queen's dna like as i say i'm familiar with these early albums especially queen 2 they always had this kind of aggressive proggy flair um there's tracks people might know like ogre battle and um prophet song and i know i'm kind of pulling out weird queen songs out my ass here but if people go back and listen to those you can see a lot like of the deep cuts. yeah this is this, you know we're going in the, <laughs> we're going in the deep end of queen here but uh but yeah with stone cold crazy it's just got that kind of you know real quick real noty riff which very Brian May there's lots going on here there's not not a lot lot of hanging around and it makes perfect sense really for a Queen song to for for, for James and Co to cover doesn't it more than say Fat Bottom Girls or You're My Best Friend or those classics okay yeah I was I was thinking what what else what else would they have covered and it's hard to like I don't know maybe as they got older or something you think what what you know some of the more kind of freddie mercury show tunes or something like that yeah. but realistically yeah this this is this fits it it's basically a motorhead song essentially when you listen yeah. back to it but played by queen so yeah. i think i don't know i've had a bit of a weird relationship with it because sometimes i think yeah it's a great song other times i think it's when i don't listen to it i think i don't know does it sound like it's falling over itself a little bit is the riff a little bit too kind of like is there too much going in into it I but when you listen to it, it's yeah, it, it holds together. It is a great song. It, it it does, it does, and you know, Queen were always kind of outside of the lines of like a traditional rock and rock and roll band. Like you know, they weren't didn't have the tightness of the riff. They always stuffed things in with so many different movements and ideas. You know, kind of like what Metallica did there. And yeah. in terms of this as a Metallica piece, um, this obviously was eventually on Garage Inc. on the second disc, but originally was covered in 1990 uh, as part of a compilation album uh, for Electra's 40th anniversary. Um, it was then used as a B-side for Enter Sandman, which is really cool. And I don't know if you're aware, it actually won a Grammy. See, I, I, I think I read that somewhere. I, I wasn't aware of that. Metallica seemed to win Grammys randomly for some of the more yeah. random, obscure <laughs> songs. I had. Didn't they win one for, was it Bad Seed or something like that uh, as well? I think it was Carpe Diem Baby they won one for, so, yeah. yeah. Well, no, Better Than You. Sorry, it was Better Than You. Sorry, all, all the shitty go. reload just kind of yeah. leads into one for me, yeah. 
Yeah, I just don't, I don't really understand why they seem to be winning the ones that you think, not their best song, but whatever. But yeah. this, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see why. And looking at, like, some of the performances of it, it's a real kind of, like, genuinely, that it, it's great performing live as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, let's get into the Metallica version then, which is, you know, incredibly similar to the Queen version. It's I think it's, like, two seconds shorter, and they change yeah. the lyrics slightly and, you know, throw the, throw the word fuck in here and there as they want to do. Kind of like how they took the word cunt out of so what. You know, they, they're going to make this a little bit more metallica We open with that. I think it was, like, James in his heyday, wasn't it? He was, like, he was an angry young man. Oh, yeah. He's all right now. He's calmed down. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, we open with that oscillating feedback, and then Lars counting down on the hi-hat as the main riff comes in. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, like, spit out the bone and stuff, just in the sense that it's just jam-packed full of energy, you know. It's not like a sad but true. It's not leaning back into the groove. It's really throwing a lot of fretboard theatrics at you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, that opening kind of, like, siren as well that mm-hmm. they do with the uh, with the feedback, I think that's great. And I think it sounds much better when Metallica do it. It's probably just the technology has improved or whatever. But yeah. it's, I'm, I'm assuming it's Kirk with the old uh, whammy bar. But it sounds it's a great way to start. And the way it, just, it does kind of explode straight out of the gates. There's no kind of, like, hanging around. It yeah. doesn't really let up even on the quieter notes. No. Fantastic. I mean, the song is, like two minutes 20 i think it is something like that it's like 140 seconds long you know it's ridiculously short i think it's actually the let me just have a look now yeah it's actually the shortest song on the entirety of garage inc even shorter than free speech for the dumb or die die my darling by a few seconds it's two minutes 19 and the queen version is even shorter and then when we get into the verses the verses always feel you know, they're so fun. They feel a little bit to me like rock around the clock. You know what I mean? Like there's bum and then James is singing all this thing and there's bum bum underneath. Like it's got a real kind of yeah. throwback energy to it. I've not thought about that before actually. Yeah, 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 I can see, I can definitely see what you mean. It's quite that kind of like, it is that kind of like classic, like random story of a night out or something like that or some kind of uh-huh. like, it is very of in and of itself. It seems really self-contained. There's no kind of like, there's no, pretension to it at all it's very just kind of like really lean really quick i mean when you're talking about the speed of it as well if you listen to like the um the binge and purge version of it as well i mean that's insane yeah at the end of like a three-hour concert or something like that to be playing something that fast and it's just like i don't know how they did it but it sounds incredible live as well like that lyrics you know james is singing freddie's lyrics and freddie was a brilliant lyricist there's so much great imagery here smelling like a dry fish bone and the idea of on you know a rainy afternoon on a killer typhoon playing a slide trombone like there's some real cool surrealist ideas here yeah it must have been of the time i think i can i can take a little i can give or take the lyrics to be fair i think it's a, for me there is a little bit throwaway there isn't mm-hmm. i don't know i quite like lyrics I know I'm quite geek, yeah a little bit geeky with it i tend to like read into them and see oh what's the hidden meaning even when it's like fast or you know is there something else to it but with this i, you kind of, I kind of have to take a step back and say just you know what it is it's like it's basically like a comic book kind of thing and just kind yeah. of accept it, for what it is and once you do it is it kind of fits it it fits the music it's I think anything too deep would definitely not fit that riff at all. It'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be a complete mishmash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy does feel crazed on the track. Maybe a little <laughs> stoned as well. Certainly not cold, but, you know, kind of, kind of in, in that mode, moving through. 
compositionally, there really isn't much to this song. There are these verses, there are these riffs, there's kind of a little slow part that connects everything. And of course, the you know, there's a lot of guitar soloing on this track. And on, yeah, two you know, solos in a two-minute song yeah. are a lot of soloing when you you know when you actually listen to it. It's they fit in a hell of a lot, really. Mm-hmm. And just for me personally, you know, I think Kirk's great. I think Brian May is a legit genius, though. I I don't think Kirk really holds a candle to May ultimately. I, see, I, yeah, I, I I would disagree. Not I think I think Brian May is a genius. The guy's got a PhD in what is it, astronomy or yeah, something he like does. that. Yeah, being yeah. One of the, and, he, and, he, and he's, know, ma- he's and married to someone from EastEnders as well. <laughs> he's completed life. There he yeah, goes. Yeah, exactly. that's all you need to do, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, he's a genius. He's a compositional like, legend. But I think Kirk, for what he is, is, uh, is a real kind of like... For this, definitely. It's, I, I think his solos explode off this. And the way they've made it sound, some of the effects in the second solo, especially that he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. It's like a kill switch or something that he did at one point. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, oh, I think it's great. And... I saw the performance where it was like Tony Iommi and Brian May oh, doing the solo. Yeah, yeah. But, and to be fair, that does kind of like that tip tops everything. You can't really beat that. Two two legends playing the same solo slightly differently, making it sound like delay. You know, hands down, incredible. Absolutely amazing. And you know, as I said to Roy from Sabra Bloody Podcast when he came on for Sabra Cadabra, Tony Iommi does not age. I watched that video about <laughs> ten minutes ago. It's nineteen ninety two. I've seen videos of him on tour whenever they've last played, you know, recent interviews and stuff. And just, yeah, I, I don't know what the fountain of youth is, but he found it in riff form. And that that, yes. con- that concert you mentioned as well of James fronting, James being a pure front man with Queen yeah. behind him singing this track. That That's something very special, right? Yeah, it really is. And it's so, it's quite weird to see as well. Like even though little things, like even the way he was holding his mic yeah. and it's like, you know, above his head pointing down as if he's like, <laughs> it was, yeah. it's just, it's a kind of like, it does mess with your head a little bit. You, you, I think he's uh, definitely part of his like shtick and performances, you know, having that guitar yeah. and having that thing. But that kind of, like, I mean, seeing that band live, you've got Tony Omi, Brian May, and yeah, obviously the rest of Queen and then James Setfield as the, uh, as the singer. Mm-hmm. Well, Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not exactly a live staple for them, but it's a song they've played regular throughout their career. They played it 154 times live. It was debuted November 2nd, 91 in Detroit, and it was last played last year, uh, May 5th. 2018 Stockholm Sweden I mean this is just gonna be one of those tracks isn't it they're always I mean it, it ends the Mexico City show for God's sake so it's famous for a lot of reasons but I think this is one that they'll always pop into the cover slot when they're in the mood for it uh, definitely I mean, when you when, with the uh, Garage Inc as well the second uh, disc I think it is on on that one it, it it does pop out it stands out I think a lot of those covers they're good or people different people you know different people think different things but this one the production the song it just kind of like pops out and it sounds fun, but you want to listen to it. It doesn't yeah. sound like just a throwaway kind of thing. So yeah, it's going to, I reckon it'll be there for years, whether they speed it up or slow it down. It definitely seems to be something they enjoy playing anyway. Yeah. I'm just looking at the Garage Inc. second disc now and uh, bloody hell that, so just, to, yeah, it goes from Am I Evil as a six track to Blitzkrieg to Bread Fan to The Prince to Stone Cold Crazy to So What? I mean, that is a, that is a serious <laughs> septet of songs there. That, that, that is quite incredible. And um, well, I think, yeah, I think I'm a little bit weird in preferring the first side, though, to be fair. I know like what you the mean. First disc. I know what you Sorry? mean. I can understand that. Like, yeah, I think the first disc is maybe a bit superior in terms of actual, like, song craft and the way they sure, put them together. Yeah. But maybe it's just, I'm, I think I'm just a victim of uh, of doing this show and listening to every song so many times that I kind of, like, <laughs> love them all. Unless they're Reload, they're never going to grow on me. 
Oh, Tom. Oh, Tom, Reload's a great album. <laughs> okay, okay. If you say so, Borge, if you say so. Um, any, uh, any, uh, any final thoughts on this track? I, th- I think it's it's a real kind of like demonstration of what Metallica are really good at is that and what Metallica are and I think a lot of it comes down to them being you know largely about James and like Lars being mates well or not mates or kind of getting to know each other in their teens and listening to all these bands and growing up with them and they still seem to be fans of music you still see James kind of like on Instagram listening to Slayer driving and that kind of thing yeah. so I think that's it, this is definitely a good like kind of like demonstration of almost being like they're you know they're you know, the greatest in my opinion one of the greatest bands ever but they're still in love with music they're still interested in doing things that they want to kind of like almost hark back and worship those kind of like bands that they grew up with and it's, yeah i think it's a great example of that and it's, you can't really you know what other compliment would queen want apart from you know the biggest band in the world at that time saying oh you know we're fans of yours. Come on, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, th- th- there are there are millions of unique accolades that you can shower on Metallica, but one of them that people don't really speak about, which again I've sort of realised doing this show, I don't think there's any other band in history that have introduced more listeners to more bands. If you know what I mean, via covering yeah, them, I agree. Like, like they yeah, they have really agree. opened my eyes and ears to so many great older seventies, eighties bands that I probably, you know, I probably legit never would have listened to so many of these guys, Budgie, etc. Yeah, I I think definitely, and even if even if it's like odd songs here or there, it, it it does kind of like bring it to turn the page. I you know I'm not a Bob Seger fan sure. or anything like that. I don't really listen to it, but that that you know when you hear that for the first time, it's completely different to anything they've done before. It's just mind blowing, and even the stuff they've done recently with that kind of all within my hands foundation, um, yeah. with some of the songs in there, and they're really some a couple of really obscure obscure ones that they've done. And you go back and you start listening to it. It's like, oh, you know, these guys have got, these guys have still got really good taste in music. Yeah, so, you know. yeah, yeah. And it, it's that stamp of approval, isn't it, as well? Like, if, it, if this is good enough for Hetfield, then I'm going to give it a fucking few listens. Yeah, yeah. So, um, That's it, yeah. If it's good enough for Lars and, and James and, you know, Kirk, then it'll be fine. Uh, you know? yeah, Kirk, maybe not. But if it's good enough for Lars and James, <laughs> then uh, if it's good enough for Jason, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give it a listen. So, as we always do, guys, at Metallica Pod, great to hear your thoughts on these tracks. Uh, Tritton saying, great cover. The live version from 92 on the live ship Binge and Purge is amazing. Mark saying, the, their best cover, narrowly beating out Bread Fan because it doesn't wander around for two minutes in the middle. Michael saying, I didn't hear the original until years later, but I can't help but think of this cover every time I do, as I absolutely nail it here. I'm thankful Lars didn't try and replicate the rim shots on the snare, and instead just full-blown double bass went for it. Classic Metalla cover. Ralph saying, if there was ever a Queen song for the boys to cover, this was definitely the original. This is this was definitely it. The original has a proto-frash feel. They take this tune and really make it their own. Plus, they had a heaviness that the original does not have. All members of the band sound great here, especially Hetfield on vocals. And, and boys, I will say, I I do prefer the Metallica version altogether. Uh, I do think May's solos are better, and I like the choruses more on the Queen version. They're a bit more humorous, aren't they? Like "Star Go Crazy," like they all the bands yeah, sort the of classic, sing at kind once. Of like, yeah, yeah, the classic harmonies, isn't it? I, I don't know. I, I, I'll be honest. I think I prefer the Metallica one. Yeah. In all honesty, just just because James's voice, you can't. I don't think oh, yeah. I think he's got a better voice than Mercury. To be honest with you, wow, like, that's that, that's cr- I I don't know if I don't agree with you, but I've never really thought of that. But that, that that's a good thing to ponder. Yeah, there we go. I generally think like from early nineties up until like probably the two thousands, that that vocal range that like Hetfield's got on the Load Reload albums on the, on the Black album, 
I, you know, I don't think he can beat it. It's incredible. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, Hetfield, the way he says, like, Tommy Gunn and the hurl, <laughs> the way he says hell is like hurl. Like, you know, certain directions <laughs> are really Those satisfying. Reflections. I think, yeah, I don't mm. think it's anyone who's like not been 17 and tried to sound like, like oh, him. Oh, hell like, yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, just on the Twitter finally as well, Andy uh, just sent just sent a gif of a goat with a number one medal <laughs> around its neck. Uh, Andrea saying, great cover. It's a perfect choice uh, because the original is very heavy for its time. When James sang this with Queen, a tribute show. I thought that was awesome. And finally, Angel just saying, a solid Queen cover. Hetfield's vocals are god tier, and I dig the heavier take on this song. As always, guys, follow us at Metallica Pod. Always great to get your feedback on these tracks. <laughs> So we're talking about So What. Like, when, when did you first hear this song? Do you remember that moment? Yes. I first heard the song when they put out Garage Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first time I heard it. I must have been like, you know, 15, 16 years old. And uh, I got to say, the song when I first heard it, like, kind of turned my cheeks red because yeah. I had never heard anybody say any of those words. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and honestly, even... Even when I just looked up the lyrics before we uh, we got on today, some of them I was I was actually confused oh, yeah. by. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into that. Um, yeah, I was like, kind of singing certain lines wrong, and I just thought that was really funny. Uh, I guess there's like a lot of British slang that I thought meant one thing, but it's another, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just it's mired in that, and it is weird that they mention like Hastings and Eastbourne. I mean, mm-hmm. Brighton's a little more famous, but those those two are definitely right. a bit more obscure. And yeah, I was similar to yourself. I think I was a little bit younger. I remember my older cousin, Peter, got me into the band, loaded up my click wheel iPod with all the albums. This would have been like 04, maybe? So I was like 12. And right. I remember hearing this song. And, you know... <laughs> 12. 12. 12, exactly, exactly. And the heaviest thing I'd heard, the punkiest thing I heard, whatever you want to call it, was Metallica. That, you know, that was the watermark. And mm-hmm. since then, you know, as a kid, whatever, being raised by the internet and all these crazy fucking things you see, I've never really heard anything like that. I mean, you know, mentioning, like, I've even sucked an old man's cock. I, I can still remember being, like, mouth agape at that. Absolutely. You're, you're like, you know, you're a little kid and you're like, whoa, why would you, number one, why would you admit that? Yes, um, yeah, exactly. In the song. <laughs> and like, you didn't know it was so like tongue in cheek. Like, I, I guess I just didn't know at the time I was, I was naive. No, it was cock in cheek, but you're right. It, it, it was yeah. that level. <laughs> yeah. And, and ramming down throats and right. pints of piss. I mean, like you say, we're, we're going to pour through all of these <laughs> lyrics. But yeah, that initial impression of the song, it's weird, like most Metallica songs are sort of, oh yeah, I probably heard that then, whatever. But this, I can actually remember like sitting in a car, hearing it, and just being like pinned to the seat, because it's just, I mean, it's it's raucous, isn't it? It, 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 It's it's so punk, it's it's, like, you know, I've said this before, like when I heard um, Nevermind the Bollocks for the first time, I was really like, oh, this is punk, this is going to blow my mind. And it was so gentle, it was so Mm. not there. This has a real anarchic snarl to it yeah it fucks you up when you first hear it like because you're so used to metallica you know singing like metallica is a real serious band and they're singing about like death and it's very poetic and then when you hear this you're just you're you're like you know 
No, I never thought Hetfield would sing those kind of lyrics. And, and you know what? You're just like, like it just kind of throws you off balance because you're like, whoa, is that Meta- like is that my Metallica doing that? You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, so it's an anti nowhere league song, and they are like, I mean, it's funny actually because we did the discharge. Which um, is similar band with yes. free speech for the dumb. Definitely go check out that episode. And like Discharge, like Anti Noah League, you know, like Budgie, like like all these other fucking bands, like Holocaust. They're a band that got catapulted into familiarity through Garage Inc. And I'm sure the royalties are a welcome thing. And it's quite cool. Towards the end of the episode, I mentioned it. Like Anti Noah League and Metallica have like played together and stuff like that. Obviously, Metallica look up to these guys. Familiar to you at all? Do you have any awareness of this band outside of the Garage Inc. sphere? No, I had never heard them before this. This was the first time I had ever heard of them, for sure. Yeah, yeah, they got uh, they got thirty seven thousand streams on Spotify monthly, and I know, like, I always like to quote the streams, but it's not really a good sign of like older bands. <laughs> it's more for like upcoming stuff and whatever. And you know, the majorly influential band. It goes without saying, but um, but yeah, obviously the guys were into them and they wanted to immortalize this, and it was on Sad but True, I think that was the original release, the B side. Right, right. And then, yeah, um, got immortalized on Gary Jink. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it said um, I read a thing where they had released it on the Unforgiven single, and then they put it out on Sabbath True single, and then there's a live, um, and then there's like a 30th anniversary uh, something um, like a celebration like uh, recording that they uh, that they did it live again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, man. I mean, uh, when it was put out on uh, Garage Inc. on uh, disc two. Um, yeah. Yeah, it just it it like obviously stands out. <laughs> yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. And as I said before, it's a name in the magazine. The band play it all the fucking time. Like it's a really important song. As sort of like right. as disgraceful and heinous of a track, but so what is? It means a lot to the guys. You know, uh, I was um, one of the last episodes that we did together. I had taken my girlfriend to her first Metallica concert. Mm-hmm. And on the way there, we were listening to Metallica songs and trying to get her like boned up. And one of them was So What? And uh, she loved it. I mean, she just thought it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's a lot easier to take in. But uh, man, even still listening to it today, like not many bands do something that kind of visceral, you know, with their lyrics. Um, it's just so like, fuck you. I love it. I do, I do, yeah. And I mean, historically, um, the song was kind of based in that comedic mode. So apparently it was the band sitting around in a pub one night and hearing two men trying to outdo each other with stories and them going even further and embellishing it to the point of being, you know, completely obscene. And I think there was some British legal trouble as well, where the Obscene Publication Act removed all copies of it from sale uh, because the word fuck appeared in the first line and had to be taken off. And, you know, I mean, it's got bestiality in it. It's got sexually transmitted <laughs> diseases. It's, it's got all of that. But before we get into that subject matter, the song kicks off with James uttering the immortal line and then kicking into that riff. I mean, there's not too much to say about the riff, isn't it? It's a bit like Discharge we got into before. You know, I, I mentioned this on the um, on the Sliver episode, how the riffs are also similar. It feels like there's just kind of this heavy punk riff. No, 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 no. They just, they all come from, they all come from this font. Yeah, they just want you to rage. I think uh, it's not, you know, it's definitely not rocket science. Um, but it's like, a, is it two chords over and over? And then the actual verse itself is just one straight, you know, I don't know, they're playing a B or C or something. And... And that's it. So, 
the lyrics are the focus of the song. And yeah. I love I, I love how they uh, how the original band wrote this song. I think it's a great story. Um, listening to two people arguing in a pub and using that as like the basis for your song, I could just it just screams punk rock. Like they're just like, who cares? Who cares about you? You know, like yes, it's, yeah. it's, that's a funny story. Exactly, it's and it's it's not saying I've been to Las Vegas. I've been to fucking Turin. It's I've been to <laughs> Eastbourne and Hastings are anonymous places, and at the t- even right. now Brighton isn't real. Like Brighton's kind of a hipster mecca, whatever down south. So what, you boring little cunt as well? Like, I don't think I'd heard the word cunt when I was twelve in that car. Like, <laughs> you don't really Same. hear it. But, and I think James replaces cunt with fuck twice in their versions. Right. There's even more cunt on the anti nowhere league one. Yeah, I definitely hadn't either. I didn't realize that that was like a, a you know, like a English slang. And mm-hmm. it's funny because the song starts out kind of innocent enough where you're just like, I've been hating, no no indication that it's going to talk about, you know, ramming dicks down a goat, uh, you know, like a, uh, so, uh, or fucking a sheep or whatever. Um, there's no indication of that. So like when you're listening to it, if you're just innocent enough, you're like, oh, okay, let's see what this one's about. Oh, it sounds like another Misfits cover. And then mm-hmm. by, by verse two, you're just, oh, you're, you're just like, what the hell? Like this just took a sharp left yeah, turn. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit of artistry in the comparison. Like I like the fact that he's fucked the queen and then almost gone back in, well, gone back in time and fucked back. So these kind of, <laughs> you know, real elevated figures. And then an old man's cock as well. So he right. doesn't discriminate. And I guess there's some wordplay going on with fuck to sheep, fuck to go, I've rammed my cock down its throat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, but, it, it, you know, it is about that pure abandon of anarchy, isn't it? Who cares? They, yes. they, don't, they don't fucking care. They can do anything they want. Like, they've got no shame about it, and that makes them kind of invincible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I never knew that he said, I fuck Bach. I only... I only found that out when I looked it up. Yeah. I guess I never really thought about what he said, but um, that's such a weird line. Like, I fucked Bach. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean, I get it with the Queen. Sure, but, sure, yeah. yeah. I guess, I mean, maybe it's almost a musical slight, like, consider this height of classical composition and right. the chords that are going on now. But yeah, I guess I, I used to hear it as I fucked back, as in B A C K. Like, if they were fucking me, I'd fuck back, you know? But, right. Uh, but it makes more sense with the queen back. And then uh, I've had skank. I've had speed. I've jacked, I've jacked it until I bleed. So, so that, was the, that was the line that I, um, that I thought was, I've jacked off until I bleed. But going over the lyrics, it says, I jacked up until I bleed. So I did a quick search on, like, Urban Dictionary. Mm-hmm. And apparently jacked up is another slang for, um, like, doing speed or cocaine or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. jacked up. Yeah, yeah. so, like... It could be like, you know, he was blowing a lot of lines and then until he was bleeding, but, or it could be jerking off until you bleed, which is, that's what I always thought it was. And that always makes me cringe. Like just the, you know, the mental image it gives you. Yeah, and I yeah. made me love the song even more, but like, you just be like, oh God, that's the worst mental image ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just read it as jacked off and heard it as jacked off, but coming to think of it, I don't think. Brits, especially back then, would have said jacked off. Maybe they would have done. I mean, you know, there's certain areas, but um, mm. I've drunk that. I've drunk this. I've spewed up on a pint of piss. Spewed up on a pint of piss. So, like, vomited into piss, which is even worse than just, like, I, you know, the, so many layers to this song. Or is it, like, or is it like he puked because he was drinking shitty beer? Yeah, you know, the pint, a pint of piss. Yeah, yeah, probably. It could be that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because I always thought, like, yeah, he's puking in his own piss, like... 
that's fucking disgusting imagery right there, and it fits right in the song, so why not? Yeah, no. are, you, are you familiar with the uh, the idea of the aristocrats, the joke? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like an aristocrat's joke, isn't it, on a certain yeah. level, so what? Uh, in some other, people who aren't aware, it's this kind of famous joke that comedians tell, that it, basically the punchline is, we're the aristocrats, and it's just the most sort of hor- the idea is to do the most horrific act isn't it physically mm-hmm. and it goes into all different lives definitely check them out on youtube that'll give you hours of uh, fun oh watching God. crabs lice i've had the clap and that ain't nice i love that aside and that ain't nice right yeah it's just so casual like yeah and that's not nice mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I, it's all not nice you know, <laughs> anti-nowhere guys but yeah but I guess he's. I guess this is a conversation between two people, like, mm-hmm. or maybe he's just saying it to, like, you know, the guy at the bar, like, I've had crabs, I've also had lice, and I've had the clap. Or like, one guy's like, I've had crabs, and the other guy's trying to one up him, like, I've had lice, and the other guy's like, I've had the clap. Yeah, you know, yeah, that yes, <laughs> yeah. It is, it is, there is a one-upmanship threaded yeah. throughout the track, and you know, the song when you first listen to it is constantly challenging you know your personal borders of decency and i guess the coup de gras is i've even fucked a schoolgirl's twat which yeah you know it depends how you read that because obviously i mean they're aiming for the pedophilic i'm sure schoolgirl could be younger i mean none of it's good to debate really but that that is probably the most shocking line you know it's um I just, uh, I'd love to play this for somebody, like, for the first time yeah. and just watch their face, you know, like a, like a challenge you see online. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The so what challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you cower, yeah, you lose, like, yeah. You know, if you're not a regular Metallica fan or you're not a punk fan, like, this song is hard to listen to. Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it could be, it could be hard to take in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, massively, massively. And, I mean, that's it for the lyrics, pretty much. But, yep. the, you know, the song itself, there isn't that much variation. There is the gang vocals on the chorus, and you hear that, that little bit of guitar as well that helps to carve it out, which is nice. And then into a solo that isn't in the original, in the original is just kind of another riff, which I think it's quite nice. I think, this, you know, Kurt just sort of rings the lick for all it's worth, but it does its job. Um, yeah, there's a nice solo, and... Um... There's a uh, 30th anniversary um, show that they did in L.A. where they had a – it was like four nights. And one of the nights they actually did this song. Mm-hmm. And uh, they brought the original singer. Um, I think they, they gave him a nickname. I think they called him Animal. Animal, yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, they sang this – they did the song with him singing it. And he kind of messed up. It must have been like nerves or whatever or drinking too much. And they – when Hammett went, Hammett went into his solo, and then the guy started singing like too early after, oh, and it kind of okay. messed them up. And I remember what, listening to it, and I'm like, "How do you mess this song up? This song's like three chords, and it's like two and a half minutes, yeah. you know." Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this is like your one song, dude. You came all the way over here, and and um, you know, you had one job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they've done it. They've done it a few times, actually. In oh, did they? Yeah, yeah, they've done it a few times together. In '92, they played Wembley Arena. Obviously, they played So What. And Animal actually put this on the Anti Nowhere League's website saying, quote, As I waited on the edge of the stage waiting to go on, it suddenly dawned on me I was about to stand in front of 10,000 punters who didn't know me from Adam and sing a song that I couldn't fucking remember. All that, kept, all that kept running through my head was, run, you silly old fucker. Uh, <sighs> you know, they did do it a few times and you know, Metallica plays constantly. This is from uh, Joel McIver's Justice for All book as well, talking about the 94 tour. A Chicago show saw Danzig reappear on the Misfits song London Dungeon and Suicidal Tendencies played along with So What? Rob Trujillo in Suicidal at that time as oh, well. Oh, wow. Wow, that's really funny. I didn't know they had that deep of a connection. That's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. I've, it was that 94 tour 
that was when they actually played together because they played with Suicidal quite a few times in different permutations. But that that was when Rob was in the band. I think that was a Shit Hits the Sheds tour. Or, yeah, the songs we played hell of a lot of times live. Exactly three hundred and seven times. It was debuted at that show I just mentioned when Animal was on, October 25th, 92. It was last played at the anniversary show, so it hasn't been played for a long time. Um, December 9th, 2011. Mm. Does that surprise you? Not one worldwide airing? Like, everyone, you know, it's not like they've got to rehearse this song, really. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, you know, they're older now, so maybe <laughs> they kind of want to. I mean, when you go to I the mean, show it was only now, eight years ago that they played it last, but yeah, that's yeah, that's true. I mean, you went to their show recently. Yeah. I mean, did, did you see a lot of younger people like at the show? I did actually. Yeah, I saw a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot of parents and kids. That was the Surprise. dominant one. Yeah, yeah. So maybe like that has something to do with it, but mm-hmm. also you know they've also released like how many albums since then? So it's like they've only got an hour and 40 minutes to squeeze everything in. So I'm sure it'll pop up at some point again, for sure. Yeah, I mean, as, as I said before, it's been played, it's a 28th most played song. So you yeah. know, it, it's, it's up there with everything. I mean, it's considered number 27's Motor Breath and number 26's right. Bread Fan. They have a few more covers they've played more. They've played Am I Evil 768 times and yeah. Last Caress 818 so I, I was thinking So What was like that level. It's not quite there, but a lot mm-hmm. of people might know it from Cunning Stunts. I'm pretty sure they agree right. with that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I remember um, that. I, I think the only time I've seen them play was when my first show at uh, Tattoo the Earth. Mm-hmm. It was the only, first and only time I've seen them play that song. It would have been great if they did it with the symphony. That would have been fantastic. Ooh, that's a good show, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a kind of song that works anywhere, doesn't it? Like, it works at the start uh, of the set to get you going, works on the last couple of songs, like a bit of a jumpstart the heart kind of thing. Like, it's just perfect to mm-hmm. place it in. Well, they're coming back with the symphony again. Maybe they'll, uh, oh, yeah. maybe they'll throw it in there. Be <laughs> that, <great>. would be, <laughs> that would be beautiful. That would be beautiful if so what was on there. But, um, mm. but yeah, I mean, as we said before, it's kind of one of these tracks where it, it, it's, it's the lyrics, really, that you want to focus on because, like, the majority of punk, the guitar just isn't really that interesting. I mean, in terms of the sound of the song as well, what do you think of the production? I thought the production was pretty good. I mean, it was kind of on the par of the Queen song that they did, mm-hmm. um, Stone Cold Crazy. I felt like it maybe had been recorded by the same people around the same time. Yeah. Um, it was clear, and uh, uh, Lars's drums are just like, you know, really bombastic. Yeah. And um, really, I mean, the song is so tight, and compared to the original, you know, and the original's good too, but the, the Metallica version's just way tighter yeah yeah the, the the metallica one just feels gigantic compared to the original. yeah and there is a charm to the original of course knowing where it came from but i mean speaking of lars do you follow lars on instagram i do yeah it's been cool seeing his glastonbury escapades absolutely He's been yeah getting around like he loves it yeah yeah definitely and i just listened to um lars uh did a really long interview with howard stern from a couple of years ago and i just finished it the other day mm-hmm. um where he's talking about uh his art collection and um uh, man, what a life! What a life yeah, that guy has. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I remember him when when they played Glastonbury Metallica originally, 2014, 2015, and he was, you know, he was saying how much he adored the place, and it seems sincere. And clearly, he's he's playing that forward in that vein. So, as we always do, guys, at Metallica Pod, we open up to you. What are your thoughts on So What? Tommy says, I love it. Just a couple of minutes of Vulgarian humor. The most over-the-top moment of the song is my favorite line. It has to be, I had the clap, and that ain't nice. Next to all the heinous lyrical content, it just seems like such an understatement. There's a certain eloquence buried in this track's brazen nature, a punk masterpiece. Ironically enough, I just saw the anti 
anti-nowhere league play this when opening up for the misfits and rise against a couple of days ago and it was wonderful that's cool that's still cool they're still out and they, and they i mean they are still out there they i think they were from 1980 to like the mid 90s and then they recouped at the end of that decade and kept going uh jamie saying james hetfield saying he's been to hastings and eastbourne is wonderful completely agree very weird <laughs> you know just yeah very weird to hear that david saying when i found a copy of the original version my friends and i used to listen to it and laugh our heads off at the lyrics ralph i love this irreverent punk rock take on one-upmanship originally done by the anti Noah league definitely not a track i could play with my parents around when i was a kid the song is awesome live but i don't think it'll be getting too much too many set lists anymore unfortunately Joe says a very strong contender for the most outrageous and hilarious lyrics in a song brilliantly British uh, brilliantly punk and Chris finally saying I feel like James said he blew his voice out recording it great song to trank, crank and piss off your neighbours which is how I'm sure they felt about the original I first heard this from the live shit on a cassette my cousin gave me with the 598 EP Russell any any closing thoughts on so what you know that last guy made a good point um, about James blowing his voice out I don't mm-hmm. know if that's true or not but um you know, the production of his voice, he's mostly just kind of barking the lyrics at yeah. you and like kind of talking the lyrics as opposed to like saying, but then there's like the who cares and it's like got this like chorus of James like mm-hmm. behind him, which um, they do, you know, here and there, like creeping death and stuff, but um, they don't do like that often. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Makes you want to like channel along with it, like who cares? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, I, I love this track, and I love that Metallica introduced me to this track because you know I and probably everyone else never would have discovered it, but it is a brilliant oh, yeah. slice of uh, of British street punk. Apparently, it's on the Asian version of the Black Album, supposedly according to Wikipedia as well. So maybe someone can verify that as a uh, wow. bonus track on the '96 NTV Europe Music Awards when Metallica was supposed to play King Nothing, but played mm. Last Caress instead. They also played So What after last caress um apparently i read that yeah yeah yeah, i mean yeah what a a double punch like the producers hoping they'll hear that king nothing riff and it's like oh no and and it was like all live on air so they played so wide they couldn't they couldn't bleep it out that is amazing that's amazing uh, apparently Sum 41 often used the Metallica versions their outro music as well over the sound system so uh, here you go a little, little accolade there <laughs> that's funny yeah that is kind of a blur are you much of a fan of sweet savage because there's a lot of bands that metallica have covered and they're probably one of the more obscure um i can say unfortunately not the going back and listening to metallica's cover of them is the very first time i've ever even heard of the band yeah um and i'll, I'll have to dive back into them the before before doing the episode of course went in listened to metallica's cover and then their original hmm. and you know between the two i honestly can't pick a clear a clear winner i like the production and the sound of both of them but i mean sweet savages they, their overall sound definitely makes me want to go and listen to more of their discography it's a real faithful cover isn't it it is it's uh yeah <laughs> their their production seems pretty similar in terms of how they kind of captured the original um i mean i'm a huge i'm a huge fan on the way of the way it sounds it's like almost with kill em all was pretty much just had better production to it mm, mm. You, you can see the, in, the, the influence is so clear isn't it with those early compositions oh yeah 
I mean, this their cover sounds like it could be right off of Kill 'Em All. Yeah, it's the first yeah. thing, first thing I noticed when I listened to it. I mean, the way it cra- um, cra- the way it crashes into the main riff with the song, you know, the drums behind it, the use of gaps and pausing and space and and proportion. It's very traditional, and it isn't. It's it's crazy. This song came out in nineteen eighty one. It's flashy as hell. Yeah, yeah. It was that was kind of the weird thing listening back to it because I the first time I heard it, I wasn't I wasn't familiar with it at all. I just listened to it as a song and. Mm. I mean, I was super impressed, and then going back and kind of doing research into the song, I had no clue it was written this early. Yeah. Um, you know, before I thought it was something that might have come out like around the around Kill 'Em All or maybe post that they had covered, but yeah, I mean, I'm super super impressed by the original artist. Mm. And I love in the uh, Metallica version. It pretty much starts with silence. If you're listening on bad speakers or as I was with laptop speakers, you might not hear Lars counting. It might just be a sort of long pause following whatever song in the shuffle. And then it comes in. It has an element of surprise. Oh, yeah. I mean, kind of the way the main riff just kicks off. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it starts out decently fast and heavy. And then when it really kicks in, that's when it. That's when the song really takes off for me. It was, uh, I mean, the riff is is familiar. Um, It's pedal points. It's this kind of guitar playing that is like in the classic Mickey Rourke film, The Wrestler. You know, it has that uh, element to it. It just has this sort of familiarity. I guess you'd say kill em allness, even though that's a bit of a time-wise wrong reference. It's that kind of stripper music to a certain extent uh, with triads. But um, yeah, the whole thing, it's um, its very died in the wall, but it's satisfying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. its It has like this kind of weird energy that just gets you going like, right from the start. <laughs> Uh, like for me, like I, I was went back and listened to a few of the tracks off of Garage Inc. And this is the one, the, one of the ones I've never really, I haven't explored this album mm. too much. And this is one of the ones I kind of went back. You know, I mean, I know the classics from Garage, like Am I Evil, Turn the Page, right. Die Die My Darling, all those. But I never really gave this one the time of day until, I mean, a few a few days ago. And then uh, Post, when you first asked me about to um, kind of pick out a song, come on the show about and this was kind of a clear winner between them first here. And mm. I was like, wow, can't believe I skipped over this. <laughs> and, and what's cool is that, that that riff's going down, but, um, you know, Kirk's explorations on this song are awesome. And early on the sort of the harmonics there's the squeals, the compliments. Great. Oh yeah. His kind of Kirk's, um, like backing guitars too. Mm. Yeah. Just, um, I mean, he, he follows the riff spring pretty well. Really well. Those those extra little touches to it. Mm-hmm. And the the gang choruses as well of killing time. You know, it's just it's such a throwback, really. And they're quite a controversial band, Sweet Savage. And are you aware of the controversy in the lyrics of this song originally? Um, I believe they they had the N word in it. Correct. They did. That's what I heard when I was going back through it, but um, I didn't really look into the into the band too much because um, I went back and read the Metallica lyrics of it, but I couldn't mm. find where they had switched it out. Yeah, you can you can find it. Unfortunately, um, I think they that was the original, and then Metallica covered it, and then the sort of re-release that came following Metallica uh, incorporated something else. But yeah, uh, it it does have that word. And Metallica replaced it for uh, Kill a Kid with a Switchblade Knife. Um, 
so yeah, a bit unfortunate there. <laughs> but in terms of the you know success it gave the band, it's so cool. I always say this, but I'm always going to say it for every every episode. It's so great that you know Metallica loved these bands. Of course, are a huge influence. It's clear uh, implicitly. But still, they're gifting them a, a, a royalty bomb. Oh yeah. yeah. When they, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people probably have never heard of no. the band until Metallica. I you know, any, yeah. I'm, I'm one 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 of Hell them yeah. for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, the original actually has a real sort of um, Mustaine snarl to the delivery. Um, I, I quite dig it. But yeah, I agree. There's not much um, between them. Kirk's definitely um, better here. And this was um, this was part of the Unforgiven single. Yep. That's it's weird trying to listen listen back to it. I do you know when they when they recorded the song? No, um, no. Because it's. The production definitely doesn't sound like black the black no. album production, and that's what I was listening back when I found out I was on the Unforgiven single. That's where I was trying to figure out when they when they recorded. They, um, I mean, in terms of like the the overall sound, I mean, it sounds like it's something that would been around the time of like Lightning or Puppets, but Hetfield's voice definitely sounds closer to Justice or the Black album. Yeah, they well, they were playing it since March fourteenth, nineteen eighty two. They're playing it back with Cliff. Oh yeah, that's one song. If they uh, hopefully they bring it out. I know the last time they played, I think was at the Fillmore. Mm-hmm. I when they did their um, when they did their thirtieth anniversary, and it looks like it played a few times in between there as well. Yeah, I mean it's on Quebec Magnetic. That's right. With uh, with a frayed ends intro, really cool performance. Um, James tries to get them, tries to stop them with the. Uh, with a ooh, you know, it's Rob with the gang vocals as well on top of that, uh, and he says uh, in the video it's uh, part of the set. They're at the part of the set towards the end where they pay tribute to the bands that inspired them to pick up and play. And tonight's band is Sweet Savage, and you know they uh, they went in there produced by Bob Rock and Hetfield and Ulrich apparently, so that dates it somewhat. Uh, Randy Starb as the engineer, but um, recorded the same time as So What apparently as well. But it's not. <laughs> It's not earth-shattering. I think we're going to cover better covers. We've covered better covers. It's certainly not bad. It's it's fascinating. But I wouldn't... I, I don't know. I mean, you rank it highly. Um, Out of the ones I've listened to, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's as high as the... For me, some of the more well-known ones. Yeah. When, it was, when I went back and first listened to it, it was, it was a breath of fresh air um, for me with listening to Metallica mm-hmm. in, terms of the, in terms of the covers. Um, I mean, some of my... Like my top ones are, I mean, I'm a huge fan. Turn the page, mm. uh, but then Last Caress and Die Die My Darling. Those are, those are some of the other ones that are really up there for me. Um, but this was kind of nice, a nice, um, just a nice listen to see how you could definitely tell how Kill 'Em All was influenced, and then especially listening to the original, you could, I mean, there's clear influence on James's voice oh, um, yeah. from there for sure. Um, I mean, you can definitely tell it's kind of. You know, he definitely seems like he definitely got some influence from Sweet Savage vocalist. Yeah, and of course, as always, uh, at Metallica Pod, we ask for your feedback. What do you think of the song? Uh, just one response this episode from Alex Finney. Shout out to Alex as always. He's a great friend of the show, a patron, awesome guest as well. Uh, we actually covered Die Die My Darling. That was a really fun episode. I think it's like number 30 on, so uh, yeah, quite an early one. But he calls it a breakneck thrasher. 
With small but brilliant fl- flourishes by Kirk between James's menacing lyric delivery, Lars's deep in the pocket keeping time, and playing exactly what is needed, six solo, only have three minutes and three seconds to thrash, this the song. <laughs> I think he's right. I I, yeah, sums it up perfectly. Yeah. Um, any uh, any closing thoughts on uh, Killing Time? Um, I's not really pretty much covered everything. Hmm. I's mostly it's I'm a huge fan of just the production overall. It's, yes. it's Kill 'Em All was kind of stepped up a notch. I mean, the guitar tones I think are a little little chunkier. Yeah. And it's I mean for me overall almost perfect in terms hmm. of in terms of the sound. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a perfect sort of cinematic scoop. The rawness. Uh, you know, just the, the tension in it is just awesome. The way it builds, it does have a lot of qualities. Again, as always happens, the more I talk about the song in the episode, the more uh, warmth I grow towards it. But um, yeah, no, this is uh, this has been an interesting discussion, nonetheless. Okay, so let's get into Overkill. Overkill, you know, Metallica are obviously huge fucking acolytes of Motorhead. I've never really been the biggest Motorhead fan. I mean, check out a recent episode with Jack where we did Murder One, the Lemmy tribute on Hardware. That was a really fun episode, actually. And we, we, we kind of put our opinions for that. Jack's a bit more of a Motorhead fan than me, but I've found them... I don't want to say derivative, because I know they're quite trailblazing, but just quite bland, really. Like, I've listened to this song a lot. This is their second most streamed song, Motorhead, as well. I think it's the name of the album as well, Overkill, just under Ace of Space. I can't really tell you the riff. Like, I couldn't really sing it you, like, with a gun on my head. Like, I can kind of stumble through it, but, yeah, it's just quite bland and and, and turgid and, and tasteless but of course Metallica do not think this Metallica idolise these people and Lars actually was interviewed about Mohead and the Overkill record especially and he said the following this is from a great article by the way on Rolling Stone where Lars goes through his top 15 rock records let's just have a look at that list actually so yeah, check out this list. This is from Rolling Stone. This came out June 2017. Metallica's Lars Ulrich, my 15 favourite metal and hard rock albums. And I've never seen this before. There were some surprising inclusions. So they do it in alphabetical order. ACDC's Let There Be Rock. Alice in Chains' Dirt, which is a phenomenal album, of course. Black Sabbath Sabotage. Blue Oyster Cult, On Your Feet or On Your Knees. Now, obviously, they covered Astronomy. I don't think Astronomy's on this record. I've never really listened to BOC, to be honest with you, aside from that horrifically unfunny SNL sketch. Like, as a Brit over here who kind of prides himself on being quite into comedy, I've just, I'm always baffled and bemused by how popular SNL is. I just think it's hot garbage. But Deep Purple's Made in Japan is on there. Of course, Lars is a big fan. Diamond Head's Lightning to the Nations. GNR's Appetite. Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. Judas Priest Unleashed in the East. Merciful Fate's Melissa, which has one of the greatest metal album covers ever. I love that skull lit from the sockets with the red traffic light it looks awesome uh mohead's overkill which we'll get into in a second rage against the machine he picks the battle of los angeles i mean shout out the battle of los angeles but 
the debut's like a million times better. I don't really know. It's been like I like I like Battle of Los Angeles a lot. Born of a Broken Man. You know, my band at school we used to cover that song all the time. Sleep Down the Fire, Wake Up, Testify, um, Voice of the Voiceless, New Millennium Homes. What am I missing out? There's another really big one on there. Um, but yeah, uh, Gorilla Radio. Awesome record, but self debut's way way better uh last saying it just sounds so fucking authentic there's no filter system toxicity by sister down is on Lars top 15 records that's a really good choice uh ufo stranger in the night and then warrior souls the space age playboys i can't really say i know warrior soul to be honest with you i've definitely seen their name on like old posters and stuff but never really listened to it anyway so here's what Lars says about overkill Quote, I started hearing about Motorhead in the spring of 1979. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark, and I went through the local record store, and I asked if I could hear a couple of songs from this Motorhead band, and then the double bass drumming of Phil Taylor started this song, Overkill. I'd never heard anything like that. It blew my head off. I'd never heard anyone sing like Lemmy, and it was this fusion of, like, punk and rock and metal, and it was crazy. It just added to an energy to it, and it was completely over the top with his almost exaggerated cartoon-like lyrics, and the consistency from Overkill to stay clean. I mean, staying clean was a live staple for years. I won't pay your price. No class, which is almost straight out of a CZ Top playbook. Damage Case, which Metallica covered, and longer, deeper tracks like Metropolis and Limb from Limb. It's just insane. Motorhead was the one band where no matter whether you're into rock, prog, pop, punk, fucking, I don't know, Scar, you could agree that Motorhead was just the coolest. And to me, the definitive Motorhead album is Overkill. Now, you know, I'm not really sold on Overkill, quite clearly. Uh, This is on Garage Inc., but it wasn't one that they recorded specifically for it. It's part of that quartet at the end, the motor headache, the hero of the day. I think it was on the limited edition uh, B side of that in 96. And yeah, let's get into it. We have that flurry of drums that Lars mentioned before, which brings us into proceedings. Jason burbling up top of his best Lemmy impression, kicking into a fairly anodyne riff. And the vocal melody, I'm not saying every single Motorhead song sounds the same, But the vocal melody, and I'm just going to play it side by side for you guys. The intro of the verse sounds so much like Ace of Spades with that upward lilt. Tell me what you think. Right? Like, I just feel like the vocal melody is going to resolve into the new, 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 you know, and it's one of these kind of standard overrocked punk songs where the chorus feels like an afterthought and the riff is a bit of chug-a-lug nonsense. I mean, the bass sounds great throughout the track underneath. It definitely feels very strong, very powerful. And, you know, Lars himself and the, the whole band are, you know, really energetic. They've got a lot of enthusiasm for it. I'm pretty sure they played this at that 95 concert where they all played as the Lemmys. Um, this is from Joel McIver's book. On December 14th, after more studio sessions, Metallica made an unforgettable appearance at the Whiskey Go-Go in honour of the 50th birthday of Motorhead singer Lemmy, performing Overkill, there we go, Damage Case, Stone Dead Forever, Too Late, Too Late, The Chase is Better Than The Catch, We Are The Road Crew, and a jam based on Overkill, while dressed as Lemmy in black wigs and white cowboy boots, Metallica's performance was blisteringly powerful. And that is online as well. 
And James here, in this edition, I'm not sure exactly where this was recorded from, can sound quite obscured at times, quite indecipherable, but, you know, this isn't Me Without You, I don't know if anyone likes Me Without You, been binging on them recently, incredible band, Aaron Weiss, this wonderful lyricist stream of consciousness ideas, you know, way too complex for myself, I don't always talk about half the time, but this isn't that sort of song, really, you know, there isn't that much going on in terms of theme, there isn't that much going on in terms of competition, it is just a raw injection of energy, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but don't sweat it, get it back to you, don't sweat it, get it back to you, comes the pre-chorus. This is on the fan can as well, 1997 was also included. And I think there's a New York show with the Big Four, they did like a sort of Am I Evil type melange there. It's been played 65 times by the band, so it's been played quite often. Um, it was debuted, as we said, in 95 in West Hollywood, California, and then played on September 14th, was the last time they played it, 2011, which is a little while ago now. Um, but yeah, it'll probably come back. They play in London, England, actually. They play in the O2 Arena, bloody hell. But um, yeah, this is overkill. I don't really have too much else to say. There are solos in it. The, the song has a kind of false ending where the drums lead us back in another solo. Kirk's playing is pretty bland, pretty boring. I prefer the original solo, actually. The original solo has quite a few licks in there that are quite atonal and work quite well against the more standard riffage. But yeah, here no challenge for Mr. Hammer in any of these playing. It has a slightly more progressive element with the second lead line over the top, which kind of dredges the song back, and we can hear Jason's burble as well, and Lars's drums. It's in and out. I mean, we've covered most of the um, Motorhead covers now. You know, we've done Damage Case as well. Well, I say most. We've actually got <laughs> we've only covered two, but uh, it feels like longer. But I prefer Damage Case over this, but again, Damage Case is just a bit of a kind of empty cowboy strut to a certain extent that isn't very fulfilling for me this song doesn't really do anything can you tell and maybe if i had a guest to bounce off i'd change my mind but here i'm resolute in my uh in my individuality but let's go to you guys what do you guys think over at metallica pod as always we open it up on twitter great to hear your feedback uh bozo bozo says bass sounds immense on garage inc version pretty great cover though james's voice does sound a little like he's either imitating lemmy a bit too much or halfway through a large size burrito plus forgetting the lyrics still pretty great though uh ralph says another mohead cover good track overall not much can be said that i haven't said before about these not the best covers they've done certainly not the worst some of those ramones tunes might qualify there hey anything that honors, honors lemmy is good by me yeah, I certainly agree there. Uh, Gary saying, yet another great cover of my favourite Motorhead song from the guys. Okay, again, you know, people love this Motorhead song. So uh, excuse this Brit here. Um, Ralph saying, again, more like Metallica aping Motorhead. Not really done the Metallica way, if you catch my drift. Correct if I'm wrong, but wasn't this just a recording of a quick soundtrack the day before the pie? Anyway, it's a good time and just sounds with the band having fun. Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast saying, Jason delivers a high level of respect for his bass tone. Quick question, who'd win in a wrestling match, Lemmy or God? Ralph actually answered Lemmy there, and Rye said, quick question. Rice said, trick question, Ralph. Lemmy is cut. Uh, Under the Sun saying, all Mohead is good Mohead. That's my only answer. And Sabracadabra saying, does not do the original justice. Badly recorded vocals. I will agree with that, yeah. They do sound as if they're a bit of snowstorm at times. I wouldn't say it ruins a song or anything, but it does slightly undermine the whole package. So, um, yeah, there you guys go. Just a quick little thing here on Overkill.
And we get into the song itself, which, I mean, even if you've never heard this song, if I describe it as a Motorhead song, you'll kind of know what I mean. It's kind of blues-rocky. It's not metal per se. I guess you could say it's kind of that first wave of British heavy metal to a certain extent, but it's not thrashy. You know, it's just kind of burner, burner. It's kind of got quite a classic budgie-esque quality to it to a certain extent. It's anchored on that riff and, you know, for me, one of the things that I really like about the song is 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 the lyrical content, where it's kind of about a lunatic who's escaped and seeking refuge in romance. Yeah, it, it it's it's interesting too, and and I don't know if if you saw this as well, but uh, the lyrics are actually written by Mick Farron, right? Uh, as, as opposed to Lemmy, which I guess he he'd helped Lemmy with a couple songs. I know he did. Uh, I think Lost Johnny with him when uh, Lemmy was still in, in Hawkwind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it, it but it it does almost have this like. And, and looking back on like blues rock, it it does almost sound like something that could be like a uh, like a Jerry Lee Lewis or like a little Richard kind yeah, of yeah like, yeah definitely you know l- let me let me come over and sit next to you here little girl kind <laughs> of kind of kind of thing, but yeah no but even coming from Metallica it is kind of weird I'm I'm not sure that I I know that very many songs there's that start out you know hey babe. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 all i want is some special care uh i'm on the run from some and like again again it's like i love hearing hetfield sing the word institution like you know <laughs> the, the certain the certain words that just uh sound so brilliant coming out of his mouth and you know altogether it's it's a rocker it's a chugger there's not too much inventive stuff here there's there's the kind of the anchored riff as i say on the e and then there's the classic songwriter's tool when you don't know where to go with a song the key change and yep. it, you know, I mean, what what do you think of it musically? Damage case. Um, I always tend to think of it along, along the same kind of like old rock and blues, where it it almost kind of seems like if you think about the old old blues, where they would have like a line and then a little lick on the end, right? And then it, it's almost that kind of thing. Although in in rock and heavy metal, you can almost just do you know some chugging, and then have a little lick, you know, whenever whenever you're done with the line. Mm-hmm. And so and so this kind of to me almost feels like that the step in the chain of old old blues blues rock into hard rock into heavy metal and kind of motorhead being you know a a nice little link in that chain yeah yeah definitely and i mean yeah as if to corroborate that blues thing like the way the song kind of pauses after the chorus then you hear lemmy's bass going you know sort of descending and providing that sort of that 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 bridge and yeah yeah i mean it's nothing like kind of special and i don't mean that in a denigrating way i just mean kind of it's it, it's kind of you sort of know where you are with the song as soon as you hear it it's not going to take any outwardly you know interesting moves and we just get some ripping solos as well which kind of you know uh, pull their weight to a certain extent like I, I like i like when the chords come after and it kind of has a bit of a heavy kind of crash to it you can definitely see why this would influence um young uh ulrich and hetfield right oh for sure um and then now, one of the things that I was wondering is that I, I I couldn't find an official video of when they actually recorded it live, which is for the rehearsals for the 50th uh, birthday bash for Lemmy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that in the um, that you had sent me that that YouTube of them in was it Nashville? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was neat to see that Kirk did the first solo, but then James did the yeah. second solo. And so I'm I'm wondering if that's the way that it was played on the uh, on the release as well. Yeah, I was curious of that. Although the second solo. Um, has quite a lot of wire on it, 
which I don't think is really James's bag. So I don't know if if that was maybe, but but I I did think that as well when I was looking back because yeah, there are two sort of solos playing us out there. And you mentioned the clip which um you know I sent to you before, and I want to urge everyone listening search literally in your YouTube bar now. Pause this episode, search Metallica and Motorhead. There is an incredible ten minute video where basically, as you say, they're in Nashville, Tennessee, two thousand and nine uh, World Magnetic Tour, and you get to see them practicing with Lemmy, and then you get to see them perform on stage and let's talk about that that video a little bit like uh, i especially like the early moments because you have them in the you know the, the room that they're always in the sound check room before they go on stage i love when you see rob like inspecting lemmy's bass as if it's like this mythic like <laughs> artifact yeah no it, it, it's almost like he's like wants to reach out because he almost wants to touch it but then is like yeah. <laughs> kind of th- thinks better of it but actually the, one of the things that really stuck out to me was um also the playing between uh, Rob and Lemmy, because if you look at Rob, you really see him working like the, his, his fret fingers on each note where, mm. you, you know, you can really see a lot of action. Whereas Lemmy is very kind of not restrained, but it's like he knows what he's doing. He's, oh, yeah. he, he's really got it there. And, you know, if he has to move his fingers around, that's fine. But if he's going to be playing the same note, he's just going to let those fingers rest there. Yeah. And I don't know how much of Rob was trying to be like, all right, this is a big deal. So I really got to, you know, put yeah. my A game look like i'm really you know going at it yeah 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 i mean you know to put it into context it'd be like any metal band now and james hetfield comes in and you play sad but true with him like you know they are clearly in awe of this guy and i like seeing james like he's so giddy when he's rehearsing and um when james goes up to lemmy's mic which is you know characteristically angled down isn't it and he struggles to sort of sing to it (laughs) yeah i always (laughs) i always wondered how much that changes kind of any kind of vocal quality or even mm. kind of what what the uh what the story behind that is because that's not something that you see very often if i'm remembering no. correct no 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 not at all and I, I i know lemmy himself has a storied history i think he was Jimi hendrix's roadie um before yep. hawkwind and i watched a documentary of him recently he was talking about how jimmy every night would sort of smash his pedals so hard that one of their jobs is to like tape them back together for the next show and you know so yeah he's he's been around the block many many times and um as, as a guns and roses fan as well in this uh, rehearsal space matt sorum's there for some reason yeah just, like, just hanging out, yeah, just, hanging out just like the usual illusion era drummers just there like why not i guess you know yeah, I don't know if he's based if he was based out of there at the time yeah. or was passing through, but yeah, it, it was it was neat to see that I'm I'm sure he was just as happy to be there as you know as anyone else. Mm-hmm. And again, YouTube comments, you know, they're very hateful, but they're very useful. And on this video, which has like four million views, which I mean, it's Metallica, it's Mohead, of course, it's going to be highly viewed. But um, people pointing out that Lemmy doesn't acknowledge Rob. But it seems to be because Lars basically says to Lemmy as he comes in, oh, Matt Sorum's there. I don't think it was a slight on Lemmy's part. You know, I didn't either. But also a certain part of me wonders how much interaction they've had before. Mm. Whereas, you know, with Lars and James, obviously they're going to be oh, yeah. a lot more comfortable. Um, and, you know, Kirk, you know, even maybe just even passing, they're, they're going to have some interaction. Whereas Rob might kind of be, you know, the new guy. And so that might be a little bit more of, Hi, nice to see you. All right, let's go ahead and go. Yeah, yeah. I think Lemmy was like, "Where's Jason?" Like Lemmy probably didn't even know. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> didn't even didn't even realize. And, and Rob's sort of getting his getting his crab on at certain times. And, and and as you say, what brought us into this is James doing the solo. And god damn, James tears it up on this solo. For sure, yeah. No, there's always something neat about you know, just even even in um, certain songs. You know, like nothing else matters. Some of the solos and. Uh, even like the middle part in Master of Puppets. Oh, yeah. Um, I think he even does, what is it, uh, Whiskey in the Jar? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, being able to hear hear that is just 
just his phrasing and everything. It's not something that I would say, yeah, let's get a whole album of it. But whenever he does it, it's really, it's, you know, obviously it's James Hetfield. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's a rare treat, isn't it? And like, you don't see him, like you, you mentioned like the master or the nothing else. But they're quite soulful. They're quite melodic. You know, they're, they're, the phrasing's delicate. Here he's just ripping. Like, he's just shredding to a certain extent, and it's just great to see him, like, you know, playing really fast and, you know, doing really well. And all in all, I just, I, I, I adore seeing all these guys playing because you see, you know, James and Lemmy just side by side sort of thing. And in a sense, you know, it's generational, isn't it? They're both figureheads of a certain era of this sort of sort of music. Oh, yeah. No, it's, I mean... There isn't going to be anybody who even has a passing interest in rock music who isn't going to know both of those logos mm-hmm. or a couple of songs, you know, just as soon as they see or hear them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, you know, in, in, there's another video as well, which basically is from the same day, where you get to see them on stage. Um, you know, a, a, a Lemmy chant is gone. You know, James is very boyish here when they come out. And they, they kill it live as well. Like, they, they speed it up, Damage Case. I watched... um. Motorhead playing at some festival on YouTube in like 2002 and they do a bit more of a sort of you know classical version here but like god damn I just I, I love the fact that Metallica just you know that they, they show such respect to their forefathers and, and it's just a brilliant thing to see oh yeah no and, and, I'm, and I'm sure as worldly as Metallica is as much as they've experienced as much as they've done and experienced if they'd get to do you know a live couple songs with lemmy on the big stage they're going to be so excited and i could definitely under- understand if that kind of would be what sped them up a little bit mm-hmm. yeah and um the actual uh garage ink version is actually 40 seconds longer than the motorhead version i'm not quite sure why i guess it's through the solos and stuff like that and uh, james going wait at the end um, we get we get some sort of ad lib uh, you know ala hetfield as always not a song they've played live much at all um, they played it no, was it only three times? Three times. Um, the last time they played it was in the Nashville, which is, you know, frankly documented really well. They also do Too Late, Too Late, uh, another Motorhead song, um, which is a pretty cool song, actually. I've not heard that before, but it's a, a bit more of a groover um, than, uh, than, than Damage Case. But yeah, they played it, debuted it December 14th, 95 in West Hollywood. And the last time they played it, they also played it in, um, in Austria in 2006 for some reason who knows why but you know that that's their sort of thing but um yeah any any closing thought i mean there's not too much sound the song is there but any closing thoughts on damage case uh no just how nice it is to see um them really paying respect and i was actually thinking about this the other day about if if i would want them to because you know they've they've done a couple of the the cover medleys before Mm -hmm. Um, but i kind of feel like especially because i think whenever they did the 50th birthday bash i think they did six motorhead songs right um six or seven and so um i almost kind of wonder if for them that it's kind of like okay that's you know even though we've released four of them we got a couple other ones that's kind of out of our system so I, i i don't know if we would get any more but what we have is really good yeah yeah because i mean you know, they have Overkill, uh, Stone Dead Forever, and Too Late, Too Late as well. So I think that's probably the band they've covered the most, really. Um, although they've kind of covered a lot of bands twice, they haven't covered really anything four times. Uh, actually, Ramones, I guess they've done that sort of that sort of gamut as well. But but yeah, it's just it's just wonderful, really, to have sort of a lesson in metal history through Metallica and to see what sort of stuff they're into and.
yeah, I mean, Motorhead for me, you know, I think we've pretty much covered all of the covers now. We haven't done Too Late, Too Late, but we've done Overkill and we've done Damage Case and Murder One, of course, as well. You know, not technically a Motorhead song, but obviously a tribute uh, to the deceased Lemmy. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind them. I totally agree that they can become slightly monotonous. They don't really reinvent the wheel. I don't. The, the track we're tackling today is from 1979, and I'm pretty certain that if you were to go up to, I don't know when their most recent album was. I would imagine like the sort of mid to late 2000s. I'm sure there'd be no proggy time changes in there or female backing singers. It's just going to be a fuzzy bass riff with some bluesy guitar over the top, and you know Lemmy's dependable growly bark. But uh, yeah, so this track. Uh, Stone Dead Forever, it's actually a live version rather than a studio version. And that imbues it with some energy, doesn't it, I think? I think it works in its favor. I, I agree. I mean, obviously, it's been well said at this point that the all four of these, the Motorhead covers were recorded sort of during the rehearsals for Lemmy's 50th birthday party. Yeah. Um, where they were asked, they actually were asked to, to play a full Metallica set, which they kind of declined and said, no, but we'll come on and do a, a quick little cover set. Mm-hmm. So they put these four tracks together and they also did We Are The Road Crew and The Chase Is Better Than The Catch. Um, and so all this is recorded just live off the floor. And I totally agree. I think if this was, if they put this out as any kind of real attempt at a cover, I think it would be rightly shat upon. But the fact that it's been, this is just, you can hear it. It's four guys having yeah. fun. Um, sometimes that, you know, the, the perfection or, or whatever gets a little bit lost, but you don't need it because the energy is there and there, there's, there's, you know, yeah, it's going off in the background and shit that, that, you, that you can hear the fun they're having in the, the vibe and the soul is totally there. Mm. And, you know, we open up with one of the most satisfyingly fuzzy bass tones I've ever heard. And the, the bass is scored through the heart of this song with a lot of Motorhead songs. And, you know, Jason is there plucking away to his heart's content. Like, what would what, you make of that as it opens up, the drums coming in, you know, those sort of the first 20 seconds or so? I think it's great. It sets the tone right away. And, you know, Jason points to Lemmy as a huge influence in both his the way he plays bass, the fact that he plays with a pick. And you can hear that in his playing, but it's still different. If you do an A and B comparison, like I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you've seen footage of Jason playing bass live. Yeah. But he, you know, when he's moving his, his picking hand, all the movement usually comes from, if not the elbow, the shoulder. Mm. Like he pounds his bass guitar. Whereas Lemmy wears his guitar a little higher and a lot more motion in his wrist. So their up and down alternate picking rhythm motion is a little bit different. And that you can hear that when they're playing these two things, if you hear it sort of side by side. Yeah. So when Jason comes in, you hear the Lemmy influence and certainly in the tone and, and the picking style, but it's just this thundering pounding that goes on. Yeah, and you know the, the chords are clattering down, and you know this sort of intro, to me at least, maybe I just listened to Metallica a bit too much. Reminds me a little bit of Four Horsemen, the Horsemen are drawing nearer. Like it kind of has that wide panoramic expanse. I don't know if you hear that. I hadn't before, but I like the idea. Yeah, I mean, look, it's chords going down a scale. Like, it's always going to sound somewhat similar. It's not kind of pulling off the riff. Like, there's that, uh, what is it, End of the Line by Metallica, which pretty much steals the Why Go riff from Pearl Jam. But again, the notes they're using, and there's only so much you can draw from in terms of that wellspring. But yeah, the song carries on. It's a pretty exciting ride. The, The verse itself is James just sort of thrashing out these chords and, and barking over the top. Lyrically quite interesting, though. I like a lot of the images, and a lot of words here, like wizard, for example, that you don't normally hear James say. Yeah, and, and I spent some time going over them and trying to... Listen, I'm not the guy you want analyzing lyrics. Sure. Nine times out of ten, that shit flies way over my head. Uh, but, you know, no idea necessarily what the overall message is trying to be. I kind of got like a... 
like a, a dude always trying to chase the money, like a King Midas type thing mm-hmm. by the end of it. Uh, but there's definitely, you know, Sweet Lounge Lizard, Top Tycoon, that kind of stuff. Caught your fingers in the pearly gates. There's some great lines. Yeah, in there. I like that. That's a great line. Yeah. And yeah, there's just, you better leave your number. We'll call you that idea. Like, I don't know. Again, I'm not too au fait with Motorhead as a whole. I know Lemmy. I guess he was regarded as like you know a lyricist of some note I suppose certainly evident in this song and yeah these ideas of I mean you got to consider when this was written right at the tail end of the 70s so you got that yuppie movement the financial wizard that sort of greed is good idea certainly plays into the latter verses but yeah there's not too much to think about in this song I mean compositionally there's not too much in this song really um quite a standard verse chorus is kind of catchy i guess i mean it's kind of just hinged upon that stone dead forever like that being barked out right it's almost a one-line uh, chorus mm. like the three the three lines preceding it are almost a pre-chorus and stone dead forever like you're saying that that bark there yeah. that's it that's the whole root of the song yeah yeah and you know, like, like a lot of mohead songs as well that just sort of gets cast out they don't have these kind of intricate weaving melody lines or whatever it is just this this call to arms this uh, you know excitation for the crowd and um you know the bass comes in again after the second chorus kind of carrying the track kurt comes in with that nice little like that little lead line there which is very very faithful to the original i'm, gu- I'm guessing you've listened to listen to the original yourself Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, it's it's essentially note for note, isn't it? Like, sometimes the Metallica songs, they rebuild it or reconstruct or take lines out or whatever. But this is just, this is paying homage. It really is. But to just to correct you, I these are all, to the best of my knowledge, these are all James solos. Oh, that's right. Actually, yeah, because I watched them live in uh, in, in Paris just before. And, yeah, it, and it, it does have that kind of James soulful bend, actually, now that you mention it, yeah. And, the, and, yeah, and if the other tracks where you hear Kirk soloing on the other other Motorhead tracks... It's it's soaked in wah, which yeah. this guitar tone is not. <laughs> yeah, there's um, uh, Damage Case as well. Now it springs to mind. There's a video on the, the Met Club of them playing, I think, backstage with Lemmy in Nashville, I want to say. And James yeah. does all the solos on that as well. And he absolutely yeah. rips. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a great league guitar player. Like, I understand why Kirk is there. And James couldn't probably construct just you know your sam manzi or ryan's etc but just in terms of noodling i'll probably rather hear james than kirk you know not to mention the fact that in that video he doesn't stop smiling the whole time yeah yeah right yeah, beside yeah. his hero playing the stuff he grew up on yeah 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 no no it, it's beautiful it's wonderful to see and you know james's voice on this track what, what did you make of the sound of it again i think the fact that it's 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 a recorded demo a recorded jam session almost I think that saves it from any real criticism. It almost sounds to me like he's he's doing a light imitation of Lemmy. Yeah. I don't think this is his sort of quote unquote natural singing voice. I think he's trying to to have some fun with it and you know certainly vocally it's fine for me. There's some parts where he messes up the lyrics. Oh yeah. And Definitely. that that is it's too bad cuz that to me is the only thing that really takes away from this if you were going to look for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it is kind of endearing. It is, you know, evidence of this of this live document to a certain extent. But yeah, I was following along the lyrics earlier, listening to it, and I was like, "What's James actually saying here?" Like, it's kind of garbled a bit, a bit merely mouthed. But um, yeah, the 
you know, really isn't much to the song. There isn't kind of this transcendent middle eight for whatever. It doesn't shift around. It just continues. We get that lead break. We go back into another chorus. We sort of get this this jam out at the end. But that, that, that's the beauty of Motorhead, isn't it? This is why the guy loved the guys love the band. I think Lars especially. Um, I'm pretty sure he named one of Motorhead's albums one of his top fifteen albums of all time. Like Metallica worship Motorhead. Yeah, and rightly so. I mean, you can see where a lot of their you know the 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 riffage, the the constant downstrokes, the speed, the aggression. Mm-hmm. A lot of that stuff is rooted in Motorhead. Yeah, yeah, definitely that kind of that that, that synthesis between heavy metal and punk. Uh, that kind of that that middle point there that is the embodiment of thrash. You definitely see uh, inoculated in Motorhead. They have played it live twice, as we said. So I believe the recording that we're hearing is from West Hollywood, Cali, uh, December fourteenth, nineteen ninety five, and just dusted it out once more. April 1st, April Fool's Day, uh, 2009, in Paris. Uh, have you seen this performance? Yep, it's the only live one that they have up there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the only one they have. And all the comments on YouTube, quite rightly so, call out the crowd. The crowd are pretty dead, but I don't exactly blame the crowd. You know what I mean? This isn't the go-to Metallica cover that everyone's going to know. No, I mean, it's it's not a go-to Metallica track to start and cover second. It's not yeah. one that a lot of people are going to know. No, 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 exactly. It's not a kind of on that bread fan, so what, sort of echelon. And it's quite cool on the Paris version as well. They open with um, Suicide and Redemption, sort of messing about on the main riff and then going into a segue. And you know, James asks the people, because it must be like right towards the end of the concert, you know, why are you still here? Uh, is there anything else you want to hear? Everyone cheers. Everyone's probably like, oh, my God, they're going to play Sandman. They're going to play... Oh, oh. Some some Motorhead B side cover that yeah we don't really remember <laughs> and probably is Damage Case or we're not quite sure is this too late too late I don't I don't know is this but yeah so yeah but um people don't really react but the band are having a ball and James is just in full guitar hero mode it's cool to see Kirk on the riser with Lars just headbanging out and James just with his V and James rocking the leather jacket shirtless combo it looks like a badass he totally does and again you can just see. He's loving the shit out of every second of this. Mm-hmm. This is something that they may not even necessarily do for the crowd. This yeah. is totally for them to get up there and just jam away at. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, I mean, that, that's about it, really. There, there isn't too much to say about the track, isn't it? It's kind of a run and gun, in and out. I mean, I don't. I mean, it's in a good way. It's a Motorhead song. It is. And, I, I, you know, if you were to look at it as sort of the, the, the overall pantheon of Motorhead, I don't know if this track would come up in sort of your top 10, top 15 necessarily. No. It, it does come from what what's considered sort of the classic era with yeah. Lemmy and Phil and, and Eddie Clark. But as far as the Metallica cover goes, I think this is one of the ones that I think it's a slept on a bit. I, agree. I think I think it, it, it gets lost in, in sort of because I mean, really, Overkill was the sing is the, the B side for uh, Until It Sleeps. Right. And then uh, Hero of the Day was the next single off load. And they just kind of tossed out the other three tunes and they kind of all get lumped in as this quote unquote motor headache. Um, and I think that does this this song a disservice. I think it's, you know, I'm a bass player by trade, but in the Ronnie episode we did, I talked about Lars's drumming, and here I think it needs to be highlighted as well. I don't, I'm not saying it's great. It certainly isn't. I know he he misses up a couple of times, but the with how high the drums are in the mix, uh, because Kirk is almost inaudible at points, but with mm-hmm. how high and how loud these drums are, it's a really catchy drum part. If yeah, you yeah. can listen to this whole thing without tapping your feet along and, and I don't know, finger drumming on something, I don't I don't want to talk to you. Like, you just can't. <laughs> it's really catchy. It's almost hooky for a drum part. 
Yeah, I get what you're saying. And it definitely pulls you through with the raw adrenaline, the momentum. I don't think Motorhead played this song that much live. I tried to find a few tracks. There's like a recorded track of like 1980 and it's been deemed as like quite rare. And it's not like on their Spotify top 10 or anything like that. So, you know, it's nice to see that the boys have dig, dug a bit deeper, you know, into the back catalogue and um, enshrined this song. But yeah, I mean, the Paris crowd didn't really seem to know the song very well. As we always do with every Alpha Metallica episode, I open it up to you guys at Metallica Pod. No one's given any feedback on the song. <laughs> uh, to be fair, ah, fuck yeah, to be fair, I only asked it a few hours ago. I sort of uh, forgot a little bit that I needed to do that. So, um, you know, maybe that's my fault. But still, I don't think, you know, a lot of these covers as well, they're not kind of people on jumping on it like a Sayangle or a One or something like that. But, you know, guys, let us know down below in the comments what you think about this track. Uh, MetallicaPod.com as well. Any, uh, any final thoughts on Stone Dead Forever, Phil? Uh, not necessarily. Like I say, I think this is a, a under underappreciated Metallica cover. I think it gets lost in the mix with the other three. Uh, it's certainly of their covers. It's my favorite of that of that four piece, far and away. Because I love Motorhead. Overkill. I saw that you did the Overkill episode solo. That yes. breaks my heart. That isn't just one of my favorite Motorhead songs or favorite metal songs. Overkill is one of my favorite songs of all time. Damn. I fucking love it. And the fact that you had to do that song by yourself is is really unfortunate. <laughs> I don't really even remember that song or that episode. I, I, well, I can, we're done here. Have yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine I'm pretty much saying exactly what I'm saying today. Like, but like, no, no, I get, I get it. And, you know, maybe in uh, 10, 15 years when I do Alpha Talica season two and go back and do the whole back catalog again, you know, we can get you incorporated on that. But, but, but yeah, guys, I mean, as I say again, let us know um, what you think about this track and, yeah, if you want to hop on the show as well what about covers in general then by metallica like what are some of your favorites out of interest um well to me they almost fall into two categories because uh, there's they you know if you look at the garage inc release they did mm-hmm. you've got sort of the older stuff that is really clear like what they're in like it's right on their sleeve like the the diamond head stuff is really obviously influencing and blitzkrieg and that far back and then the newer stuff was so almost a window of stuff that you wouldn't have guessed. Like you'd have known they were, you wouldn't be a surprise that James Hetfield was a Bob Seger fan, but turn the page is not necessarily the song you'd pick. Um, but I, I mean, most of the stuff they've done, I love it. Their medleys when they did the uh, merciful fate and the wrong rising medley, those are fucking amazing. Uh, any of the diamond head covers, bread fan was fantastic. I'm a huge misfits fan. So if they want to do the misfits, you go right ahead. Mm -hmm. The motorhead stuff is actually, they, they, the Ramones covers were garbage, just so we're, we're clear. <laughs> yeah. They were just a hot mess. They don't sound good. 53rd and 3rd was okay. The rest of them that were on the St. Anger singles were just not. I, I mean, yeah, I, Commando I, had a throwaway charm, but, but I do agree, yeah. But as far as the Motorhead stuff goes, I almost, it's, I like Motorhead enough, and those things are so almost perfect on their own. You almost don't need to cover them. I know. You know, I'm, I, I know how this, the, the way this came about. And the fact that it was sort of a last minute thing and, and recorded live off the floor, that kind of saves it for me. But otherwise, there's no need to cover these. They're, they're almost too close. Yeah, yeah, they are just like kind of one for one. Yeah, I, I, to- I totally get what you're saying. But again, it's this hero worship of these guys that are hero worshipped by millions. And I just love the fact that they kind of extend their own fandom out there. I see that nothing's changed. Insist on playing games. Gotta make my switch Just another dawn I know 
So yeah, let's get into Too Late Too Late. And this is a live version, a slightly obnoxious live version to which James is you know, slow in the lyrics. We'll get to that towards the end of the track, especially. Um, and it's important where, you know, riffs are such delicate things, really. And the way you start it, the way you introduce it can flavor your whole taste throughout the whole song. And it's not that they're playing any different notes to Motorhead here, but um, let's just compare the two intros. I'll play Metallica's and then I'll play Motorhead's. <laughs> a little more interesting i just like that refrain at the start that that whip curl that of course is there in the metallica version but it's just the sort of the way the perspective they've set us off on the track that, that colors it in a certain way but yeah um you know we did today you love tomorrow the world recently as well we did the mohead song i've listened to this song a lot and i can't really fucking remember the riff to the point like you know it's just pretty anonymous um there's not much going on there's not much brain power that's been imbued here we're a long way from woodstock we're a long way from richie havens people but um you know there's some things i do like i like the fact you can hear the strings being strummed underneath that you know overdrive and distortion but the riff is nothing special it is kind of truly hard to recall it compacts in of itself with more notes and the same spirit and then lars's drums fall back in we've have a chorus that has a lot of space like a lot of lemmy choruses he's not doing anything melodic melodically sophisticated over the riffs it's just boom your move boom what do i have to lose boom stay on my boom too late too late um and the, the track itself you know lemmy as he often is as bands of this era often are they are addressing some nameless antagonist that insists on playing games, that sees that's nothing changed, um, you know, that Lemmy sees someone that he thought was real, but he's actually a rip-off deal, they've been escaped the trap, and yeah, just kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, oscillates in these modes. The band love Motorhead, and I'm not taking anything away from Motorhead out there, but they are not my jam jar, I can confirm that with you now, I just find them a bit boring and inane for the most part to be honest with you but yeah james is slurring you know the word credibility comes kind of towards the end i like the backing vocals i like the gang vocals i like the crashing chords there's a lot of energy here there's a lot of kind of visceral attack but um i do prefer as i say the way the original starts the mohead version it sounds a lot to me like the finn lizzie song are you ready as well dun, 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 dun. are you ready to fra-? you know whatever check out lizzie uh check out the metallica episode metallica and finn lizzie episode that i did a while back and of course i saw finn lizzie at the steelhouse festival in wales which is this festival i think it's like the highest festival in europe quote unquote in terms of above sea level it's in this giant kind of mountaintop that we had to drive up this crackly road to for like an hour and uh, myself and ryan went and had a fucking great time saw the temperance movement as well i'm sure people might be aware of those scottish rock band really seriously good band actually mohead are also on that pedestal i suppose this song has been played seven times total live uh it was debuted i believe at the recording day uh december 14th 1995 that was west hollywood cali and it was last played december 10th 2009 in anaheim california on the world magnetic tour so it, you know it's been out there it's been about but it's just not stayed in the memory bank for me but um people like this song and uh, as always guys we reach out to you at metallica pod for your thoughts for your opinions 
Ralph saying fun but only serviceable motorhead cover. Really nothing all that spectacular going on here like the rest of those covers. I'll listen to it when playing the second Garage Inc. disc, but it's not a go-to cover like the Prince or Bread fan for me. Uh, Tommy chiming in there, all turn the page astronomy, which is surely amongst the highlights and Ralph concurring. And Fix and Master Pun saying it's alright, not a fan of the motorhead covers on Garage Inc. Yeah, I'm not a fan either really but um the boys clearly are and they have an actually absolute blast digging into these tracks so um yeah this is going to be a short episode i don't really have much to say at all about this song and i'm glad that we're done with the motorhead (laughs) 